Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by the fine members over at GrandTheftWorld.com. This is episode 130, and it is titled Turnkey Totalitarianism, a, a phrase, a turn of phrase used by RFK in last week's show. We thought it was so good. We're going to dig into all these applications of robotics and AI in our lives tonight. Okay, so hot off the press, we got this Epstein calendar that just broke. And there's some interesting people he's been meeting with. Uh, one of the most notable, uh, aside from a CIA director, a Rothschild, and uh, Dershowitz, who's a usual suspect, is this guy Noam Chomsky. And we're going to get into Chomsky's, Chomsky's reaction to being questioned about this, which I thought was very interesting. Earlier, rewinding, going back to the beginning of the week, as we all know, Tucker Carlson got fired. Or did he? Megyn Kelly says he's not fired. So Tucker Carlson is now free of Fox News of having to deliver content for them, but he's not quite free of the contract to produce on his own yet. We're going to find out more about that tonight. Also this past week, we lost Don Lemon from CNN. And I know all of the CNN listeners in this audience, uh, you guys are sad too. So we'll talk about that later tonight. Uh, the Biden campaign conspired, conspired to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop. It's not surprising, but even more evidence has been coming out this past week. We'd like to get that on the record. And then we've got this story where Ron DeSantis went to Israel to pass a, a hate speech law for Florida. So we're going to understand uh, more about that story, what's going on with hate speech down in Florida, and uh, pointing toward the AI and robotics revolution. We're going to look at the 20 years of Boston Dynamics robots and what they're really building out there. And then we're also going to look at um, <clears throat> the AI being pointed back at the people who create it. So we did a little experiment in the past couple of days, and we took some of uh, Ministry of Defense's documents. We did a little AI stuff, and we're going to present to you our findings and summary from that little project tonight. And last but not least, uh, we have one story that tops them all. Because we find out now that there is medical research that uh, a little known uh, ointment, treatment, tincture, however you want to see it, called CBD could have prevented millions of COVID deaths, but they don't want you to have treatments, therapeutics, preventatives, things that make the bad virus go away. So we're going to dig into that story as well. And we also have a special guest tonight, the author of the Deep State Encyclopedia, really graceful. So hang tight. We have a big show tonight, lots of juicy information, lots of artifacts and evidence as well. Let's kick it off with Luke Radowski of wearechange.org and thebestpoliticalshirts.com. I need your opinion on this. How secure do you think a gated community is? We have these keypads where you need a code to get in. Only residents know the code, and I feel like it's pretty secure. I do wonder if these gate locks are hackable. Let me show you the process again. I'll just walk through over here and here's the gated door again. Just got to punch into digits and I'm in. So really, what do you guys think? Is it secure? <laughs> I bet those HOA fees are absolutely enormous. And if there ever was a more perfect representation of how prohibition and the war on drugs work, that's it right there. They don't. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. My name is Zygardowski here of wearechange.org, and we have a plethora of absolutely 
crazy and wild news to get into today, especially when it comes to the story of the decade that, of course, many very powerful people are trying to keep quiet, but it's exploding all around them, especially from the latest bombshell from the Wall Street Journal today that just published the calendar of Mr. Epstein, which, of course, we're going to be fully getting into today. As you know, we've been talking about this story way before the corporate media was, and uh, we're also the ones that stormed the island. But, you know, so yeah, we're going to be getting into that, plus a lot more all here on this independent media broadcast. If you like the shirt that I'm wearing, you can get it on thebestpoliticalshirts.com. And the clip that we played in the beginning of this broadcast was shared widely all over the internet. I saw it at Clown World underscore. They provide us with a lot of curated, absurd content that I definitely think is worth talking about. HOAs, horrible communistic-like institutions that provide great services like the one that you just saw captured by someone who detailed their security system that they're probably paying a lot of money for. And other people paying a lot of money, shooting themselves in the foot and wasting it news. We, of course, have the latest from Fox News that looks like they're trying to improve their ESG score as they now named an anchor that will be replacing Tucker Carlson that will act like his replacement. The current anchor is hosting a a Saturday show, which isn't really known for its ratings. This as the majority of people still do not know why Tucker Carlson and the number one news anchor in all of America was essentially fired, even though we're finding out that he might not be fired at all, and that Fox News might be attempting to silence him for the remainder of his contract, which some people say is six months, some people say is 18 months. What's really going on here? We don't know, but it definitely looks like Fox News is trying desperately to stop the bleed of viewers from its network, as Tucker Carlson's tweet was viewed by 72.7 million times and viewed as of right now by over 20 23.3 million viewers. You compare that to TV ratings, and he absolutely obliterated cable news stations, including, of course, Fox News, that is losing a huge amount of viewers on its network and most likely never going to be getting them back again. All of this as we're finding out that Newsmax is reportedly pulling out all the stops in order to try to get Tucker Carlson in order to work for them. According to TMZ, they're offering him the keys to their kingdom, and uh, Tucker Carlson uh, already is the editor-in-chief of The Daily Caller, so it will be very interesting to see his next move in this media landscape, as, of course, he never really holds back his opinions, admits when he's wrong a lot of the times. I don't want to always agree with him, but he's even with nearly surfaced video that's going around the internet right now, specifically talking about a third tower that that came down specifically on September of 2001 in in, in New York City, asking some very hard-hitting questions that, as he points out, are the questions that people should be asking since they caused the most amount of people to freak out and therefore should be asked even more. And with this entire situation, the memes are uh, pretty plentiful, to say the least, and uh, truly do highlight the current situation of a cable news network going under and the rise of powerful individuals willing to raise questions, push the Overton window, and start conversations that very powerful people are deathly afraid of. And just like in many post-apocalyptic fiction movies, just like, you know, V for Vendetta for one, there's a news anchor in there talking about a lot of bigger truths that gets 
canceled. This as our modern day reality is becoming more and more post-apocalyptic by the day. I think it's fair to say that, especially with, of course, very grandiose behavior by celebrities at the Capitol. All of this as we're dealing with a major mental health crisis in America that's destroying this country from the inside, with many people believing it's a part of the larger fifth generational warfare against them, as the government literally takes your tax dollars and runs international trafficking operations of small children all over the world. And that's actually what's happening here and we got more confirmation of that today from the wall street journal but before talking about that it's important to note here that it wasn't just independent media specifically highlighting and talking about this story but it was also individuals like tucker carlson who was one of the few brave individuals on network television that dared to ask the questions that everyone else was afraid of while the left predominantly focused on canceling him and not his cia loving counterpart of course sean hannity that is a major neocon. And, and you wonder, why, why isn't Sean Hannity being protested? Why is it only Tucker Carlson being protested here? And that's one reason. Out of many reasons, we just launched our Tucker Carlson for President 2024 shirts, which you could exclusively get on thebestpoliticalshirts.com. Next story, which is, in my opinion, the story of the decade, and that is a man who has many ties to intelligence agencies, government officials, tech moguls, Hollywood celebrities, and his private calendar was just released by the Wall Street Journal that detailed a lot of very interesting questions that I think are definitely worth asking. As of course, it's important to note here that, that around this whole Epstein saga, we still only know about one to two percent of exactly what was going on here. Since, of course, the U.S. government is keeping a lot of the details, a lot of the evidence, a lot of the videotapes, a lot of the photos, a lot of the documents secret from you. There's judges that ruled that there's so much information. It is so sensational that it would shock the general public so much that they have to be kept away from the people. Now, of course, that was their justification, but there's also a a lot of attorney generals and judges figuratively and literally being taken out trying to look into this particular story that highlights the government's involvement using your tax dollars, taking thousands of small, innocent children and doing unspeakable things to them that we cannot mention here on this family-friendly broadcast. And now we found out a little bit more from that 2% today, specifically highlighting how Mr. Epstein was meeting with high-level officials of the Obama administration, the current head of the CIA, top lawyers at Goldman Sachs. He was meeting with a lot of Rothschilds, Henry Kissinger, the presidents of major colleges, Noam Chomsky of all people and some of the most powerful individuals in all of our society. Now, the current CIA director was actually reached out by the Wall Street Journal and asked to say, hey, how are you in his calendar so much? What is the current head of the CIA and, and a career CIA guy doing meeting with Jeffrey Epstein officially on this calendar? And according to the current CIA director, Mr. Burns, he's like, quote, did not know anything about Epstein. Yeah. So so, so a, a career CIA guy, the head of the CIA, the, 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 uh, the organization that spies on everyone and has everyone's personal information and data and metadata and probably timetables when they poop and they don't know almost virtually everything about every single individual doesn't know who one of the most prolific, notorious, convicted child trafficker is? 
No, okay, come on. Seriously? That right there on its face value just shows you that there is a very high probability that he is lying here. As, of course, the, the current CIA director went on and said that he met with him because he was a, quote, expert in the financial services sector and, quote, offered general advice on transition to the private sector. Financial sector? Financial services? What? Jeffrey Epstein had no official ties to the financial system. Still, to this day, no one knows how he got all of his money. Where did it come from? How did he get hundreds of millions of dollars? How did he have so many mansions and yachts? How does this uh, make sense? It doesn't. It doesn't at all. As, of course, Epstein never held any kind of official position in any financial services and any broker that was asked about him on Wall Street has never even known any official affiliation or how he got his money in the first place. Noam Chomsky's explanation here was that he was trying to discuss Israeli policies with Epstein. And then you got to kind of ask yourselves, how is Epstein calling the shots here when it comes to Israel? Why does Chomsky need to come to him to talk specifically about Israel policies? That's another question that, of course, should be very blaring here and very kind of obvious here, since, of course, Chomsky is knowingly going towards a convicted international trafficker of children. Epstein, of course, was also tied to many prestigious learning institutions, woke indoctrination centers, as, of course, he donated millions of dollars to Harvard, hundreds of thousands of dollars to MIT. He even had his own offices at Harvard, many times wore Harvard sweaters, and was known for trafficking trafficking small children and was convicted of it. Now, now, specifically, he was convicted of something else that we can't mention here on this particular broadcast, but you get the drift. Es essentially hurting small children unspeakable ways as he met with the president of another university, Bard College, that he allegedly even brought young female guests to. And the reason he was meeting with them, according to Leon Botstein, was to, quote, get money from him. And if you're trying to get money from, from this this dude, holy cow, you must be strapped for cash, to say the least. Now, the top lawyers in, in, in the o Obama administration, the top lawyers of Goldman Sachs, specifically Kathleen Rumler, says that she was meeting with him in order to introduce them to various people like Bill Gates and the Rothschilds. Yes, there's the Rothschilds that are involved here. How are they involved here? Well, again, we still do not know the direct involvement of very horrible people and individuals when it came to hanging out with this prolific monster that everyone knew. Even according to John McCain's wife, she came out and said it was not so much of a secret that Epstein was doing horrible things to small children and providing powerful people those small children. She even made statements referring to him being just totally above the law and it being out in the open that he was doing these horrible, really evil things for many years before, of course, the, the corporate media even picked up on it. Now, what are the Rothschilds and Kissingers and Gates doing with, with Mr. Epstein? Well, we could theorize that, of course, they have a shared interest, especially when it comes to population control, which all of these individuals have, of course, been big proponents of in one way or another. Epstein was a very big eugenicist and even had his own eugenics-like project that he was currently carrying out before his demise, and that was public knowledge. Imagine what we still do not know. The former Israeli prime minister also was a very frequent guest of Mr. Epstein. Now, Woody Allen hanging out here with this guy kind of makes sense, especially with his past. And Ariana de Rothschild and the Bank of the Rothschilds 
previously made statements that they never met with Epstein. And as we're finding out today, that was not true and that Epstein was actually helping Mrs. D. Rothschild find a new assistant. Now, why is this guy connected to all these intelligence agencies and presidents helping someone find an assistant? Now we're finding out that they met because of, quote, normal duties at the bank between 2013 and 2019 when he was a convicted child trafficker and that it was Epstein introducing the Rothschild Bank to U.S. financial leaders? Are you are you kidding me? How involved is this dude? And why are the Rothschilds also buying nearly $1 million worth of auctioning items on Epstein's behalf? How? What? And now I think it's worth asking the questions. Is the current director of the CIA, William Burns, implicated here? And how can we trust him at the helm of such a huge, unaccountable government agency that is known for their clear and direct ties to these horrible monsters of individuals that do unspeakable things to children? And again, so many people implicated here, including, of course, even Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan and Chase, who was deposed surrounding this entire incident. So was the CEO of Barclays. We're also finding out that a senior city banker also left the bank after their reports came out of him meeting with him specifically. And while all of this is happening, fact-checking organizations like Snopes are literally going after satire memes around this issue and trying to get rid of people that are trying to bring this issue up. Holy cow, you gotta be kidding me. There's an obvious fake photo going around, and this is this is what the fact-checkers are talking about? When, when all the higher institutions in this country, including in the financial sector, including in our justice system, including in, in Hollywood, including in politics, have been hijacked, and all are interconnected to a guy that was above the law for decades that was doing some of the most disgusting, most horrible things on the face of this earth. Are you kidding me? As of course, this story proves one thing, and that is that the entire system, the entire establishment is corrupt as hell and a lot more disgusting and a lot more horrible than we could even potentially imagine. And this is why independent media is more important than ever. The only other person talking about this on commercial television, just taken out. I think he was taken out just because of this very specific issue that a lot of powerful people want to go away. But it's up to you as individuals to keep speaking about it, to share this video and to get this message out there. It is more imperative than ever. So the people who've been running cover for that story, the whole Epstein saga, they're, they're either guilty, they're blackmailed, or they're just Renfields who do the dirty work for these people and run cover for them and uh, run a lot of apologetics for them, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense unless you... <clears throat> they call get that DR. Yeah, pu public relations, strategic communications. They spend billions and billions of dollars on it. Those are big firms out there. Look up WPP and uh, some of the other... I don't know uh, what they've conglomerated into, but there's like worldwide strategic communications firms that are shitting themselves right now because it's very inconvenient it's it's very interesting that the wall street journal would come out and get in front of this and they're like we're actually calling people and we have chomsky's quote and you know he basically gave us the social finger and these sort of things right so let's rewind back to the intelligence community for a second because the intelligence community when they claim ignorance whoa whoa what you know nothing about this guy He's, he's like above CIA level, like 
he's going between all these different intelligence agencies and creating uh, compromised people for intel sources. So if you don't know about that going on, shame on you. But it makes me ask the next question. Uh, who tapped Bill Burns to be CIA uh, chief? How did he have his rise to power? When did he first encounter Epstein? Because it makes me think that you're either like uh, someone on the super inside or they've got the super drop on you. One of those two things is necessary to take that position. And if he's claiming he doesn't know, mm, me thinks he doth protest too much. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure I believe that the intelligence chief there was ignorant of this situation. He didn't know, Rich. I think I mean, he's it sounds like intelligence is in... Yeah. wrapped up in middle name for that acronym now let me go uh say something incendiary on the other side this rothschild group everyone else was involved in eugenics and then i was asking a question is this rothschild group are they into eugenics and then i was trying to remember the word for it what do you call it when family members intermingle sexually and procreate with they, there's they a technical term for that uh inbreeding now is that a type of eugenics Tony? inbreeding is a type of eugenics yes Okay. So now it's not just uh, Jeffrey Epstein who has a penchant for eugenics. It's not just Bill Gates. It is the coterie of the Rothschilds and the, the Warburgs and those who kind of copied their model, right? There's a whole bunch of banking families that had copied that same sort of model trained together. It's all in their Ron Chernow official New York Times bestselling biographies. You just have to read. Yeah. Of course, they're going to network together. To preserve their own wealth, sort of recognize themselves as being at sort of the top of <clears throat> at least the financial world. So they're going to want to intermingle with others like themselves, make sure they can preserve their wealth and expand it in some fashion. So, so Bill Burns is saying it's what kings economy, have done in history. He wasn't included. Right? <laughs> He's not included Doesn't in that. Like he he was. wasn't looped in. He, no one told him about Epstein at all. Even he though no he one. Like, they, they know, don't have files on these guys, Rich. You well, know? I mean, Epstein wasn't involved in Iran-Contra. He didn't visit the Clinton White House 26 times. He wasn't no. a convicted child pedophile by the 20th, 21st century, if not uh, getting known for that in the 20th century. There's no reason a CIA director should have knowledge of anyone like Epstein or Ghislaine Maxwell or Robert Maxwell, for that matter. There's no reason a CIA director should have like the, the same type of level of acuity on this than an average reader of Whitney Webb's books no reason for it so that's oh you said uh, it best i mean there's something to see there yeah that's yeah. our national security talk for tonight so here let's go to this one it's like what talking. that guy said last week you know it's like he was brought here not to talk about the laptop but to talk about the program so you know they have a program that program collects intelligence apparently not on epstein nothing to see there it's apparently the story they're going with the guy from last week can't answer the questions all right <laughs> <clears throat> I'd notice a pattern between last week, this week, well, every week for that matter. Right. It's kind of like they're doing Grand Theft World slow motion, but they get <laughs> it goes, it ebbs and flows. I think though. times is slowing down for us mm. as we get used Maybe. to analyzing these types of patterns. Maybe on screen, uh, this is the Tucker Carlson iceberg. Uh, the, the general public thinks he, oh, he got <laughs> fired for the January 6th footage or because he's a Trump ally or Alex Jones That's ally brilliant. or no, he got fired because of the Dominion settlement or his producer has a lawsuit because he's anti-Semitic because she's never met him, but he said something about Christmas one time or whatever the thing is, right? Now, let's go below the water a little bit. You know, people have picked up on some of his other positions like Ray Epps, like 60 Minutes just did that hit piece last week. 
Maybe Rupert Murdoch called that called that in and said, get that guy off there. But if you dig deeper, they would probably have more trouble coming from AOC Schumer and the woke brigade over there. Oh, they wanted you, him out for so long. Sure. But then if you look even deeper last week, he had some real anti-war sentiments. And then he interviewed RFK Jr. And then he went on that anti-advertiser rant, like on the last hour of his show, where he's like, hey, what if we made you buy my pillows? And then we made you get a my pillow booster. And then you had to have a my pillow to get on a plane. What if we did that? Right. He did that whole rant. I'm yep. sure the people who cut his checks did not like that. And that's where I started thinking, oh, he wants out. Like all the stuff he said last week, it was kind of telling me he wants out. And then they had the Jay Dyer eats a bug skit. And I had people text me, friends of mine, Nick, you're listening right now. I'm talking about you. He texted me. He said, hey, I think it was Jay's skit <laughs> that went over the top. But then if you watch what he did right after Friday's show, he got fired Monday morning, right? Allegedly. Friday night, he went to the Heritage Foundation and he gave a hell of a speech. And there were some things in there that if you heard that and you're his employer in the globalist world economic new world order type situation, yeah, you got you can't let him go to work anymore. You got to figure out what to do with him. And so at the bottom of it, Tucker just wanted to go solo. But we'll get into the clips and the gist, but I just wanted to give you guys like the iceberg overview. There's that. one more. There's two other things to add to that um, iceberg, which corresponds well he was actually he went on a, a clayton show um it's basically on the first and clayton morris so he went on uh, redacted and he yeah. gave a very interesting sort of interview just talking about their experiences at fox news and know they kn knew each other he also went on this other podcast i can never forget the name but it's these two young gentlemen sort of like very casual and oh trigonometry i don't know i was just gonna um, <laughs> well, anyways we'll see clips from it tonight when we get to that section, because like, it was very interesting what he had to say about how he, for 20 years, he was a part of the problem, the, essentially waxing philosophic and being quite candid in his reflections on his career up to that moment and how much he was a part of the problem, his belief in the Iraq war. He mentioned World Trade Center 7 in that. I remember like 10 or 11 years ago when Adam Kokesh was you know, bursting onto the scene and he did some sort of like guerrilla journalism in the sense where he, went, he sort of caught... Um, Tucker by surprise. This is before Tucker really blew up into something with the, to what he is now. And he asked him, like, well, what about 9-11? He asked all these questions about 9-11. Tucker was sort of incredulous to the possibility that there's more going on there. It seems like he had some sort of catalyst. I think one was the 2016 sort of the culture, quote unquote, war that ensued from the 2016 election. And then COVID-19. I think those react. Those were like two sort of catalysts that created the sort of chemical reaction that, you know, ended up having him come to the realization that there's something a little bit more going on. That's just my sort of general take on it. It seems like it's somewhat honest in its progression towards truth. It's hard to I, know. I actually heard it was, uh, it was, he was hanging out with Alex Jones and Joe Rogan. They did some mushrooms and they showed him who killed John O'Neill <laughs> and that, and that's what really changed him. <laughs> that would be brilliant. If that were the truth, God, that would be amazing. I mean, you, you asked Alex Jones, he, Alex Jones apparently has aligned him. So, you know, Either way, it's hard to say. It could be co op I, I mean, there's a bunch of different theories. We we somebody in the audience around. could be using AI to make that right now. We have eleven labs. We have the technology. It is available. Should we <laughs> offer a bounty for it? These thoughts are just racing <laughs> oh, through my head. Um, before we get to more serious news, uh, I have some uh Bud Light we showed you last week. They had come out with the Clydesdale campaign trying to play on the nine eleven 
uh fervor from back in the day and it kind of backfired in their face and then they fired another vp this past week and their stock's still tanking it's not good over there it's not good over there so i uh got together with some uh expert researchers and we went and we found we found some good examples of bud light uh, advertising that we think they should just roll these back out just put these back on television everyone have a good laugh and get back to life Cause I'm tired of people fighting over a beer. That's not even worth drinking in the first place, <laughs> you know? And so you could look at this as on one hand, it could be seen as Budweiser's slow transition over the past 30 years <laughs> from the King of beers to the queen of beers. Or you could see this as once upon a time, there was a sense of humor. Things were funny. Nobody was triggered. People had a good weekend, right? But you, if you ran these same ads today, people would blow up and say it's appropriation and I'm triggered and there'd be probably lawsuits. So thankfully these two samples that LD is about to play for you, they come from like 1993, 1994 in the era before there were straight up satanic rituals during Super Bowls. There were ads like these that used to be palatable. Let's go ahead and check one out, even though Bud Light's not palatable. It's not Steven Crowder. Um, Bud Light, please. Tonight's ladies' night, and there's a special on Bud Light. Oh, really? If you want great taste that won't fill you up and never let you down, make it a Bud Light. Oh, no, it's Ted from accounting. All right, let's go ahead and roll with the other one. Make it a Bud Light. You're the defending ladies pool champion? Yes, I am. He identified as a pool player, it seems. It was. Now, Tony, have you ever seen those before? Those are kind uh, of before your time. I have not. Not that I can remember. No. How old were you when those were made? If they were made like 92, 93, it would have been like five. No, no, no. Yeah. No, like six or seven, six right or on. seven years old. So Bud Light was able to advertise to adults and it didn't permeate into your world as a seven-year-old. You've never heard about such a thing before. No, it idea. wasn't like you were in their TikTok audience and you got to see Bud Light this week. No, right? no idea what Bud Light was. <laughs> okay, likely. good. That's actually, I wish I was an adult and still didn't know what Bud Light was. <laughs> now in the That's realm okay. of in the realm of uh, stories and vicissitudes on this topic, are there any necessary stories that we need to include in this time capsule now that I've already... About the Bud Light thing? There is one this week that I didn't even add to the show card. So it's like, oh, there's no way we'll cover it again this week. But I can search it out if you want me to... Well, last week was such a heavy show. And tonight's got some heavy-duty topics to it, too. So I just figured yeah. we'd talk about something light for a second. Let me think Bud where, Light. Let me think where I... Take real beer and just add water. Where I found it. Just give me two seconds here. I haven't found out if Bud owns Amstel, but 
I had to say goodbye to Stella for now. Yeah, they own a lot of brands. I mean, it's still it's kind of tough to boycott all of them. I guess if you drink beer, that is. Um, well, that uh, the company that owns it, the, whatever the Belgian beverage company, they probably own a whole bunch of other stuff too. They're a conglomerate. Right. That's part of the problem with brands. They start to own a whole bunch of stuff that you like to use, and then it's hard to boycott them. It's almost like they saw the the positioning coming up. They're like, we'll just make conglomerates. You won't be able to boycott. It's your favorite toilet paper. You can't go against them. Did you find it? Uh, I did not. I'm trying. I can't remember. Which... All right. Well, while we're waiting. To shift gears there. Uh, LD, did you uh, manage to find that Jade Iron Club? Yeah, I think so. All right, cool. And I'll, I'll just set that up. Uh, usually, I don't think of pitching autonomy or positioning it and letting you know about it till the end of the show after people pay attention for seven hours because it's for people with long attention spans. But uh, we're in the midst of season nine and we take enrollments up to season eight. I think we're in like uh, or week nine and we're in like week five. Uh, prices are going up for next season and it's my uh, job to let the audience know that because if I don't then it's like no one told me and I would have done it sooner so there's opportunities uh, for the next couple of weeks for season nine admittance and then there'll probably be uh, a replay sale at the end of the season but I wanted to put it out there as you know if I don't say anything if I don't do any marketing it's not like people read my mind so the offer is there you go to get autonomy.info forward slash ignite and you'll be able to see the opportunities as they've grown. There's new services, there's a whole bunch of new things that we do for students. And because of that, we are going to raise the price next season to accommodate for that. But you can get in under that radar now, get that extra value, and uh, get the skills between your ears sooner than later. All right, LD, if you have that clip, we'll go to that, and then we'll come back to Tony's clip. There's also other podcasts that are amazing, excellent, and really cool and will enlighten you, especially if you don't know much about how the world really works from a geopolitical perspective. You know, we uh, focus a lot on um, educating people and engaging in education, education for the masses in a format and in a way that's better than the university brainwashing system. And you can get that education through myself and through our affiliates and our buddies and our friends like Richard Grove over at Grand Theft World, right? Amazing podcast. You're, you're talking about weekly installments of seven hours of hard-hitting geopolitical and philosophical education information. Learning to become self-sufficient. Learning to become an entrepreneur. Learning to become your own man. How do you do that? Well, you start with education. Okay, it's not just education. You got to put it into action. It's not just becoming a, a nerd and learning a bunch of facts and spitting them out. You have to apply this to your life. How do you do that? You do that by taking the education and then using that to start your own business, to become an entrepreneur, to become your own man. A lot of you out there have never thought about doing that. I never thought about doing that. I didn't think I could run a business and write books and do all this. And then I decided to try it out. And a lot of you haters and a lot of you people out there who have never done any of this stuff, you whine and complain all day long about everybody else, but you don't do these things yourselves. So you don't get out there and try these things. I'm here to tell you to go out there and try. Try to start your own business. Try to do your own thing. Try it out. If it doesn't work, move on to something else. No big deal. So what? 
But rather than sitting around and whining and complaining and, and bitching about other people and how they're mean or whatever, no, you do your own thing. When you have invested and made money, when you've started a business and had success, then we'll listen to you whine and bitch and complain because we'll know you're in a position to do it. But you anonymous whining, complaining people, mm -mm. you need to step up. You need to do your own thing. You need to create. Instead of constantly bitching and tearing down, what have you created? Well, Richard Grove is there to help facilitate that. And he's been at it for many years and he's a great guy. And we love Richard Grove. You know, Richard was part of the inspiration for what I did. There's a lot of people, but Richard played a role in that. So I'm going to tell you, get on over to Rockfin and subscribe to Grand Theft World and start your education right now. Start learning to become self-sufficient, become sovereign, become uh, self-educated because we can't really rely on the traditional education, the legacy education system anymore. It's pretty much completely co-opted and completely, for the most part, uh, a, a brainwashing operation. So, but the advantage is that, you know, with willpower and with your own focused intention, you can learn these things on your own. And uh, Richard is there to help facilitate that. And you can do that by his courses over at Autonomy University. One of those courses I taught, uh, is the history of Western philosophy. And uh, we're going to be teaching multiple courses later on this year. Next course is going to be global elite book series. I'm going to turn that into a course. Then I'm going to do a lecture series on uh, geopolitics and espionage. Booyah. Look yeah, for that later this year. Booyah. All right. And uh, <clears throat> right back at you. Jay's philosophy course that he just mentioned is at the Autonomy Agora. And the website is marketplace.autonomyagora.com. And uh, I think that was 12 weeks. So it was heavy duty, whole history of the past 2,000 years of history. And then, uh, as mentioned, get autonomy.info forward slash ignite and get your skills on before the summer hits. Start applying yourself and learn how to outgrow your status quo. That's the gist. That's the gist. All right. Tony's found the clip. We're going to go to Russell Brand. He's going to bring us up to date with the Budweiser saga in the least cringeworthy way that we could put it in this time capsule so we could see the evolution of this story over the past month and that it didn't just go away like they thought it would because people were a little upset just overall with being pushed around and having things thrown in their face all the time. So they get this is the opportunity to push back. We're going to take a look at that because it might be necessary to push back against big ideas of a different variety as we go along the journey. Let's check it out. Budweiser have released another commercial. This one's very traditional and patriotic. Do Budweiser care about America or do Budweiser care about money? <laughs> Hello there, you 6.4 million Awakening Wonders. Thanks for joining me on this voyage towards truth and freedom where we're going to have to learn to navigate the new and emergent landscapes and not fall into the traps set for us by a culture that does not love us and wants us dumb and consuming, distracted and divided. Turn on the notification bell right now. We make these stories every day and we want you to see them all. Today's story is a fantastic one. We're talking about the Budweiser commercial controversy. They made a commercial with Dylan Mulvaney. Then they made a patriotic commercial. People feel outrageous.
raised, but do Budweiser care about diversity? Do Budweiser care about blue-collar Americans? Is the best way to express your identity, whether it's a progressive identity or a traditional identity, I'm just using those words for convenience, is the best way to express that identity through commerce, through the purchase of commodities, and are they exploiting our tendency to emotionally attach to products that don't really mean anything except an opportunity to make money? The ad coming two weeks after Bud Light's partnership with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. This month I celebrated my day 365 of womanhood and Bud Light sent me possibly the best gift ever, a can with my face on it. Mulvaney's post drew the ire of some Bud Light enthusiasts, including celebrities like Kid Rock who played target practice with the beer. What the new ad campaign doesn't offer is an explanation for Bud Light breaking away from its traditional male-oriented advertising in favor of a trans actress with 10 million followers on TikTok. Okay, so I would offer this. Often people from formerly oppressed or currently oppressed communities see the affiliation with a big brand or a powerful institution as a kind of progress. And whilst that could be seen as demonstrating a new kind of inclusivity, I wonder if it's the right kind of progress or I wonder if it's a kind of exploitation of a new and emergent meme or movement in order to make more money. I would offer you the question, do you want to express your identity through the products that you buy? And if you do, are you aware that that could lead to you being marketed to in ways that you're not fully in control of? Put simply, do Bud Light care about blue collar working class Americans? Do they care about 10 million follower TikTok actresses? Do they care about anything other than selling beer to as many people as possible and creating the biggest profit possible and attaching themselves to social movements, whether they are diverse and progressive or traditional, is simply a marketing opportunity. It doesn't mean that there is a deep connection. It's not beyond Budweiser to appoint people from different communities as spokespeople, even within the company, let alone temporary engagements like with advertisers and influencers in order to legitimise what is simply a business. Is capitalism and consumerism the best way, whether you're a blue-collar American worker or a person who identifies in a progressive way, is it the best way to bolster your own identity and feelings of well-being? Because I would offer you this, they don't care about you at all. Anheuser-Busch CEO Brendan Whitworth saying, we never intended to be part of a discussion that divides people. We're in the business of bringing people together over beer. No, you're in the business of selling beer to people. Even if beer is bad for people's health, bad socially, perhaps could be considered an irresponsible product. I should declare I'm a recovering alcoholic. I don't drink beer. Even if I did, I wouldn't drink Bud Light because I don't like the idea of people trying to sort of touch me emotionally. Hey, you know what you believe in? We believe in it too. Buy our stuff. They don't care about you. They don't care about what you're going through. Whether you have a traditional background or a progressive background, they don't care at all. They are using the culture war in order to sell beer. Maybe successfully, maybe unsuccessfully. The fact is the motivation is simply to sell a product. We need to move move towards models where we absolutely accept there are different ways of being an American, of being a human being, allow people to express themselves however they want to without harming others, and not allow ourselves to be tethered to marketing techniques that are deeply cynical and are ultimately underwritten by corporations that do not care about you or your liver at all. We can't make these beautiful videos, this fantastic content, without our sponsors. I want to tell you that this video is sponsored by Ridge, who make minimalist items like this. Hey, ah, Ridge, you sweet son of a bitch. 
Bud Light's marketing director has said the brand is in decline and needs to evolve and be more inclusive. This story shows you precisely what Budweiser's intentions are because they released an advert with Dylan Mulvaney and now they've released a new traditional looking commercial within weeks of one another, presumably for commercial reasons. The new TV commercial for Budweiser, which like Bud Light, is also owned by Belgian company Anheuser Busch, appears to be a pivot to return to traditional values for the brand, which historically appeals to blue collar American workers. Budweiser is obviously the inspiration for Homer Simpson's preferred brand, Duff. It traditionally reaches a particular market, and if it is pivoting and changing, it will be for marketing reasons, not for ideological reasons. It won't be because they genuinely care. The way to solve problems of identity and culture is not through commerce and consuming. That is an economic, financial strata that has no ideology beyond the maximization of profit. Ultimately, they will endorse any product and use any technique that they are legally allowed to sell at the maximum amount of profit. That includes selling food that makes you sick, drinks that make you ill, drugs that don't work, energy that is bad for you, and causing wars to keep the military-industrial complex going. It's the same mentality, it's the same institution. The idea that there's any ideology other than the pursuit of profit is ridiculous. I'm a businesswoman. I had a really clear job to do when I took over Bud Light. And it was, this brand is in decline. It's been in decline for a really long time. And if we do not attract young drinkers to come and drink this brand, there will be no future for Bud Light. So there it is. Older Budweiser drinkers are dying, possibly because of liver conditions, so they need to refresh their market. The tobacco industry has the same problem. All industries have the same problem. At scale, Facebook moving out of America and focusing on like the Philippines or Indonesia or Malaysia is the same idea. This is just commercial expansionism. It's nothing to do with ideals. Budweiser don't care about Dylan Mulvaney and her transition. They don't care about blue-collar Americans and the imbalance in their life between work and poverty and leisure or American pastoral imagery. They will stimulate that affection and associate themselves with those images as long as it's profitable. Our duty as sensible individuals and as an awakening community is to see it for what it is and not get caught up in the phony discourse. Hey, Budweiser, that belongs to us. Budweiser belongs to whoever will pay for it. That's the end of it. They don't care about you. They don't care if you drink yourself to death. They don't care what happens in your life. They don't care what your gender is, what your identity is, whether it's progressive or traditional. And allowing them to set the framework for the conversation means that they've won. That's the same reason that you get to choose between this politician or this politician and ultimately end up with the same media and the same deep state. It's the same mentality. There is a monolith at the core of our culture and pretending that there's diversity there is an absolute lie. Having evoked the ire of their former market with a progressive looking advertisement, piece of propaganda, they are now attempting to re-engage their traditional market base with a more pastoral, conventional American commercial. Let's have a look at this piece of propaganda. There's a horse. The horse is thundering down a beach. There's a haze on a meadow. It's America. The horse is powerful. It's independent. It's alone. It's like you. Drink bud. Let me tell you a story. I'm an American man with a deep voice. Drink bud. About a beer. 
tell me a story about beer. Tell me a story about advertising. Tell me a story about commodity. Tell me a story about a country that's so deeply unhappy that people have to drink themselves to death. They have to find ways of distracting themselves, ourselves. Speaking as a recovering alcoholic, if you can safely drink, then safely drink. But don't safely drink under the illusion that your drink somehow loves you. I'm this drink. I care about the drink and the drink cares about me. Like that horse running through America. They don't care about you. They don't care if you die. They've just shown you that they'll replace you with people who you might be predisposed to ideologically oppose because you've been culturally trained to. The place where we need to get to is absolute embrace, acceptance and love of all people that we may have power in our own communities and not to get caught up in a phony conflagration that simply leads to the sales of a product that will give you liver cancer. Rooted in the heart of America. Found in a community where a handshake is a sure contract. That's right, buddy. In America, a handshake and a horse. That's what you can rely on. Brood for those who found opportunity in challenge. Actually putting a flag up with a someone that's meant to look Native American. The naked cynicism of it. Look, we did an advert. It's backfired. Here's another advert. Can we go back to selling you our product now? We don't want Kid Rock shooting any more cans. It's bad for business. And hope in tomorrow. Raised by generations. Willing to sip, share, risk, remember. The actual Twin Towers, you're willing to go there. I mean, in the meeting where they discussed this effort, is there anything at all that's off limits that you wouldn't do? I don't know, try me. Well, would you, for example, show the site of one of the biggest injuries to the American psyche, the site of the Twin Towers, and then say the word, remember? Remember. Would you do that, or would that be too disgusting, too immoral, too exploitative of a cultural injury that many people are still recovering from? No, actually, that's a good idea. Let's do that. They have no values. That is the problem with our culture, is there are no legitimate principles. If you have legitimate principles like individual liberty and community freedom, then you have to say, I don't mind or even sort of care whether people's identity is progressive or traditional. I will treat people with respect. Real freedom means your freedom, not my freedom. Because if I assure your freedom, you will ensure my freedom and together we'll be okay. If we allow everything to be mediated by corrupt political parties, bullshit media, and blag adverts like this will never do the stuff that needs to be done. This is a story bigger than beer. The only thing that's legitimate about this advert is that the whole story is horse shit. Unless that horse takes a massive shit now. This is what America really is. <laughs> Just a big pile of horseshit. There is no legitimacy. There is no authenticity. I'm not saying that Budweiser are, are, by the way, particularly or especially bad. Just some human beings and economic opportunity. But don't pretend that a beer has a legitimate connection to any ideological, progressive, populist, traditional movement. It's simply about profit. This is the story of the American spirit. This bud's for you. The other bud was for they. But this one's for you. But is there anything else by this attempt to use progressivism to promote beer? Corporations, including Nike and Anheuser-Busch, feature LGBTQ public figures, most notably trans star Dylan Mulvaney, to avoid losing crucial credit score points that could ruin their bottom lines. Lucrative deals and ideological advertising campaigns all play into a business corporate equality index. Businesses that meet the criteria and earn a maximum of 100 index points are 
are awarded with a best place to work for LGBTQ equality title, which 15 of the top 20 Fortune ranked corporations achieved, according to the HRC. The CEI falls under umbrella entity ESG, stood for Environmental, Social and Corporate Governance. If a company loses CEI points, which can be due to issues such as failing to meet integration of intersectionality in professional development, skills-based or other training, their stakeholders can see the effects in their financial returns. So it's literally about money. They were never doing that to embrace the trans community and say, hey, do you know what? Trans people deserve a break, but for them also. It was never that. It was, oh, look, this is a way to tick a few boxes. People coming together to share a bud is not the intention of Budweiser. It's to move the maximum amount of units. They can't afford to take an ideological position. Many of these commodities are struggling to survive in a newly fragmented and fractured marketplace where the culture war is kind of devouring itself. And I say that as a person that believes that the answer can only be to accept that people do human differently and to allow that to be the case and to love that. Because all of us are going to have a traditional Christian friend or family member. All of us are going to have a trans friend or family member. So we have to at some point map this onto our individual hearts and souls and free ourselves from hatred. Hatred in your heart is a tool for them. They can use that to hook you and drag you around like an idiot, voting for stuff that's no good for you, buying stuff that's no good for you. One of the key players in the dynamic is BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, one of the top shareholders in major companies including Nike and Anheuser-Busch who oversees assets worth $8.6 trillion. So ultimately, that company only cares about profit. And that's not an indictment of that company or indeed those financial systems. They are what they are. This is simply an attempt to invite you to free yourself from the machinery of mass hypnosis and psychosis, which they are embedding in your mind. And this is going to be a time where we need to awaken. There's an AI revolution on the horizon. There's a project to surveil and centralize authority wherever possible. We do not have time for a culture war. There is no time for it. It's just like, oh, you're Muslim, are you? Bravo. Oh, you're trans. Fantastic. Oh, you're working class and super traditional and boys and boys. And boys. Lovely stuff. Fantastic. Let's move on and start dealing with what needs to be dealt with. Because do you notice that they seem to have a vested interest in us talking about this stuff and getting mired in it? And even we are apparently participating right now. But I only came here to tell you to get away from here. All right. So uh, <clears throat> speaking of dealing with what needs to be dealt with, and uh, the mention of Homer Simpson. I think we're going to have LD play this real quick clip. It's like a public service announcement from the people who made The Simpsons, apparently. And uh, maybe it'll be more educational because I think it's part of like uh, we were just talking in the pre-show about Homer as being one of the original uh, uh, dads who can not do anything right. He's kind of a putz. And that became a whole trend going into uh, now the 21st century of incompetent dads. Homer Simpson's one of the originals because prior to that, dads were responsible in TV shows and set a good example on these sort of things. And uh, Homer Simpson, not such a good example. Maybe he can redeem himself right here in this clip. Let's see. 30 years of wrongdoing, Homer. It's Let's see. It's a lot to undo. Hang on. Twitter's buffering. Come on. And if you guys haven't seen this clip that's being shown in the thumbnail, that clip uh, was highly illustrative of what Russell was just talking about, uh, money being used to drive crises. And uh, we played that in the early episodes of Grand Theft World. It's an oldie but goodie. And they talk about creating a fake pandemic. And of course, they'd have to use a real 
bioweapon and they just happen to have something on hand. So that was that was prescient. But let's go to this one. Pervade on Twitter uh, via Owen Benjamin earlier today. Oh, Jesus. Some dude ate a bat, which somehow started a global pandemic. People of the world agreed to a two-week quarantine and it somehow turned into a year of shopping for grapes at Walmart with underwear on your head. Some experts disagree with the experts, but the experts agreed that the only experts that were the experts were the experts who agreed with the experts. The scientific method was replaced with artificial consensus by multinational corporations utilizing mass hysteria. Eventually, other citizens agreed to take a vaccine that wasn't actually a vaccine, but was only called a vaccine for marketing and legal purposes. The experimental gene therapy was coincidentally promoted by the same people who had officially stated previously that their goal was global population reduction, but was not in any way correlated to their previously stated goal of global population reduction. Magically, everything returned to normal, and the good citizens were given lollipops, carnival rides, and super special participation trophies. Oh, Jesus. Can't say I disagree with a whole lot of what Homer had to say there. Maybe, maybe he's getting smarter. Maybe he's taking that limitless drug. What do you think, mm. Tony? I can't tell if it was an AI or somebody doing an impression. But the, yeah, I don't know. It's it's difficult to tell these days. It's not like we have any sort of deep Homer fake AI on systems. Modafidil. <laughs> yeah, like that. Oh, uh, you know, it's a candid moment for Homer to come forward and he state. could lose his job. He could get canceled. That's true. That's Things true. have happened like that in uh, quite brave. memory. He's very brave. He's courageous. Yeah, he's coming out. Let's see. Maybe he's going to have his own show. Maybe that's what he's doing. He's doing like the Tucker. That's what he's aiming he's for. Burning yeah. his bridges. He's doing the, mm-hmm. or maybe Tucker cover uh, like uh, copy the Kanye move. You just say some stuff and they let you out of your contracts. <laughs> Not to say the right things. Those right or things. you can say the wrong things, apparently. <laughs> That's true, too. You'll know whether, well, I won't even go that far. But Yeah, yeah. Before we go that far, we got to go to this. This link yep. comes to me courtesy of our good friend of the show, Derek Bros. I think he was passing this to another good friend on the Twitter today, and I saw this and clicked it open. So let's read this together. The Wall Street Journal. There's a guy in the middle. I'm not sure. who. Oh, he's dead now, so we don't have to worry about it. Or we have to be careful. That's what it was. That's, this is the guy we... Okay. And this is uh, the guy who said, let them eat nothing in the camps, right? And uh, is this the CIA dude? I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with all these pictures yet. Let's dig into the story. Oh, wait. Let's read the caption. How about that? Jeffrey Epstein Center and clockwise from the right. <clears throat> Arion de Rothschild, William Burns, Joshua Cooper Ramo. Noam Chomsky, Catherine Rumler, and Leon Botstein. Interesting. Follow illustration, yada, yada. Epstein's private calendar reveals prominent names, including CIA chief and Goldman's top lawyer. You know, Goldman Sachs back in the 2008 uh, shenanigans when they were crashing the market but taking everybody's money. Goldman's CEO said any criticism, I think, uh, what was his name? Lloyd? That was it Lloyd Blankfein. Uh, their CEO said any criticism of Goldman Sachs is just anti-Semitism and that there's nothing, nothing to see there. So they're still at it. No one's no one's uh nationalized or put these they, they keep getting bailed out to survive. That's interesting. Okay, subtitle. 
schedules and emails, detail meetings in the years after he was a convicted sex offender, visitors cite his wealth and connections. That's a good excuse, right? Uh, by Khadijah Safdar and David Benoit. April 30th, 2023, hot off the press. The nation's spy chief, a longtime college president and top women in finance. That's not even a sentence, is it, Tony? Craig, I mean, this is this is New <clears throat> York Times, a, right? That's a phrase. The nation's spy chief, a longtime college president and top women in finance. Yeah, it's a phrase. It doesn't it may be, that's if, not a full Maybe if they use no. ellipses there, that's I would, not I a correct sentence. I'm sorry. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Hal. I'm sorry. I can't read this. The circle of people who associated with Jeffrey Epstein years after he was convicted, uh, after he was a convicted sex offender, is wider than previously reported, according to a trove of documents that include his schedules. William Burns, director of the Central Intelligence Agency since 2021, had three meetings scheduled with Epstein in 2014. When he was a deputy secretary of state, the documents show they first met in Washington. And uh, then Mr. Burns, no relation to the Simpsons, visited Epstein's townhouse in Manhattan. Just occurred to me. <laughs> Catherine Rumler, a White House counsel under President Barack Obama, had dozens of meetings with Epstein's in the, I'll bet, after her White House service and after and before she became a top lawyer at Goldman Sachs Group in 2020 wonder if she was there for any of those Podesta pool parties. He also planned for her to join a 2015 trip to Paris and a 2017 visit to Epstein's private island in the Caribbean. I believe that's called Little St. John's, but they don't, they don't have the wherewithal to give you the name of the island so you can do any research on your own. Leon Botstein, the president of Bard College, invited Epstein, who brought a, young, a group of young female guests to the campus came with his little menage uh noam chomsky a professor author and political activist was scheduled to fly with epstein to have dinner at epstein's manhattan townhouse in 2015 so that's interesting uh <clears throat> i see here in the chat i don't know who to whom to attribute it other than joshua passed it on so apparently epstein invited chomsky on his jet do you hear about this yeah, apparently he wanted to find out how to manufacture consent. None of the names appear in Epstein's, oh. none of their names appear in Epstein's now public black book of contact or in the public flight logs of passengers who traveled on the jet. So there's many, many pieces of audit trail that you can find out who he's doing business with. This is just part, right? This is just his counter. The documents show that Epstein arranged multiple meetings with each of them after he had served jail time in 2008 for a sex crime involving a teenage girl and was registered as a sex offender. The documents, which include thousands of pages of emails and schedules from 2013 to 2017, haven't been previously reported. The documents don't reveal the purpose of most of the meetings. The Wall Street Journal couldn't verify whether every scheduled meeting took place. Most of those people told the journal they visited Epstein for reasons related to his wealth and connections. It's safe and effective. Several said they thought he had served his time and had rehabilitated himself. Mr. Botstein said he was trying to get Epstein to donate to his school. Mr. Chomsky said Epstein discussed political and academic topics. Yeah, he was a cunning linguist. Mr. Burns met with Epstein about a decade ago as he was preparing to leave government service, said CIA spokeswoman Tammy Coverman Thorpe. So Burns is leaving government service, so he meets with Epstein so he can get 
to be the director of CIA. I see. The director did not know anything about him other than he was uh, that he was introduced as an expert in the financial services sector. True. Uh, they do go to Epstein to look for reclaiming money from like drug deals and stuff like that. They can just go steal people's money out of bank accounts. He was an expert in that. So, and he offered general advice on transition to the private sector. So much good advice that he ended up as director of the CIA. She said they had no relationship. All right. I don't believe that. Mrs. Rumler had a professional relationship with Epstein in connection with her role at Latham and Watkins LLP. That's a famous law firm. Who else has been? We should check that out. And didn't travel with him, a Goldman Sachs spoke, uh, spokesman said. Epstein introduced her to potential legal clients such as Microsoft Corporation co-founder Bill Gates. Yeah, nice connection. The spokesman said, I regret ever knowing Jeffrey Epstein, Mrs. Rumler said. The spokeswoman for Latham and Watkins said Epstein wasn't a client of the firm. In 2006, Epstein was publicly accused of sexually abusing girls in Florida who were as young as 14 years old. The FBI and the police investigated, and Epstein reached a deal with the prosecutors in 2008. Now, let's pause for a second. On the side of the FBI at the time was a guy who ended up later being a judge that authorized Mar-a-Lago. He flipped and went to work for Epstein after working for the government before he led the he, he wrote the warrant. Interesting. Continuing, he avoided federal charges and plead, pleaded guilty to soliciting and procuring a minor for prostitution. He registered as a sex offender and served about 13 months in a work release program. So let's get down to the part where they start talking about the people who are actually in this claimed calendar. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Let's see. Epstein's former residence on a private island. Again, Little St. John. Why can't they just say the name? They're just like, oh, you know, you're not, you don't need to know. You don't need to know. By the way, Luke Radowski, the guy you see selling t-shirts, he's been there before. He has footage. If you've never seen his footage of going to Epstein Island and getting chased off, it's pretty epic in the, in the realm of uh, confrontations and unplanned videos like that. Mrs. De Rothschild, who married into the famous banking family, had more than a dozen meetings with Epstein. Now, why does she need him? Because she married into the banking family. They are the banking family. They don't need his money. In fact, he gets his money from them which is why they probably had a dozen meetings. He sought her help with staffing and furnishings, as well as discussed business deals with her, according to the documents. In September 2013, Epstein asked Mrs. de Rothschild in an email for help finding a new assistant, female, multilingual, organized. I'll ask around, Mrs. de Rothschild emailed back. So he wasn't helping her to staff. She was helping him to staff. It's very interesting. Uh, she had bought nearly 1 million of auction items on Epstein's behalf. So she was a beard for him. 2014, 2015, Mrs. De Rothschild, not to be confused with Lynn Forrester De Rothschild. This is not the same Rothschild. This is a different woman who had married into the same family. Was named chairwoman of the bank in January 2015. That October, she and Epstein negotiated a $25 million contract for Epstein's Southern Trust Company to provide, quote, risk analysis and the application and use of certain algorithms, end quote, for the bank, according to a proposal reviewed by the journal. In 2019, after Epstein was arrested, the bank said that Mrs. De Rothschild never met with Epstein and it had no business links with him. It's funny, right? When Kanye, you know, is working with the bank, the banks drop him. When Epstein's working with the bank, they just give they, more banks work with them, right? 
Now it continues on. There's a lot to this article, but the fact that people are looking at his calendar makes me think what, what was taken out of the calendar <laughs> while everyone's looking at what was released, what wasn't released. And is there other things that could be released? That would be a lot more enlightening. Here's the whole section on Chomsky. Uh, let's see. Mr. Ramo, who still sits on the board of FedEx and recently stepped down from Starbucks board, didn't respond to re requests for comment. A spokeswoman for Mr. Kissinger said he wasn't aware that Mr. Rama was meeting with Epstein. <laughs> Mr. Barack also met Epstein in 2015 with Mr. Chomsky, now 94, a linguistics professor. See, I said he was a cunning linguist and a political activist who has been critical of capitalism in the United States foreign policy. Mr. Chomsky and Epstein arranged the meeting with Mr. Barack for them to discuss, quote, Israel's policies with regard to the Palestinian issues and the international arena, end quote. Mr. Barack said he often met with Mr. Epstein on trips to New York and was introduced to people such as Mr. Ramo and Mr. Chomsky to discuss geopolitics or other topics. Quote, he often brought other interesting persons from art or culture, law or science, finance, diplomacy or philanthropy, Mr. Barack said. So it's, uh, it's quite a web these people weave when they didn't want to say fuck children to deceive but i had to i guess i had to finish the thought in 2020 interview with the dunk tank podcast mr chomsky said people he considered worse than epstein had don donated to mit like who hitler did he donate to mit he didn't mention any of his meetings with epstein mr chomsky told the journal that at the time of the meetings what was known about jeffrey epstein epstein was that he had been convicted of a crime and had served his sentence According to United States laws and norms, that yields a clean slate. MIT lawyers said investigating its ties to Epstein didn't find that Mr. Chomsky met with Epstein on its campus or received funding from him. Harvard declined to comment beyond the report it published on its Epstein ties. Harvard had so many uh, connections there, they had to publish the report. Mr. Nowak now said he regretted his role in fostering connection between Epstein and Harvard. He didn't respond to requests for comment. So there's a whole bunch of people in those four years that are turning up in this calendar and they're now receiving phone calls from places like who did this? The New York times, the wall street journal, wall street journal. So shame on you for not saying little St. John's yeah. Island three times wall street journal. <laughs> yeah. What a surprise <clears throat> in that same article. I just want to bring a little bit of context to that. Yes, please do. Tony. In that same article, it says here, it's going to make it bigger for everyone. Mrs. De Rothschild was named chairman of the bank in January 2015. That October, she and Epstein negotiated a $25 million contract for Epstein's Southern Trust Company to provide, quote, risk analysis and the application and use of certain algorithms, end quote, for the bank, according to a proposal reviewed by the journal. Now, it's interesting that it's mentioning this negotiated Southern... $25 million contract called Southern Trust because I was the, ask, then the is question is, what Whitney is Webb's Southern... book? Yeah. Yeah, there's and you a, just did the book club and you were going to. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know? Or do we have to look it up? Because I have. <clears> unfortunately, phones. I do know. And it's not like I wish I had my uh, book cam. Uh, it's a pretty interesting company. Which volume is it? Yeah. yeah go to volume two. Yeah. And page 370. Oh, uh, yeah. Bottom pair. It's the second paragraph from the bottom. And then I would read the second paragraph of the from the top of the next page. Because the that will give you that's the general grammar of Southern Trust and some of the logic behind why they set up a company the way they did. And 
Yeah, this mention about Southern Trust operating out of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Have you, ever, have you heard anything about the U.S. Virgin Islands going after The U.S. Epstein? Virgin Islands has that Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan case where they were funding Epstein, doesn't oh, it? Oh, that's curious. That's where that curious. woman's probably living with high degrees of anxiety and security right now. Yeah, anxiety and security, indeed. Let's see. Which part so of this that, page? Down here, right here that, Southern uh, Trust? Yep. So the right. second the second paragraph on the bottom there. Yeah, I got you. Not Let the very zoom. bottom, but that. I'm yeah. zooming in. Yeah, you got it. All right, so they're talking about different uh, cybernetics companies, uh, Dark Trace, other UK intelligence cybersecurity companies, Dark RB Trace, Foray, which is Israeli, as well. Dark Trace is UK, UK. Yep, yep. Yeah, Nicole Yunkerman, and then down here it ends with the uh, Southern Trust. So <clears throat> that these very <clears throat> that these very networks could would converge around valuable stores of personal health data is no accident, as the intelligence linked Epstein was also seeking to move into this space. Around the same time, he sought to rebrand as a tech investor. Now let's go up. Let's go up and see what time frame they're talking about. There's a reference to 2018 here. So this is within the realm of, of his calendar, most likely between 2012 and 2018. Mm-hmm. Yep. That he's doing this rebranding. Essentially trying right? to transition into the tech sector, right? So he's rebranding as a tech investor. Uh, Epstein would also... Uh, was also working to build up a company focused around, quote, DNA data mining, end quote. Created in 2012, Southern Trust was a, quote unquote, startup created by Epstein with the apparent goal of sequencing people's genomes and selling that data to the pharmaceutical industry, kind of like what they just did in COVID without your consent. Per reports, Southern Trust sought to create a, quote, Search engine capable of pinpointing genetic links to diseases, end quote, which they could also use to find genetic weaknesses and carry out eugenics campaigns. So it is interesting that Southern Trust is funded by this Rothschild woman, uh, Ariane de Rothschild, who was just cited in this Wall Street Journal article. Good pickup. It also right. goes on the state on the next page as quickly. Virgin Islands. Trust. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. I got this right here. Yeah. yeah. This is good. One. Right there. Yeah. Epstein also said of his vision for the company, quote, that I would like to have young people, I'm a teacher by heart, engaged early on, end quote, on his project. Epstein also spoke at length in testimony saying that he wanted to train young people to program and develop his company's algorithms, training them in the Virgin Islands. He also implied that he would one day be, uh, would be uh, able to tailor educational programs for those young people based on their sequenced genome. More then eugenics, go up, right? Go up two paragraphs and then read yeah, that one. Right here. Is that Southern Trust. Of, this yeah, is the way in which they wanted to do it. Yeah. So you can sort of hear their plan. So Southern Trust, which was funded by Ariane de Rothschild and the $25 million that we just learned from the Wall Street Journal. Now we're going into page 371 of Whitney Webb's uh, One Nation Under Blackmail, volume two. In 2012, the year Southern Trust was created, the uh, NOAC had developed mathematical models that described the behavior of colon cancer cells. Southern Trust specifically sought to gather DNA from residents of the U.S. Virgin Islands, where Southern Trust was based. This DNA collection would then be used to, quote, create a catalog of population-level genetics data, end quote. Then Southern Trust team would develop a search engine to assess that the data, uh, that data for links to diseases that Epstein once called, quote, biomedical, uh, a biomedical Google, end quote. The company then planned to create a, quote, virtual laboratory, end quote, to 
conduct experiments via computer models, as well as to produce computer-generated solutions for medical problems, like creating antidotes to uh, the chimera. You need the Bellerophon. If you're going to create the COVID, you need the uh, yep. mRNA shot. And the idea is within the context that he was seemingly was transitioning out, especially once after he got out of jail, from his traditional way of blackmailing to essentially doing um, blackmailing through... Uh, technology so in other words like she's putting it within this theme that he's sort of transitioning what his original um market was and the way he was carrying that out to making sure he gets he's investing in corporations in the tech sector that have to do with control of individual identity in this case genetics and he was obsessed with that because he knew that gave unprecedented power to him to continue sort of the the same leverage games he was playing with blackmailing politicians and and um corporate well, heads and so and here's forth. one more paragraph on his transitioning process sure uh the company also oddly planned to amass data for its proprietary search engine that would allow it to quote search for things on an individual basis both in the medical field and the financial field tony end quote that's right see that financial field southern trust was also described as planning to provide quote cutting edge consulting services to companies around the world lying in part upon the use of biomedical and financial information. It's almost like a social credit score system right there. That was Southern Trust seeking to correlate people's genetic data with their financial data. I think so, Whitney. I think so. All right. So that's just a little bit on, you know, something you could dig into from any of those pieces in the uh, Wall Street Journal article. Like you go back and get yourself some One Nation Under Blackmail volume two. As far as I'm concerned, the Wall Street Journal is now advertising for Whitney Webb. Well done. <laughs> well played, Whitney. Well, it's really, you know, Ariane de Rothschild, who's advertising through the Wall Street Journal for Whitney Webb by her association to Epstein. I'm glad it's a new Rothschild and not one of the usual suspects like mm-hmm. Evelyn or David or, uh, you know, any of the other ones that have been floating around. Uh, who's Seems the one? So Jacob new. is the one Luke Radowski did the up close video with. Sure. The in person confrontation with Jacob Rothschild. Yeah. And he's, he's like curious, the Mr. Burns yeah. character, so it comes all back to Homer Simpson. If you're paying <laughs> no, attention, it's all just Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> See Homer's predictions. I, I give up on that one. I give up on it, too. We could get it all into the ESG and the CEI yeah. and all the other BS that's going on out there. But uh, I think we got to move past that story. Because it's still developing. I'm not super excited about the calendar, but I am, you know, I do think it's good that some of this stuff is being put out there for discerning minds to to weigh in their consideration because Buckingham Palace called one of these American news stations that you call like your news, they called them and said, You can't talk about this Epstein Prince Andrew thing. And when the Buckingham Palace place can call into our country and get anything except a bird or a, a raspberry or something that you'd see in a Monty Python movie. I'm thinking like maybe we need to get a little more America up in here and a little less hail the queen or the king, or maybe he's transitioning too. I know he had to transition from, from prince into king. I don't know what that process entails, but there's probably some stuff in there that involves Bud Light for sure. All right. Stories before we go Bud to Lights. our interview tonight. Sacrifice. Um <laughs> It's like That's, it's like Budweiser commit seppuku, just, yeah. and then they're like, "Hey, can you help us put ourselves back together?" Hmm. Right? It's like Humpty Dumpty camp. You know, all the king's men couldn't put them back together again. So. There should be yeah, some Bud Light Humpty some Dumpty memes. Old nursery rhymes, right, or whatever. 
And uh, what's worth saying is uh, their former vice president of marketing that you got to see the clip sure. of, yeah. she went to all the best schools. She went to of Yale. Course. She went to Wharton. Like she's got a, like, look at her resume. That should be a successful person in our culture. And I'm going to ask you after being indoctrinated by those industri industrial schools, like why wasn't she successful? Cause they're no longer teaching success. They're teaching. Here's how we change people's people's culture from a freedom into collectivism by way of communism, communism straight up. Yep. We have a sound effect for that. There's something about the obviousness of that situation. Nothing but pure and simple old-fashioned communism. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Facts. Straight facts. Um, as far as stories to cover tonight, obviously Tucker Carlson. Um, it was the topic Tuesday night for the town hall. Wonderful town hall. We had an incredible discussion around it. Sort of Can you going say it like Donald Trump would say it? every possible. <laughs> It was the greatest town hall, the best ever. <laughs> a little bit of like Donald and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, that's funny, dude. If they had <laughs> a uh, Donald Schwarzenegger, that'd be a funny meme too. Donald Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Donald. <laughs> <laughs> that's the show, everybody. I heard always leave on a high note, so I, I thought that's about it. Get to the that's McDonald's. Get to the McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a tumor. <laughs> See, that works well with the McDonald's eating too. See, <laughs> Tucker, he seemed uh, really upset about being upset. let go by Fox. I saw like <clears throat> he was considering doing like a Thelma and Louise in his golf cart because that's how they cover it on the other side. Tucker attempts suicide with wife in golf cart, <laughs> riding without seat belts. Mm. <laughs> you know, going fast down the yeah the golf cart lane or whatever. Looks like yeah, he was so. having fun, you know? Well, he took away any, himself. like they, Putting it's like Rupert Murdoch week. was like, how would I hide Fox News from the rest of the world? And you just take away Tucker because no one else wants to watch no that. One yeah, no one wants I have now no it. excuse for having a Fox anything on this pro program. I agree. Occasionally he said some smart stuff I agreed with. We'll put a Fox clip in here, but that's it. Yeah. Otherwise we're making fun of that. And, and not just us, M many alternative media personalities were doing the same. They, he had a wide demographic. He was getting a lot of libertarians independents democrats republicans more uh, democrats larger democrat watched, a larger demographic under 40 as well sorry go ahead more democrats watched tucker carlson That's than correct. watched rachel maddow on msnbc <laughs> which is a liberal progressive only station and she's a Rhodes scholar which so that says a lot yeah it's true because i don't know did tucker graduate college did he finish his his uh his origin story, like his first job and stuff, he tells it at the at the Heritage Foundation dinner right after his last show last Friday. So you get to hear they gave him his first job and he wasn't very qualified. And then he just like kept at it and he kept getting a little promotion here and there and going to a different place. But he's worked at Fox, MSNBC, yeah. CNN. Yep. Like he's he's had a you know, he's worked at all these different companies and, uh, you know. He's an interesting character in the mix because he started to open up to Alex Jones's type of information or even Rogan's type of perspectives. But having a platform with the mainstream media where he was so popular that usually like what they did with Glenn Beck, they just pull the advertisers. Then his show goes. That was after having like you know, G. Edward Griffin on or talking about uh, the creature from Jekyll Island. It wasn't long after that. It wasn't immediately, but they started pulling advertisers. Advertisers are starting to pull from Tucker's show, but the problem is Tucker had the eight o'clock spot 
with 4 million tuning in yeah. every night almost. I mean, he was killing that. It was, he was just killing all other mainstream. So he just couldn't, he was able to fill enough advertisement that wasn't pharmaceutically related or otherwise or big oil or whatever. And, um, for that reason, yeah, so they it was had tough to just for advertisers. Dude, they couldn't just dicey. do the normal method of just cutting out the advertisers, which they've done for so many in the past. First off, the advertisers should uh, mm. put their cowboy pants on and cowboy up. You know, put their chaps on and cowboy up to the situation. Don't be such like babies. Like, are you sponsoring Fox or not? It doesn't shouldn't matter what time it airs, but that's how it works. So if they squeeze out mm, Tucker's advertisers, true. then they have an excuse to get rid of them. Just like if they can demonetize Matt Walsh, then the Daily Wire has to fire him according to the contracts, right? This is what yeah. people are do- doing. This against- is the point of what right. Steven says. It's Steven's like fifth generational warfare. Too, but yeah, it's exactly. like lawfare mixed in with... Well, the, what they've done is they weaponized the courts as well. So they're using yeah. these civil cases is a defamation case that they settled out of. That I'm not sure like how Dominion can win a case like that because defamation standards are usually very high in the court system. In other words, to prove that... Dominion's an internationalist globalist company, isn't I it? I know, I know. Right? That's, so I mean, it's like not an American... Right, yeah. I mean, that's almost like- a billion dollars. That's 782 million, whatever obnoxious number that was. So that's also paired against him. The fact he started speaking more truth to power... And and then Alex Jones, like, because the fact that he was getting such an eclectic demographic shows that he's essentially getting at the truth. And that's sort yeah, of yeah. what he alluded to during the Heritage speech, the Heritage Foundation. Well, it just seemed like, you know, all this stuff precipitated rapidly after the Dominion lawsuit. So Fox loses oh, a yeah, billion for dollars. Sure. January It's like shooting themselves in the foot. Boom. And so they're like, ah, oh, shit, shot myself in the foot. <laughs> shit. Let's shoot the other foot. Let's fire Tucker. Boom. Another billion dollars <laughs> lost. And now I let's mean, sell the company. Because I heard there's some we're just running out of business, I guess. I hope you guys had insurance on the thing, but I mean, that doesn't seem like smart business. And I didn't go to Wharton though, so I don't know. The thing about Tucker is he was a great bridge, especially since since his monologues in especially COVID. They just it wasn't just like once a week I'll tune in, it was like every night, every other night. I'd check it out to see if it was worthwhile because it oftentimes was worthwhile. And he was a bridge to family members, to friends, to between like. You know, our perspective, the research we've done and, and discussions and, and groups we participate in to sort of the more normie audience that hasn't considered a lot of these ideas. He's talking about the World Economic Forum, eats yeah. bugs, climate change, eats bugs, continuously pushing Klaus back called. against the Ukrainian war narrative. I called last week. She's like, Andrew Tate, Andrew Tatum right now. <laughs> and yeah, then AOC can much. take credit, right? Yeah, sure. um, yeah. Greta is the Andrew Tate as AOC is the Tucker. The platforming works. The platforming works. See, look how great it is. Yeah, so, we yeah. show the clip, but I don't need an extra side of. Uh, well, there's plenty. Right so now. I don't know if we want to go to that or if we want to say that for after. That's the big news, obviously, this week. There's other news. Um, over the uh, John Bound had some uplifting. Pedo feeding frenzy and Mayorkas is a sex trafficking kingpin. That sounds like fun. Yeah, we might have to keep those till till later. Otherwise, uh, part of the audience goes running for the hills Jeffrey right now. Jackson. We keep the, the heavy-duty stuff for the people who can hang out for it. Fauci you know. uses Dell Big Tree's pandemic talking points, cover for his ass, as well as unvaxxed, get their jobs back. Jimmy Dore's COVID tinnitus joke, validated by NBC, tinnitus. Well, um, I had I had an idea in mind, but then I lost it for a second, so I'm going to look for it. Comes back. Hmm. Greg Reese actually had an uplifting video about fear is the mind killer idea. Dude. Should we watch that before or after we watch the dancing robots that have turned into soldiers? I'm, I'm just looking here. I'll show the audience what we're looking at here. 
probably before uh, give people a tiny bit of hope you got some robots you got some eyes in the sky we can learn about later tonight elon losing it over ai uh majid nawaz that was interesting but that takes there's a lot to talk about with that story uh tucker not actually fired megan kelly yeah yep. there's a couple other ones with some dirty laundry selling a manifesto no, that didn't come out yet this story we're going to talk about after we uh, have our special guest and other ones that we can look at prior to that oh let's go to this clip um, rfk jr reflects on the assassination of jfk and rfk sure yeah. with aubrey marcus do it because uh that topic seems to keep coming up like uh, ron paul mentioned it on timcast a couple weeks ago there is another says, clip that also mentions the entire timeline what was i watching earlier today we said hold on because that's interesting because it seems like that's a big time oh it was uh greg reese rfk jr in the cia talking about the history of what happened with rfk jr's family and CIA involvement in the assassination of JFK. And he sort of breaks open the timeline as to... So that's also a good one. We should well, they're probably, Irish and the CIA is handled by the English. Any questions? That's the short suite of it. And the Irish are very high up. They used ranking. Joe... Joe I couldn't believe that they got Joe Kennedy as the ambassador to England back in the day, to the UK, to Great Britain. Because they, you know, they, these people don't get along. But they middle you know, might have also both funded the Third Reich just a little bit. So there's, you know, birds of a feather flock children together as the Epstein client list is showing you right there with Noam Chomsky and the crew on the Lolita Express. So uh, we can get into uh, the heavy duty stories after that, but let's let's do this short clip with uh, RFK Jr. It's about 10 minutes, and then we'll also take a look at uh, the breaking points announcement of the, the Tucker Carlson situation, and we'll cap off that iceberg as well. I wonder if, given your family history and the fact that your uncle and father, you know, they were assassinated in, in this and they stood for things and actually did pay the ultimate price in some regard. Now, I don't know what your personal beliefs on why that happened. Obviously, there's some new information that came out uh, about JFK that's and the collusion potentially with the CIA. There's some very interesting things that have happened beyond just the theories that are now emerging. But do you ever worry that you are actually physically in danger for what you're standing for now? Uh, the answer to that is I do not worry. Um, I, you know, my life is in God's hands and, um, and I, you know, I need to do what I, what I believe is the right thing to do and whatever the cause is. Um, and I also, you know, I think my father and uncle were both fatalistic. They both knew that, um, they were involved in a high risk, um, enterprise, and they believed that the stakes were high enough to justify their entry. And I think both of them believed that there were a lot worse things than dying. Mm. And they showed that repeatedly in their lives. You know, my uncle and father both, you know, volunteered for World War II, and, and my uncle really fought heroically. His brother was killed. Um, in a, essentially a suicide mission, his uh, brother-in-law 
with whom he was close. Billy Hardington was killed on the Maginot Line. He had many, many friends who put their lives at risk. And I think that whole generation believed that there were things that were a lot worse than death. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's important for all of us to to understand that. And one of those things is, uh, one of the things that would be worse than death would be losing our freedoms mm-hmm. and living like slaves. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole generation of Americans in 1776 who put their lives on the line in really what at that point was a lost cause. There is nobody in the world who believed that we were going to beat the biggest empire that, a, you know, a, a scraggly band of American colonists could be able to beat militarily the biggest empire in history of the world with the greatest fleet in history. And they put not only their lives on their line, their properties, their reputations, and because of their courage, we get to live in this country with a constitution, with free speech, with freedom of worship, you know, with property rights and all of the other rights and privileges that we have as Americans that, you know, at one point were really unique in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to remember that they were willing to sacrifice their lives for free speech, for the constitution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of a crime against them and their memory and a dishonor to that generation if we're willing today to give up our own free speech rights so easily. Yeah. You mentioned the word empire. And, of course, empire stretches back even before the Roman Empire. There's empire in the way that I look at it is it's a consciousness and the consciousness is control, absolute domination. It's elite emperors, kings, or rulers that control a large swath of the population, controlled by any means necessary, by force of violence or by force of thought. And it seems that we're in another position now in a different type of battle against also that same consciousness of empire. But that empire has spread seemingly globally as a global consciousness fueled by this kind of corporate collusion and political collusion. And it's now once again, a small band of heroes that potentially nobody thinks is going to win standing against this massive conglomerate of what you could collectively call capital E empire. And do you see the world in some similar light right now? I do. And, you know, I, I, um, and, and there's kind of two, uh, you know, kind of ways to reflect on your question. One is the role of America in the world, whether we are the model democracy or whether, you know, we are an empire that is um, forcing the adaptation of our values and, uh, and U.S. hegemony across the globe at the point of a gun. And from the beginning of our uh, existence as a nation, our greatest political leaders were cautioning us that America could not be an empire abroad and continue to be a democracy at home. Mm-hmm. That we would turn in that the the exertions of tra- of of supporting a military empire abroad would ultimately, by necessity, transform America's exemplary democracy into a surveillance state and security state at home. You know, John Quincy Adams said, Americans go not abroad 
in search of monsters to destroy. So from the beginning, and Dwight Eisenhower, Republican, in his most famous speech ever, and probably what today should be regarded as the most important speech in American history, um, warned against the domination of America by the military-industrial complex. And, they, you know, Teddy Roosevelt said, we, we will never be destroyed by a foreign enemy, that America's too big, that our borders are too secure, um, but uh, that our democracy would be subverted by malefactors of great wealth who would destroy it from within. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, then Eisenhower comes in, in 1960, three days before he handed the keys to the White House and the government over to my uncle. And he gives this speech where he warns America against the emergence of a military-industrial complex that would inexorably destroy all of our democratic institutions. And my uncle really spent three years of his presidency fighting his military intelligence apparatus to make sure that that didn't happen. And he mm-hmm. died in that endeavor. Um, my And, you know, then we, my uncle had steadfastly refused to, to put combat troops in Vietnam, despite mm-hmm. his entire, all of his advisors saying, you have to spend... You have to spend two hundred fifty send two hundred and fifty thousand American troops there, and he said, "I don't want to make this an American war. This is a Vietnamese war. We can support them." He sent sixteen thousand advisors who were not technically allowed to participate in combat, and he, uh, a month before he died, he ordered the removal of all U.S. troops from Vietnam, mm-hmm. and uh, and as soon as he died. President Johnson, you know, they staged this Tonkin Gulf um, the incident, which was a false flag incident, and they used that as a pretense to send 250,000, ultimately half a million men, combat troops to Vietnam, and they made it an American war. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my father then died trying to stop that war. He ran in 1968 specifically against the war and died in the endeavor. So I think, and they were part of a long line of American politicians going back to Hamilton and Madison and Adams and Washington, who said, we can't, you know, if we if we try to make ourselves the policemen of the world, it's not only going to drain our resources and beggar us and ruin our economy and hollow out the middle class, uh, but it also is going to destroy democracy at home. And that's the cost of war that we have to understand. Even when we go into, you know, apparently justifiable wars like the Ukraine, we have to understand that the cost of that is not just $111 billion that we send over there. But it's also ultimately a threat to American democracy, to the middle class, et cetera. So mm-hmm. that's kind of one answer to your question. The other one is that, um, it has been the ambition of every totalitarian regime in the history of mankind to exert total control over every aspect of human behavior, over not only our movements, our transactions, our, um, our organization, but also ultimately our speech and our thought and what we read in the past. None of those regimes has been able to manage that because they didn't simply did not have the technological capacity to 
uh, to control every aspect of human behavior, to control mm-hmm. what you were doing, what you were saying in your house, what your movements were, um, you know, even your sexual behavior they want to control. And But today, we have created this, uh, this wave of technology that now will give the next totalitarian regime the capacity to do exactly that. Uh, so they know where you are all the time through GPS technology for facial recognition. If you want to see what kind of the future is, look what's happening in China today. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to what he just unpacked there. Also, uh, I think he kind of brushed over it, but uh, Joe Kennedy Jr. died in Operation Aphrodite. That's the name of it. 1943. Uh, Joe Jr., was Joe Sr.'s eldest child. He was being groomed to be president. JFK was not supposed to be president, but his brother gets killed during the war. And it's an interesting circumstance. See, the United States soldier, Joe Kennedy Jr., went over and was hanging out with the British RAF, the Royal Air Force, and they put him on a remote control plane that's supposed to be uh, uh, a plane, a flying bomb that Joe Kennedy Jr. is supposed to jump out of and parachute out of, and then they remote control the flying bomb into the targets. I don't know if you ever heard of that because they never thought of using planes as weapons before. But uh, Joe Kennedy Jr. sadly dies because the plane blows up before he before he gets off. So accident in history, coincidence number one for this, uh, this line of stories. But there's a lot to unpack <clears throat> uh, about what took out his uncle, what took out his father. Like it wasn't like, you know, if... If JFK was killed by Oswald and Oswald got away and he killed RFK Jr., then I could say, yeah, it's like the the shark from Jaws and he follows the family and starts killing them off. Maybe I could understand that. But where it's like, it's Oswald and he's super fishy. And then RFK Jr., they say he's shot by Sirhan Sirhan. That's also super fishy when you dig into it, especially since uh, RFK was shot from behind. And he was shot in a way that Sirhan Sirhan couldn't have been responsible for the assassination. But the details, they don't matter. They don't matter. So what we have to do is zoom zoom out a little bit on this picture. Let's take a look at some books. These are all, the next three are by Hugh Wilford. He's a, he's a great author. Um, America's Great Game. The CIA's Secret Arabists and the Shaping of the Modern Middle East. So he's purporting in this book that the CIA went over and got friendly with the Arabs and grew some proxy forces that they could use to do their, their skullduggery, uh, no relation to anything that happened on nine uh, 11. But what Wilford, who I believe is a, a British citizen who he lives at leaves out is the way that CIA got this was MI six cultivated the Arabs. They made the Saudi Royal family and then they sold them off to Alan Dulles at CIA. Alan Dulles bought him by the way, from Kim Philby, who was the son of Sinjin Philby, who was the initial MI6 agent that went native and got in with the Saudis and made them royalty in the first place. So it took two generations for MI6 to grow the Arab fascists to sell them into the CIA network in the first place. So there's shortcomings to this book, yes, but it's still an excellent resource. Once you know MI6 is also involved, that's the big key that's not mentioned in any of these books, really. The next one by Hugh Wilford as well. Uh, The CIA the British left and the cold war calling the tune, basically saying that the British left and the CIA are running a cold war and that there's a bunch of stuff going on. So at least here he includes the British left, if not MI6 formally. And the last book by Hugh Wilford, this is published by Harvard university. You might've heard of them. It's called the mighty Wurlitzer, 
how the CIA played America. And again, it shows all these CIA machinations and how the CIA lied to America and overthrew all these countries, but conveniently leaves out the training of CIA operatives by MI6 in all of these uh, types of things. Uh, 1953, Operation Ajax, uh, the overthrow of Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran, which was uh, a British you know, uh, Iranian oil company, BP oil type of situation. They needed a yeah. new president. 1954, uh, Giacomo Arbenz, Guatemala, yeah, Guatemala CIA, Guatemala. MI6. Yeah. So there's a group of people who overthrow countries and they're from MI6 and CIA. They ran around in the 50s, had a great time to their extent. Then the people who killed Kennedy, it's definitely not this group of people that's been doing all this stuff. It's is a different Hugh, group of people. It's it's Oswald is what they tell you. Is right? Hugh, is Hugh War, Wilford uh, an American author? Or no, a he's British a British author. author. Is he a British author? Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he speaks with the the accent of the queen. I mean, that's a so, classic book. I have that, obviously. Um, a lot of Vedmore's inspiration for his revelations in regards to Kissinger being recruited from that CIA-sponsored program in 1968 when it comes to you know, young global leaders and sort of the initiative for that. And he got a lot of that from the Mighty Wurlitzer. There's a whole section of that in the back. Yeah. So it's a very powerful sort of expose, of course, of the CIA. But to your point, the big neglected aspect is sort of where he stops with his history. He doesn't go back far enough to sort of give the revelations of how this network actually was birthed. And, you know, yeah. And well, he's not telling into... you that Dulles is a kept man by MI6 since like the early 1900s. He's not telling you sure. that for sure. That would spoil or the whole JFK that or, assassination. Or, or, or that the MI6 designed a lot of these fascist groups and these like uh, intelligence networks long before the CIA ever came to be, you know, an actual organization, a thing. A thing. And the OSS then actually was designed by MI6 as well, which then became CIA. So, and then uh, this is, I just had this on my desk because it's going to play into the content of tonight, Palestine peace, not apartheid by Jimmy Carter. That's interesting, but I wanted to get to these, framed items here because these are the first time on the show documents and i'm willing to be believe or bet <clears throat> not a betting man usually but i'd bet uh 99 of the audience does not uh, have familiarity with these documents so as a for instance let me start here prior to john f kennedy being assassinated he saw fit to set up at least one secret base a secret military base that the United States Congress, the Senate, the good people of America had no awareness of. This came to light in the 1970s. So I'm going to show you the facts of that claim, which seems, whoa, that seems pretty far out. Um, in the midst of the secret base, before, like after it was created and before it was disclosed to the public, there was a famous event that went on within proximity of this secret base. It was called the USS Liberty Incident. And the USS Liberty was uh, basically an NSA and MI6 communications ship, and it was sailing up and down the coast of Africa and had a regular schedule and was a known ship in the area. And during the Israeli-Egyptian Six Days War back in 1967, the United States Liberty was attacked. And if you examine the evidence, it was not attacked by accident. There has never been a, a, an adjudication of this matter that uh, was forthright. The men who have survived are still looking for justice. They're seeking for people to understand the facts. Now, naysayers on the other side, they would uh, <clears throat> they would start with something like the claims addressed in this document. 
So there have been 13 investigations and this issue has put the rest and you're a conspiracy theorist for even looking into it. But if you go to the USS Liberty inquiry, refuting the unofficial Israeli arguments, the 13 investigations have concluded that the attack was a mistake. So that's the official claim. So there's a myth of these 13 investigations and then going down through these investigations, you start to see patterns build up. Many of these patterns involve the CIA that we were just talking about, that same group of uh, skullduggery. And I'm not just making a skull and bones uh, reference there. They get up to no good. And uh, they also being involved with this incident is very interesting, but there's other nation states also involved. Uh, it's the United States, it's Israel, and it's Great Britain in between because Great Britain has access to through the special agreement to our communications ship and had people on board who instantaneously would have had to let their ally Egypt know about the Israelis impending uh, impending attack, right? This is the attack that was coming. So there's a lot to that. There's uh, literature to be read, reports to be looked at, these sort of things. But I'll show you the, the documents of the base, which start with this. Let's go to the New York Times. July 28th, 1970, the Senate unit finds the United States has a secret base in Morocco for Navy communications. July 27th, the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee has discovered that when the United States withdrew its military forces uh, in Morocco in 1963, it entered into a private arrangement with the Moroccan government to retain a large naval communications center. City uh, Yahira, City uh, Yahia. I think it's pronounced, uh, some 50 miles south, uh, northeast of Rabat, this is in uh, Morocco on the west coast of Africa, uh, has been kept secret by the Pentagon and State Department for seven years as part of an understanding with the Moroccan government. <clears throat> Official sources acknowledged that the Navy was operating a communications center near City Yahia, 1963, when the United States was closing its bases in Morocco. And I'll show you the Kennedy reference for his agreement to create a secret base in a second. The sources said that the communication station at City Yahia was designed to service the Sixth Fleet, stationed in the Mediterranean. Oh, that's where the USS Liberty was attacked. Uh, while, uh, uh, let's see, while commissioned in the Mediterranean, while the communications facilities at Rota, Spain, provide support for ships operating near the base. Now, this is the next document. <clears throat> This is a memorandum. And what's the law around senators and congressmen being aware of all bases? Well, I don't know. Around the world. Maybe we'll learn more from reading this behind the scenes document mm -hmm. here. This is a four page memo to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, declassified 29th of August, 1972. Secretary of Defense to the memorandum to the Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. Um, I'm aware that some of our activities and military presence is directly associated with the oral agreement with King Hassan in 1963 concerning base management and telecommunications training. So they pulled their bases out and then they kept one comm station or a special comm station there and they kept it secret, which I think is interesting as this secret communications sniffing base type of place was open during USS Liberties. And sure. so you could probably find out if it was an accident or on purpose right. from this type of content Absolutely. and this research. Right. I would also like to communicate. Uh, uh, I would also like you to examine the impact of the fleet satellite communication system 
and on our continued need for communication sites at City Yahia and Bucanao, uh, reorient, reorienting these facilities by remote keying. And then there's, uh, I think there's one more page to, oh, here's page two. Now this part isn't declassified until September 6, 2007. U.S. military involvement. We have about 1,350 DOD personnel, mostly Navy and Marines, and 1,500 dependents located in Morocco at the Kenitra complex that includes the Moroccan Air Facility, 597 U.S. personnel, and two outlying communication sites at City Yahia and Bukendel. The Navy communication station serves as the master station for the area. Huh, how about that, Tony? You think the master communication station gets some USS Liberty uh, uh, SOSs? Um, yeah. Right? I would imagine they would hear something. And I've been in communication with them before that tragic event even. Or if they were ordered itself. to cut it off and not service, they would be the ones to say. Or confuse, them, confuse the signals. Yeah, cut it off. Exactly. Uh, controlling information. So here's what they do. They're the master command station for the area, controlling and coordinating all so not to some shore. like random satellite. They're the master control. I think right. That's they, a, yeah. they control all ship to shore communications with U.S. naval forces operating in the Mediterranean. Yeah, so it's massive. Our presence in Morocco was uh, was covered by an oral understanding between President Kennedy. This is JFK, not the future one. And King Hassan in 1963, where it was agreed that we could continue to utilize our communications facilities in exchange for our putting Kenitra under Moroccan command. So making them feel like they're in control, maintaining the same level of operation expenditures. They wanted us to keep training their people, training Moroccans in base management and telecommunications so that the Americans go, can go home. And the sites of the U.S. communications facilities at City Yahia and Bukendel were not Moroccanized. Interesting. Hmm. Now, I'd like to go to a clip that I dropped in. Well, actually, I could drop it again to you, LD. It's uh, my USS Liberty interview with the only Marine to survive the event who worked in the secure communications room and had access to all the top secret stuff that was going on. And he can tell you what kind of linguist, because he's a linguist, he can tell you what other cunning linguists might have been on board. And who might have been the inside people on the job? Because there was there was something like there that happened. Been an MI, well. June 7th and 8th, mm -hmm. 1967. There's something to happen. So this is a long interview that I shot several years ago. Uh, it goes on probably two hours. It's with the only Marine to survive the attack. He has a, a copious amount of description and he has some emotional feelings of uh, later disclosed in the, the documentary film um, because this has not been adjudicated properly. There have been a number of investigations. They've all been undermined. Why can't the people who experienced the event realize justice? The United States USS Liberty is one of the most highly decorated crews in American naval history because the U.S. government attempted to bribe them and buy their silence by giving them shiny ribbons and congressional medals of honor while not doing justice to the people that were sacrificed in this not friendly fire event, a purposeful attack by a nation state that considers themselves a good, you know, good ally. Ron DeSantis just went over there to get the, the hate, the hate speech bill passed. We're going to cover that later. 
But this, you know, from where I come from, allies don't attack each other. There's, you know, your friends aren't supposed to attack you. They're supposed to give you a call and a heads up. Hey, move your ship. We're doing some stuff. Not come in and strafe the life rafts, not use torpedoes, not use 30 and 40 millimeter cannons from unmarked planes, right? There's a whole bunch of evidence on this topic that people don't want you to know for some reason. I don't know. Maybe they're getting paid off to keep it quiet. I don't know. Maybe they got some vested interest. Maybe they're being blackmailed. But there's a bigger picture to these events than has ever been disclosed in United States history. And I don't know. At some point, future's going to figure out what's going on. The, the truth will out, as it was said. So, um, LD, if you have that link, or do I still need to send it to you? Did you find it? I've got it pulled up. All right, cool. Before we can go um, out of this clip and into the interview, I want to pick up the David Attenborough clip next. But right now we want to go to like, let's just jump 30 minutes into the interview. Uh, at this point, the United States Liberty is under attack and the attack continues over like a 24-hour period. So he's going to be in the midst of telling you a story. He's already been near where the torpedo hit he's like in the midst of getting knocked around and trying to rescue people it's like the day after that he starts being able to put together what was happening from talking to people who were above deck because he was down in the uh cryptography quarters preparing to scuttle their machines and their intel research from their signals intelligence efforts so uh let's jump in and then we'll give you the source link if you want to hear the whole interview i would highly recommend it because you know He's the only Marine to survive the event. It's got like 4,000 views on YouTube. Like YouTube doesn't really want you to find this video. So I would appreciate if you took a few, few moments of your life to hear what somebody who survived that horrific event has to say, because it might be enlightening to what's going on today. Let's check it out. Came over fully loaded with troops armed with automatic weapons, hand grenades hanging off them. Some of the troops were had their feet out the door, resting on the skids to the helicopter. Um, and apparently by that time they had been recalled because of the acknowledged mayday. Um, they hovered for a while and then left. And uh, we were told that probably everything's going to be all right. And I don't remember exactly the series of events here, but Sometime after that, we heard more helicopter thump, thump, thump. Um, a helicopter had been sent out f with uh, the U.S. Naval Attaché aboard it. And uh, we didn't know. We, we, we thought we were under attack again. Um, the Naval Attaché dropped a brown paper back on the folks of the ship. There was blood and gore everywhere up there. We had two gun tubs up in the forks of the ship, one on each side, port and starboard, 50 caliber machine gun. There were uh, two sailors that manned those guns. In the first air raid, there was a uh, steel shield that went around there that kept those fellows in heavy seas trying to defend the ship kept them from being swept overboard in a heavy sea. The rockets had struck that shield and then the gunners. The next morning when I went topside, that whole front part of the ship was red, running with blood. 
there were human body parts lying everywhere. The sack that the naval attache, his name was Ernst Castle, Navy commander. The sack that he dropped on the deck was weighted down with an orange and had his business card in it. Commander Ernst B. Castle, U.S. Navy, U.S. Naval Attaché, Tel Aviv, Israel. It landed right next to a severed leg that still had the boot on it. And on the back part of the card, it said, have you casualties? Well, excuse me, it was pretty obvious. Um, someone picked that sack up and carried it to the captain. The captain looked at his card, and I understand that he stuck his head out the door and popped the social finger at the helicopter. Uh, the helicopter left. Um, we were trying to recover. I was taken to the uh, Mesdex area. I was uh, trying to do my best to help those that were wounded more seriously than I was. Our executive officer, uh, Commander Armstrong, um, Lieutenant Commander Armstrong, had taken a piece of shrapnel up through his side and uh, was bleeding rather profusely. Well, I had the same blood type as he did, so I got a hold of Dr. Kiefer, our ship surgeon. I said, uh, how about let me give blood for Commander Armstrong? And he shook his head no, and I was a, a little angered. I said, this man's dying, so I can give, I, I can give blood. I gave him blood before, and a Navy chief by the name of Joe Bankert came over and said, Sarge, you've done enough. I said, come with me. He took me over to uh, another part of the mess deck area and there was a mattress laid out in the deck and he sat me down and uh, a friend of mine, Bing Bingham, who'd been a former Marine, came over and brought a, a canteen mug that had coffee in it and apparently had something else in there with it because whatever it was, it knocked me out. Um, the next morning when I woke up, Bing Bingham standing over me again and he said, Sarge, this one's okay. So you can drink this. It was another cup of coffee. And uh, I wanted to see the damage. He said, he, Bing told me then that it was the Israelis that had done it. They were using unmarked aircraft, which is a violation of international law. They were jamming our distress frequencies. That's a violation of international law. They machine gun our life rafts. That's a violation of international law. We didn't find out until much later, the Israelis, it was pretty well public knowledge that the Israelis had captured the morning of June 8th an entire Egyptian brigade, somewhere in excess of 850 individuals. There had been a tacit agreement between the Lyndon Johnson administration and the Israeli government not to attack the Golan Heights Golan Heights was controlled by Syria. Syria was being supplied by the Soviet Union. Indeed, there were Soviet troops there advising the Syrian troops on Golan Heights. I understood that there was um, an agreement between the Israelis to be very generous toward the Syrian commanding officer of those troops. And on the morning of June the 9th, after Liberty was out of the way, he had ordered his troops to pull back. And Israel on June the 9th attacked Golan Heights and easily took it. 
it's rather ironic that just about a year ago I was giving a lecture at a VFW Hall in Olathe, Kansas to a group of people that were advocating for peace in the Middle East and there was a Syrian naturalized citizen there. When I related about the Syrian troops being ordered to be pulled back and the commander being paid rather handsomely by the Israelis, this man's arm shot up and he said, my name is Fadi Banyomarja. My uncle was an officer in the Syrian army and what you say is true. The Israeli troops which were guarding the Egyptian prisoners of war were needed for the attack on Golan Heights. On the morning of June the 8th, this entire Egyptian brigade was forced to dig their own graves and then brutally murdered by the Israelis. Many of them had their hands tied behind their backs with barbed wire. Folks, we're talking about a very serious violation of international law here. I think the year was 1986. I picked up a copy of the Springfield, Missouri newsletter. Buried on the inside was a tiny article about those Egyptian troops being brutally murdered by the Israelis. The individuals who blew the whistle were two Israeli journalists, one from Israel television and the other from an Israeli newspaper. When we talk about fake news, there is definitely, folks, a need for news people that are interested in digging and finding out the facts. So those Israeli muckrakers, their story made it into the Springfield newspaper. Yes, I think the year was 1986. And it wasn't widely covered or publicized elsewhere? Uh, I understand there was an article in the uh, New York newspaper, uh, but that was also buried on the inside. Uh, I have a copy of the article that I cut out of the Springfield news, newsletter. So let me just frame out what you've described thus far. You were 27 years old. You had a wife and three kids. You weren't stationed permanently on the Liberty. You were in Rota, Spain. So you get, uh, you get some mission orders. You go on the ship. You need some clothes. You're getting familiar with that ship. Was it similar to any other ship that you had been on? Or did you have to learn new passage layouts and general quarters drill? You know, This was my first time aboard ship period. OK. Uh, because you're a linguist, so you had served uh, on my, my duty stations prior to that had all been land bases. Uh, my, uh, pretty much my entire first four years in the Marine Corps spent going to school, so Manual Morse Code, then uh, Army Language School at Presidio Monterey, California for Russian language. That was a year school. Uh, then I was sent to Fort Evans in Massachusetts to uh, communications intelligence school there where we did processing and reporting, how to process and report the information that you have found out. And um, my home base was actually second radio company at Camp Geiger, North Carolina. Uh, in February of 1963, this was about the time the uh, intelligence fleet was being designed and put together. 
uh, I was sent with a, a, a group of some other Marines to Fort Meade, Maryland. That's we, the NSA? Yes, National Security Agency, right. <clears throat> we were studying a sub-Saharan African problem, and that was these countries, which I'd mentioned earlier, had just won their independence. Uh, I, th I think the plan was to uh, parachute us into the Congo and set up a listening post in the Congo. Apparently that never materialized because within just a matter of a few weeks of uh, finishing our uh, indoctrination at NAS NSA headquarters and returning back to Camp Geiger, we were all split up. Our uh, lieutenant in charge was sent to Vietnam. I got orders to uh, Edsel, Scotland. I was two years in Edsel, Scotland then transferred to uh, Karamasel, Turkey. Uh, I was at Karamasel for about seven or eight months. These are all listening stations? Yes, yes. And uh, then in uh, December of 1965, our entire Marine outfit at Karamasel, Turkey was transferred to Bremerhaven, Germany. In 1967, I was on temporary duty with these two other Russian linguists to VQ2. Um, the Aerial Reconnaissance Unit in Rota, Spain, and then again transferred for temporary duty aboard the USS Liberty. So you're a Russian linguist. Yes. It's the Cold War. Yes. You're on a naval ship that has been outfitted or re-outfitted with the latest in surveillance technology on the planet. It's NSA equipment on a Navy ship, and you're a Marine. You're helping to accomplish the mission. The mission, they had been sailing up and down the coast of Spain, or a coast of Africa, for three years, right? It's not like they took a ship from Indonesia coverage and put it over here by Africa. This is a known ship. It sails around, it has these antennas, right? It's a, it's a known known in that area. You don't have any Hebrew li linguists, but you have Arabic linguists, you have Russian linguists, because that's, that's who you're, you're targeting. So even though you're a spy ship in international waters, it's well known that you're a spy ship in international waters and that you're only spying on, on enemies, not allies. That's correct. I should probably inter interject here. Just shortly before the torpedo struck, <clears throat> my relief for my, I was a watch section voice intercept supervisor aboard Liberty. I had uh, three sailors that worked for me. They were Spanish, Portuguese, and French capable linguists. And uh, the two Marines on day watches also had civilian advisor Al Blue to my watch section, which were all Arabic linguists. Uh, just shortly before the torpedo struck, my watch section relief named uh, CT-1 Ibrancher by the name of Jim Lupton. His home base was in Karamasel, Turkey, and I had known Jim when we were stationed at Turkey. Jim was the president of the scuba diving club at Caramarcel, and I had made some inquiries about getting scuba qualified while I was there, but it turned out that we were packed up and sent to Bremerhaven, and so it was quite a surprise when I got aboard the ship, and Jim and I became pretty good friends. Uh, just shortly before the torpedo struck, Jim came running into the coordinating spaces where I was, and said, hey, Sarge, I got him, I got him. And he still had his earphones around his neck. And I said, you got who, Jim? He said, the Ruskies. And I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, man, plain language. And he went running back into wow. the voice intercept section area when the torpedo struck and killed him. So at the time the torpedo struck the Liberty, the Russians were sending messages in the clear that you guys were hearing? Yes. Where did the torpedo come from? 
there were three motor torpedo boats that were using a classic wedge formation. Uh, actually, I did not know they were Israelis until the next day. It was my understanding that all the aircraft, I was below decks throughout the entire attack or inside the ship throughout the entire attack, but it was my understanding from the fellows that were there that they were using unmarked aircraft, but when the torpedo boats attacked, they were flying a Star of David. One of our naval officers that was topside was Jewish. I don't recall his name, but I understand when he saw the Star of David on the torpedo boats, he burst into tears. Captain McGonagall, at this point, what type of injuries has he sustained? Uh, Captain McGonagall had taken a piece of shrapnel in his thigh. He had been bleeding rather profusely, and he had lost quite a bit of blood, but he refused to leave his station. I became pretty good friends with Dr. Richard Kiefer years later, and Dr. Kiefer told me in 2009, he said, I could have and probably should have relieved the captain of his duties. He was occasionally slipping in and out of semi-consciousness, and he probably should have relieved him. Uh, I don't know whether I should say this or not, but one of the other officers told me that Captain McGonagall had said, let's run our ground and abandon ship. The officer that told me that later became, uh, he, he didn't get along just real well with Captain McGonagall. His name was, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I just slipped my mind, but uh, <clears throat> he, the captain pretty well ruined his future career when I eventually got back to my home base in Bremerhaven, my Marine commanding officer assigned me to duty NCO, non-commissioned officer, one night. And uh, I had to go check in with the officer of the day. His, his name was Lloyd Painter. He was a Lieutenant JG. He had been an ensign aboard during the attack, but he'd been promoted to Lieutenant JG. And he was the officer of the day. So I go into his office space and there's Mr. Painter's sitting in there with his jacket all unbuttoned and his tie loose and his feet propped up on the desk. He says, hey, Sarge, good to see you. Mr. Painter got out of the Navy and went to, week, went to work for uh, the Secret Service. Quite some years later, he's part of the presidential advance party in New York City. Mr. Painter is on an elevator car with a fully automatic weapon, and Moshe Dayan gets in the same car. Mr. Painter told me later, he said, I thought about it. Moshe Dayan was the Prime Minister of Israel during this period? Uh, he was the head of the Soviet military forces, and we found out later that it was, actually we have a document that was later released under the Freedom of Information Act that it was Moshe Dayan who had ordered the attack on our ship over the objections of both the Prime Minister of Israel and the Foreign right. Thank Minister. You. Thank you for the correction. During this time, LBJ is president. The USS Liberty is part of the Sixth Fleet. It's, there's a lot going on in the Sixth Actually, Fleet. Actually, she was only part of the Sixth Fleet for communication purposes. She was operating independently. And were there any other US ships or US airplanes in the area? 
it was my understanding sometime later that both the Air Force and the Navy had uh, spy planes overhead and the transmissions between the attacking Israeli pilots and their ground control station were intercepted by both the Naval Reconnaissance Air and the Air Force Reconnaissance Air. I've noticed a lot of parallels between the attacks that were suffered in Benghazi at the Libyan uh, American Embassy in Libya and its uh, auxiliary units, insofar as calling for help, help being available, but the rank and you know the the hierarchy is is denying it. Is there anything in the in the case of the USS Liberty where United States military personnel could have been brought to bear to help the situation, help alleviate the situation, and were told to stand down? Um. Liberty had requested a destroyer escort, and Com 6 Fleet, I believe that would have been Admiral Bill Martin, told us that you are a clearly marked ship sailing in international waters. Your mission is pretty well known. There's no need for any escort. The nearest ships were some 400 nautical miles away, which was the 6th Fleet. Um, Commander Lewis's wounds were very similar to mine. I was facing the torpedo when it struck, and my glasses protected my eyes. My face was a mess. It was flash burn. Commander Lewis was perpendicular to the torpedo explosion, and um, debris from the explosion went underneath his glasses and sealed his eyes shut. It's rather ironic that he was rather badly wounded and wrapped in bandages and um, winched aboard the rescue helicopter the next morning in a basket. And the Navy guy that winched him aboard couldn't tell which end was which and sat on his face. And Commander Lewis said sometime later, said, how ironic, here I survive a torpedo explosion and die of suffocation with a sailor sitting on my face. <laughs> Uh, we were both aboard the Carrier America, and I was given pretty much free reign of the ship. I happened to be in the passageway outside the optical shop when Commander Lewis's eyes were freed. And uh, he had his back to me, and he was reading an eye chart while a corpsman was telling him what to do. And I stood in the doorway patiently until he finished reading a chart. He turned around and saw me there, and he said, Sarge, how good to see you, and grabbed my hand, just gave me a strong handshake. Go ahead, pause it, please. So there's a lot more to the answer of yes, the United States government knew, and LBJ pulled, uh, pulled back the wings, called back the air support, called back any help that could have. So it's very similar to the what's become known as uh, 13 hours at Benghazi. They made a Hollywood film about that situation. Because likewise... They could have saved uh, that uh, installation and the personnel, but they chose not to because they said uh, they've got a political narrative they're trying to unfold, and how dare you call to save soldiers? They are expendable, according to the people and government who send them out to do these jobs and then don't send them cover. So Sixth Fleet Communications clearly knew. It was a clearly marked American ship, and the claim that it's a mistake is disingenuous to the soldiers alive and dead, the sailors alive and dead because there was a mixture of both on those ships and it's it's a real problem it's it's right next to mlk 
RFK, JFK, Malcolm X, and these other political agendas that got people killed. There's USS Pueblo, which is just like USS Liberty, only you know it's it's a little bit later and kicks off the Vietnam War. So these types of incidents where they send them out without protection, they asked for a destroyer escort. No, you don't need it. Go into the, you know, go far away by yourself and you'll be fine. Our allies will take care of you. Well, they did. They took care of it. And I have not seen the pictures and I haven't been there, but there's a report that there's a museum in Israel that has pieces of those strafed life, life rafts, lifeboats intended to make sure that survivors didn't uh, go through the world asking for justice for the next 50 years. Tony, what'd you think of that? Did you learn anything new or have you seen that footage? I mean, I haven't seen it for a very long time. It's very compelling. Uh, Incredible interview you did with him and just the, you know, difficult to have to recall that type of story and what happened. But at the same time, you know, it paints a picture, especially geopolitically of what was going on at the time. And you can start to see, unfortunately, the same sort of nation states, uh, intelligence communities, their intelligence agencies working together. You know, this is 1967, right? So, like, when you look at like a, a book like Whitney Webb's book, and you see all this Mossad CIA integration with uh, organized crime, all of a sudden it begins to make a lot of sense because it began with elements like this actually with the even the you know instantiation of is israel as a nation state in 1947 48 somewhere in there so it's uh unfortunately there's a pattern with this sort of behavior and it goes back not only to this period but before this that bears itself out i was embarrassed that i thought moshe diane was a prime minister that was me getting caught uh you know because i i knew what he did from research, I hear I got you. It's right here. There you go. Okay. Moshe Diane. Because the, the point was that Secret Service guy was in the elevator with the guy who ordered the attack of the ship he was on that killed all his friends. Right? Like if, if I was in the Secret Service and I rode the, the elevator with Larry Silverstein, I might push that button and say, I got a couple questions. That's the type of situation he was referring to. Not that I would ever ride in elevators because I don't like that sort of thing. Moshe Dayan was an Israeli military leader and politician as commander of the Jerusalem front in the 1948 Arab Israeli war, chief of staff of the Israel defense forces from 1953 to 58 during the Suez 1956 uh, crisis, but mainly as defense minister during the six day war in 1967. That's the event we were just talking about. He became a world war worldwide fighting symbol for the new state of Israel. In the 1930s, Diane joined the Haganah, the pre-state Jewish defense force of mandatory Palestine. You see, we have an entry for that. I don't know who was behind the mandate of Palestine. We've never heard of that. He served in the special night squads under Ord Wingate during the Arab revolt in Palestine and later lost an eye in a raid on Vichy forces, that's French forces, uh, under in Lebanon during World War II. French forces that are under German control, I'm not sure. It's German, it was French area under German control, maybe. That's what that means. 
Diane was close to David Ben-Garion and joined him in leaving the Maple Party, uh, Maupal Party, and setting up the Rafi Party in 1965 with Shimon Perez. Diane became defense minister just before the 1967 Six-Day War. After the Yom Kippur War of 1973, during which Diane served as defense minister, he was blamed for the lack of preparedness, and it's uh, after some time he resigned. In 1977, following the election of Menachem Begin as prime minister, Diane was expelled from the Labor Party because he joined the Likud led the government now the Likud party that's an interesting uh influence on the what we call in america the neocon agenda the neoconservative agenda <clears throat> was based on the strauss leo strauss yeah leo strauss yeah. of the university of chicago and the Likud yeah. party ideas of the early 90s so the, that's moshe diane but when i went to my history blueprint i didn't find him in there because i haven't done much update on the uss liberty but i did find this document called the Baruch plan for world government. So I'm not sure where this is coming from, but uh, published back in 2001. Uh, interesting read if you consider such things, I'm sure, but I don't remember exactly what the specifics were. So we're going to move on from that. So Moshe Diane is mentioned uh, right there by the good sergeant. And it's a substantial uh, claim. Right. The uh, nation state that considers themselves our ally attacked us. However, I also think it's a substantial claim. To, if you're going to continue to say it's after 60 years, it was a mistake or an accident because that's my point. It's like it, it's a, it's a it's a piece in a long series of pieces within a puzzle that forms a pattern. Right. So like you begin to see the pattern. Is oh, it's going to the puzzle. Yeah. And like that's the thing. 1967, like they even just them. Golan Heights, man. The Golan LBJ Heights. LBJ said, right. "Don't touch it," and they touched it. And now we're going to see in a you know uh, a little bit yeah. tonight. We're going to see what they're doing there now, and who's doing right. it. And did they also end up in Epstein's calendar? That's the question. <laughs> so uh, happens. There's more. Hang than out just and see. You're not going to know. There. Yeah. Uh, yeah, might be some oil, some other things going on at the Golan Heights. All right, so we're going to shift out of USS Liberty mode. We'll come back to that topic with our special guest tonight. But let's go to. Um, Earlier this week, <clears throat> we were playing around with some of these new AI tools to see what they're all about. And a uh, good friend of the show, Joshua Hale, he he decided to take one of these applications and it gives you summaries of PDFs. And we thought, oh, that's great. That's very useful. And then there's the 11 labs where you can take people's voices and have them read things. So we thought, what better way to bring you this summary? I think it was generated in 2007, but it's a plan out till the year 2040. So it's the United Kingdom. British, uh, 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 British, uh, sorry, just the Great Britain's UK, U United Kingdom, uh, Ministry of Defense, the DCDC Strategic Trends Program, of which they have many issues. But I was just curious from the 2007 projection out to 2040, we're in the middle of that right now. Wouldn't it be great to have AI just find all that information in the document and tell us about the world we live in right now? What do we need to know in the mid 2020s? or in the early 2020s, right? So uh, we have this special report coming to you and we thought, you know, what what better way to bring you this British documentary type of information, but then, uh, you know, we wanted to find a familiar voice that'll make you feel real comfortable with the plan for your future that you didn't have anything to do with, but it's, uh, you're not elected rulers or responsible for what follows. Go ahead and play that LD and uh, let's sit back and feel relaxed like we're watching the BBC.
Global Strategic Trends is a report that provides a comprehensive view of the future based on trends and drivers. As residents of the United States in 2023, it is important to be aware of the following trends. The U.S. will remain a center of innovation, economic opportunity, and populist culture, which will be attractive to both states and individuals seeking support and partnership. The U.S. population is expected to grow robustly and have less significant demographic aging compared to continental Europe, Russia, and Japan, which will help underpin U.S. economic performance and maintain U.S. influence and leadership in the context of contemporary powers. The locus of global power will move away from the U.S. and Europe towards Asia, resulting in a period of instability in international relations and the possibility of intense competition between major powers. The U.S. is likely to lose her hegemonic status as rising powers enjoy more rapid economic growth and close the technology gap in military capability. However, the U.S. economy and military will remain amongst the world's strongest and may be particularly adept in exploiting emergent technologies that could drive an economic resurgence. The incidence of armed conflict is likely to increase out to 2040, and the struggle to establish an effective system of global governance capable of responding to global challenges will be a central theme of the era. Grievance, nationalism, far-right ideologies, and influential religiously and philosophically inspired ideologies may result in a revival of communism, especially if it evolves and dissociates itself from the failures of the Soviet Union. The US-led liberal model, known as the Washington Consensus, constructed around the institutions and policies of the Western powers, has been the dominant global model, especially since the end of the Cold War. However, this model is likely to be unattractive to governments struggling with the adverse impact of poverty, climate change and global inequality, especially where ruling elites fear loss of political power. These states, especially in developing economies, are likely to adopt alternative models. Increased competition and confrontation may range from opposing U.S. diplomatic and trade initiatives to asymmetric attacks from ideologically opposed state and non-state actors. It sounds so much better coming from uh, a voice like that, doesn't it? Much more soothing. I'm just showing that yeah. there's the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense planning out America's future out to 2040. Just in case anyone's paying attention to the themes laid out in this podcast, I thought it might be more palatable. And somebody who has a sir, I don't know if he has a sir before his name. I'm not even going to say his name because we don't want to get, we don't want to get with them right now. But I do want to show you this real quick. Remember how we were talking about the Jeffrey Epstein Wall Street Journal story? Sure. Yeah. Well, I was bored. So I asked Joshua, I said, Hey, could you ask chat GPT for a couple of Epstein, Epstein Chomsky jokes specifically? Cause oh, the, the, the language model is not supposed to have current context, right? It's supposed to be like frozen. So I, it, it should claim in my theory, it doesn't know anything about, it. I don't know what, I don't know how to connect these two things together, but that's not what happened. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to read these and go ahead, put the uh, wall street journal up there on screen LD. Cause then, then people can tie it together at home. Uh, let's see, did I push the button? There we go. <clears throat> you know what they say about Epstein and Chomsky birds of a feather flock together. Although in this case, the birds are more like vultures. So that's not bad chat GPT. Let's see what this next one sounds like. Why did Epstein invite Chomsky on his plane? He was hoping to get some tips on how to keep his victims quiet. Mm. 
Okay. Well, that's mm-hmm. almost, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between Epstein and Chomsky? One's a convicted sex offender and the other's a respected scholar, but I forget which is which. <laughs> oh shit. Oh, Canadians could wow. be in trouble. Wow. Interesting. I heard Epstein okay. and Chomsky were planning to start a book club. Their first book on their list, 50 Shades of Gray Areas and Moral Philosophy. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. All right. This last one's a little bit That's creepy, but this is Chat GPT era right now. Did you hear about the time Epstein tried to impress Chomsky by showing him his collection of rare books? Chomsky took one look at them and said, Sorry, I only read books that haven't been stained with blood. All right, that's it for uh, chat GPT jokes by uh, about Epstein and Chomsky. Not bad. That's not bad. bad. And, and further proof for this exhibit in court that it's a comedy show. It's a comedy show. And now we're using the AI for the comedy part. Because it's funny. You definitely don't use the comedy as a shield. Don't not use the comedy as a shield. First Amendment is not a weapon. All right, so we've got those laid out for you. You guys have had some yuck, yuck, yucks. Uh, <laughs> now we can go to something more serious. Something like that. We're going to step up. Now, keep in mind, this show's about long attention spans. So if you've had enough RAM to understand what we've said since the beginning of the show, then you're going to be pleasantly surprised by the contents of the Deep State Encyclopedia by Really Graceful. So we did a pre-tape this week because usually when we're interviewing people who are parents, They're not going to stay up till the middle of the night, do an interview like this. They have stuff to do. So we did a pre-tape on Thursday. Uh, It's a really great informative hour. We go through this book, but not so exhaustively that you don't need to get it because I think it's a a really good reference and it's a good uh, coffee table starter conversation book. And it only takes like, you know, five, 10 minutes at a time. You can read right through this pretty easy. So LD, let's go ahead and roll that interview and then we'll come back. And I want to go to anomaly covering DeSantis going to Israel to pay the, uh, to uh, pass the hate speech laws and so on and so forth. And we'll see if we have any context setting history to learn in the next hour before that. Hang out. Stay tuned. We'll find out. Welcome back to Grand Theft World. Tonight's guest is an author, videographer, video maker, researcher, and uh, all around good person because the the this world needs a little more optimism. And in covering heavy topics, it's good to have a sense of humor. It's good to have a, a light touch so that we can pass this around without scaring people. And more recently, she has produced the Deep State Encyclopedia. I welcome to the show. Really graceful. Grace, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. This book was a, a really insightful read because it brought back a lot of topics that I haven't you know, looked at for a long time. And I really liked how it's not just an encyclopedia. It's almost like there's a theme to it that if you read all the entries, there's something more to be learned to this whole situation. And I'm really curious in, in some of these in- instances, I saw where there were some longer entries and that to me indicated you had a deeper interest in some of these entries in here. And uh, I'm really curious about how you came to these topics, because these are all off the beaten path for people, right? These are all outside what people know as normal reality. They would call them conspiracy theory. Sure. In fact, yes. that's a term that's even covered in here. So if it's not taught to us, we're automatically conditioned or indoctrinated to think of it as conspiracy theory. 
but mm-hmm. it remains only a theory until you start getting the who, what, where, when, why, and how of these things. And then you can start to see, oh, there's facts of conspiracy. And if you put the facts together, you can actually have a bigger understanding. So when in your life did you start becoming interested in these types of topics? And when did it later occur to you to organize them and put them out in such a useful book? So I started becoming interested in these topics when I left my corporate job. Uh, I worked in a cubicle in marketing for a long time, well, a couple of years out of grad school. And I did all kinds of video for professional sports, like commercial video for professional sports and stuff like that. So it freed up a lot of time eventually. And um, I only had a couple clients when I left and I started what things were going down. This was back in 2014. And we had all of the Black Lives Matter riots sort of emerging at that time. And I that's when I started really noticing these buses of people with these professional signage and t-shirts and everything um, conveniently located next to these pallets of bricks, pallets of water, everything like that. And um, I said, Wow, that seems orchestrated. And it and the news crew doesn't seem too totally concerned with it either. So um it's almost like it, a script rolling out. So that's how I found that my foray into all of this was really through Black Lives Matter and George Soros. So I had a YouTube channel before um I started doing conspiracy content, hidden history conspiracy, stuff like that. But I was doing a fashion internship in college where I would use my YouTube channel to sort of interview people on campus and say, you know, what are you wearing today? (laughs) And what's your outfit of the day and stuff like that. Kind of cringe um, looking back on it. But that material is still on there too, because it was all part of the journey, right? Um, But so I already had a YouTube channel established at that time. And it'd been a few years since I had posted on there because uh, I went back to, you know, working a normal job and not being in school and things like that. So my first video back was, who is George Soros? And that took about six months for it to be removed from YouTube. But in that time, um, <laughs> it was just, I opened up a can of worms. Like once you start looking, you can't look away from this. You you absolutely cannot. So I started compiling notes around that time, um, just links and things of that nature that uh, were of interest to me. And I would take down notes, take down links, catalog of all of this. And years later, when I'm trying to reference those links, I'm noticing these things aren't there anymore. Even like what people consider uh, valid media, you know, legacy media, They've taken down articles, especially on George Soros, by the way. Um, and so I began to wonder, oh, you know, maybe we do need to document some of this material off of the internet. We need to actually have it in print, um, something you can have in hand. So through my videos, through all of that, all the notes that I took, this was the Deep State Encyclopedia was basically a compilation of all those notes, all those things. And certainly some topics are a little longer than others. But um, yeah, George Soros was my entry to all of this. George Soros is a very interesting character in history. Let me see if I can push this button and see if I can find 
uh, I mean, just donating money around. He's an interesting guy. A lot of people don't catch the glimpse of who Soros is, though. Right? They just see he throws money around. But when you take into effect, like he put eighteen billion into his nonprofit, right? Yes. And then that's for you know, and it's all over. It's it's the Guardian. It's all the newspapers, L.A. Times, the New York Times. Everyone reported on this. He's given eighteen billion to pro democracy foundation. Pro democracy is not pro constitutional republic. It is antithetical. So he is an agent of he's an agent of chaos. An agent not, of chaos for sure. And look just at his the, background. Not just get smart sense either. Yeah. His background, even when he was 14 years old, he's actually Jewish, a Hungarian Jewish. He's from a Hungarian Jewish family. And during the um during the cost, he went with the Nazis to claim Jewish uh property. So he was essentially functioning as a Nazi himself in that measure. And um, he quoted it as one of the happiest times of his life, now, which that is used to very be, strange. It is very strange. And it used to be a very easily found clip on YouTube where you could find the 60 minutes episode where he says such mm-hmm. things. But now in the absence of those clips being easily refer- referenceable, people want to make it out like, oh, you're hating on George Soros and that's anti-Semitic right. talk and these sort of things. So I think it's really important in this age of censorship to have access to those resources. Because when people challenge that quote, they're like, he never said that. And then you he show them 60 that. minutes. They're like, oh, he said that. And he said it with a smile on his face. That is yes. really weird. And they don't want us to see this. They're systemized, systematically censoring these things so that people can't get a good understanding of George Soros and his overall plan for humanity. I mean, he considers himself a messiah. Like when you put that guy in, like, so if you do a little dossier on him, you can get his totality of what he's bringing to the table. There's logical Mm -hmm. positivism. There's cybernetics. There's a whole bunch of things that he's been influenced like and he's a channel and a gateway for these things so did you ever find out who gave soros his original funding you know what i did not i did not they censored who, it who who let's Tell see me. let me well let me see if i can find the reference for you uh gnomes of geneva no i'm gonna have to look it up for you so we're gonna i'm gonna take you to a browser here because <laughs> when you see how this works uh, this is a Washington Post article. We're going to try to find. We're going to try to find it. And it's called Gnomes of Geneva. <clears throat> and in there, they clearly state, let's see, see it on Monopedia. Oh, is it? Yeah, Gnomes. Let's see. Usually I'm able to find it. Oh, here it is. DeBoer Grave. Geneva's Gnomes uh, Global Dread. Now, this was a washington post article or washington times it's going to come up Mm -hmm. it's loading slowly because they have to take it from the archive now in this washington times article they disclose right down here in the second paragraph so this is from uh, a familiar last name (laughs) de borsgrave who's an interesting uh author himself he's a so this is a, a, a journalist last name geneva's gnomes global dread grotesque financial mismanagement could trigger unpredictable turmoil this is from 2011 so this isn't a long 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 time ago this is in the 1980s uh so 2011 
their Geneva counterparts in French-speaking Switzerland were more sophisticated, revealed in the company of uh, global wheeler dealers, and weren't afraid to speak their minds, albeit off-record. Such was George C. Carl Weiss, the brain behind Bank Privé, owned by the late Baron Edmund de Rothschild, his biggest claim to fame, George Soros, and the launch of his quantum fund in 1969. Now that, to me, seems substantial when talking about someone like Soros in the context yes. of these events. But even though it exists, they make it really hard to find. They obviously don't want people connecting those dots because mm-hmm. um, I was interviewing uh, the one of the authors of this book. His name is Jeff Steinberg. And in that meeting, we were talking about George Soros. And I said, you know, when you... There's another version of it, too. It's got a better subtitle. Um, when you were doing this work, what was the origin of Soros's funding? And he said, well, it was the Swiss Rothschilds. And I said, Jeff, I'm writing a multi-volume set of, on the Rothschilds. There's no Swiss Rothschilds. Said, uh, well, Swiss, Swiss Rothschilds. Usually right? it's uh, German or London French. banking, French. Yes. So he says, go home and look it up. Instead of giving me the answers, he's like, go home and look it up. So I come back and I found out that one of the French Rothschilds, they moved to Switzerland. They set up, it was Edmund de Rothschild, and uh, they sent up uh, Bank Privé and Edmund de Rothschild Bank and a whole bunch of other sorties, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're on the first steering committee of Bilderberg, like 1954 back then. And so it was like this unseen link that I had the five uh, five brothers that went out to the different you know, countries. And I knew they shut Germany down right before World War One, and they kind of transplanted into America. But the Swiss, it was just off my radar until like, I don't know, five years ago in that interview. And then I found there's this whole other lineage, which has operated beyond most people's scrutiny, because then they use a bunch of shell corporations and the Rothschilds yeah. themselves start making their own conglomerate corporations. And they don't all, all agree with each other. But in like, the colonization of Palestine since uh, since the 1800s. I mean, the first reports of them trying to take over Palestine is, uh, I mixed it up with East Palestine, look at that, was Uh-oh. 1829, <laughs> right yeah. there. Oh, so, wow. So there's a long, so there's 1829 and there's also 1835 uh, newspaper articles about colonization of Palestine. So- when you look at the longer history, there's an organized colonization project going on that now most Americans just wholeheartedly support because they were never taught the history. And when mm-hmm. when you're on the side of not the underdog, you have to question, like, why are we on the side, uh, the same side as the king of England? Like, didn't we right. fight against these people? And wasn't there? Didn't a we want our? Didn't we throw some tea in a harbor somewhere along the way? Should yeah. we dislike them? Should we break away entirely as a society? And yet we're on the same page as them, time after time, fighting yeah. wars with them. Yeah. So after George Soros, what, what did you? What was your next like big epiphany? Because that that's enough to get people wondering. But you know, and until you yeah. see more dots on the map, you don't feel the need to write an encyclopedia. Right, right. Well, of course, then I it, the year was 2016. It was the presidential election. Trump <laughs> Trump was the nominee. It was Hillary Clinton versus Trump. And of course, I fell into all the Pizzagate sort of stuff. And um that's a that's an incredible rabbit hole of a lot of sorted information, occultism, 
um, connections you wouldn't necessarily uh, find elsewhere. And the whole occult history of Washington, D.C., the the tunnels below Washington, D.C., um, the Franklin cover up and, yeah. um, you know, all, all the stuff going on down in the White House where you're having an existential crisis as you're reading all of this, putting it all together. And um, I reported on Pizzagate pretty frequently during that time. And I had all kinds of celebrities reach out to me saying, you don't need to be talking about this stuff. Um, Marina Abramovich is just an artist. Mm. Um, she's a stage artist. A lot of it is, um, it's just her art and she's expressing herself and it doesn't mean anything. And also her connections don't mean anything either. So I wouldn't fall on your sword here and um, keep reporting on it. <laughs> Crazy people just reaching out to me. Rosie O'Donnell was one of them who reached out to me and said that. So of course it made me want to look into it deeper. Yeah. And, um, and so at one point I had a lady who was very friendly um, in Washington, DC, and she would take, she would go into Comet Ping Pong and take video and pictures for me and tell me what was behind the curtain of this, that, and the other. And um, it was, it was in hindsight, you know, a little sketchy, a little, a little sketchy. I was a little naive to the whole uh, culture of um, all of this, Yeah. but, um, but yeah, so, you, you know, the whole Pizzagate thing, they make it all about Comet Ping Pong and James Elephantis, but I think the emphasis really should be the smoking gun comes from these WikiLeaks emails that are between of course, Podesta and Hillary Clinton's campaign. And um, and one of the staffers worked for a Rockefeller, and I'm failing to remember her name at the moment, but she had all these emails about her grandchildren being bussed around as entertainment, being in the um, hot tub as entertainment. And she also had a a website that was a live stream of her grandchildren um, where the title was watch for raw and uncut. And they circulated this website um, link throughout these emails. It was just a smoking gun, but they made it all about James Alephantis and Comet Ping Pong. And they made it all about, you know, kind of like Q it was pre QAnon, but it was very QAnon in essence. Well, I think the WikiLeaks afforded people an insight into like, who are these Podesta brothers? Because there's two of them. There's John and right. Tony. And who's Madeline McCann? There was a whole bunch of stuff that just came out of the basic grammar of these people. And like, what what have they been accused of in the past? And these sort of things. Um, I got into it because I was searching the Hillary Clinton leaks and the, the DNC leaks. And I was searching for Lynn Rothschild emails with Hillary. Mm -hmm. And I found those and they're very interesting. But then I also found in context of this other situation that Lynn Rothschild was funding fundraisers for David Brock and James Alephantis, but they were doing it at Brock's place. So mm -hmm. when people are pointing toward Alephantis and Comet Ping Pong, you're missing the other part. Now, the other part is George Soros also gave funding to Comet Ping Pong through 
the American Bridge 21st Century Foundation. So you know how he funds the DAs, he gives some money to his foundation, then they give right. it to the same thing. So when there's an actual connection, because I was super skeptical when I, someone made this and I was like, what are the documents? And you can actually see the Soros Foundation tax exempt documents. And when you find that there is that tight connection between Lynn Forrester to Rothschild and the David Brock book party and this funding of that place, plus all the other things that go into what in right. those accusations, like they said, there's no basement under Comet Ping Pong. That's there, true that you can't access the basement from Comet Ping Pong, but there is a basement under that building that goes under Comet Ping Pong. So they had little discrepancies like that. And then they had the whole thing where they hung out Joe Biggs for that like Texas pizza. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then I was skeptical about the circular references because they're like these words that are in the emails because this is where it comes from. We have the WikiLeaks and then people said there's these coded words in there and cheese cheese pizza means this thing and this, you know, right. So it comes from the FBI. WikiLeaks references the FBI, but the FBI referenced WikiLeaks. It was literally a circular reference. And those symbols, so I didn't know about those symbols. So I was like, I don't know, is this real? But then you go out and do research and those symbols are used yes. out there. Because mm -hmm. I bumped into somebody who runs IT for a major university and he does security. And I said, what's the craziest thing you've ever had to investigate? And then he started saying about these professors that were using the access to access cheese pizza. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you know, and I was like, what? That's an actual term. So then, I, you know, over time of looking into these things, I found there's a lot more veracity, but they make straw men and then burn them down a little wicker. Right. Man, right. right. And they're like, oh, this guy, the computer, and he shot the hard drive and that's it. That doesn't make any sense either. And I feel bad for that guy that got duped into going and doing such a ludicrous thing. Yeah. Right? But <clears throat> there is, I mean, from Aliphantus's Instagram and all the other things he was up to, like that was definitely hitting the third rail of our society. And it does tie back to the Franklin cover up and a whole bunch of things that you've covered in your encyclopedia. Yes, yes, yes. You're bringing back so many memories of discovering all of this and looking through it in all of his Instagram. Yeah, it was pretty disgusting. And the the shooter who went into Comet Ping Pong right before, um, I guess, Alex Jones was supposed to interview uh, James Aliphantus. All he did was shoot the computer in the closet. It's just, it's sus from start to finish. And then he had the, James Elephantis had the whole Megyn Kelly interview where she just underhand slow pitch softball questions to him. And um, of course, Tucker Carlson came out and said his favorite, his favorite pizza place was Comet Ping Pong. I saw a clip of that. And I don't know what is going on. <laughs> I still, that still throws me for a loop and it got censored off the internet so quickly. And it, it really was a turning point for internet censorship because they used that um, instance to say, okay, here's what happens when we get our internet detectives, our internet sleuths, and they get radicalized off this information. Look, a shooter went into Comet Ping Pong, guns a blazing, and he shot a computer. <laughs> It was just silly, but it really did censor the internet in a very big way. I think they took that and said, we can make it more absurd. Let's create Q. Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. There's a bunch of facts. Let's mix them up so people think it's something other than what's going on and sit back and laugh. Because I saw too many government, like, uh, you know, Mike Pence's security and stuff had Q patches on. It just seemed like 
a government op. And then there was like a HBO series about it. Like, I don't remember what it was called, but it followed these weirdos that were like into like uh, putting, put, making the Q posts and stuff. Really? Was like the, There was like an old guy in Japan. It was like an American <clears throat> old guy and like some teenage kid that they're working together. Uh, and this is also like a professionally produced HBO series so i don't trust it as far as i could throw it but mm -hmm. it was really interesting to see what their angle was in telling people this is the phenomenon to kind of like they were trying to expose it so <laughs> yeah yeah and i never and, had any interest in that because I, I saw it for what it was <laughs> i think i had an eyelash just fall off my face there yeah and also also i remember back in 2017 being contacted by the supposed Q posters to be interviewed on my channel. And at the time I, I was just like, no, this seems absolutely absurd. And that you're just trying to get traction by getting who you perceive as legitimate to endorse your cause. And that's what they went around and did. So they got everyone on board who they perceived as a legitimate source of alternate news and it got them to at least endorse or ent entertain it. And um, that's how it caught fire yeah it caught fire long before i even caught wind of it <laughs> well it really weaponized this group who had so much potential to create actual change you know yes all these people who are diehard patriots well-intentioned but well-intentioned all the hallmarks of a psychological operation Yes. And they had, I mean, even people with connections, former military, all these people who could have really made a stand, made a change. And they, it told them to sit in front of their computer and wait for the next update, essentially. Yes. Just totally cul-de-sac them. Trust the plan. Trust the plan, y'all. <laughs> all right. I want to break open your book here because there's so much in here. I got a couple cards placed. Uh Bilderberg Group was the first one. I was going to ask you if you knew about the Rothschild funding, but we just talked about that. Mm -hmm. um, and if if I skip something that is like a favorite part that you want to talk about, but I thought you oh, Do you want to talk about the name Breath? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, we, we have to learn about these things. So B'nai Breath, of course, is a Jewish fraternal organization that originated in Europe. But when the Jews immigrated to... America, I believe it started in New York, where they had this fraternal organization that met and was essentially their PR arm um, uh, to combat discrimination that they faced in the new world. And B'nai B'rith, I, I got really deep into B'nai B'rith um, as far as espionage was concerned and as it related to Leo Frank and the murder of Mary Fagan in the creation of the ADL. So, Which is like 50, 75 years later. 75 years later. Sure. So yes. It starts as they're immigrating to America from Europe because there's pressure over there. And uh, I have a, bill, uh, a book upstairs. I think it's called Pilgrims of 49. So it's the there was a in the 1840s, large migration. They they support a circular economy. They need some protection. They need someone to watch out for their interests because they're the new people on the block. And the more people like the Irish will pick on them or something like that. So you need to have okay, the, it's I, always the Irish. It's yes. always the Irish. So um, so this all made sense. But then the espionage part, that's interesting because shortly after this, 
You've got the American Civil, Civil War, War. Mm -hmm. which the Rothschilds were kind of all up in. And I've got some good artifacts on that. You know, them sending their uh, Solomon to Rothschild, a 28-year-old scion of the family to stay with all the families in the North and the South. So that part of espionage I found was interesting. And then uh, how you connected up to the ADL, because I had no idea of that history either. But um, I thought it was a... A, a, a something if i didn't cover them when we get to the adl part it wouldn't make any sense right right and I, well my favorite part about the adl leo frank chapter yeah. is that i work directly with mary fagan's great niece who is also named mary fagan if you're not um, familiar with the story in um i believe it was 1913 atlanta post-civil war there was a little girl, 13-year-old named Mary Fagan, who worked at a pencil factory ran by Leo Frank, who was president at the time of B'nai B'rith. And so he was this young Jewish businessman and um, essentially on, on Confederate Memorial Day, uh, Mary Fagan turned up dead in the basement of the pencil factory. And at first, there was a note attached to her body um, written from her perspective by the night watchman or the night witch um, that essentially said a black man did this. I mean, to summarize it, that's what it said. It's written from her perspective, but not in her handwriting. So she was discovered by the night watchman and um, he contacted police. And of course, in a post-Civil War South, you would think, oh, okay, well, you know, they're going to do everything they can to peg this black guy for her murder. But instead, it turns out that there was substantial evidence that Leo Frank himself had murdered Mary Fagan and um, raped her and tried to peg it on two different black men who worked at the pencil factory. And so he was convicted by a unanimous jury and sentenced to death by hanging the following year, but his attorneys, they were in with the governor at the time, Governor Slayton, and they uh, essentially kept getting his his punishment. Uh, he, they reduced it to life in prison. So everybody who had, you know, gone through this whole trial, it was a big story that year in Marietta. I'm from I'm from Marietta, by the way. Um, it was a huge story. And they thought that justice had not been served. So they, not Mary Fagan's family, but the Knights of Mary Fagan who met at, at Stone Mountain that year, burned an effigy of Governor Slayton. It was very occultic and, you know, like weirdly ritualistic, but um, <laughs> they went and dragged the guy out and they hanged Leo Frank in the Marietta Square that year. So ever since, by the way, when when Leo Frank was in prison, B'nai B'rith voted him president again. So they felt very confident that they would be able to get him out, of, get him out of prison for murdering this girl. And um, that didn't happen. And as a result, the ADL was created uh, in the aftermath of his death. And so it's basically the ADL said, you know, hey, Jews are being targeted in a very unfair way here in the South. And uh, look what happened to Leah Frank. He was hanged by all these white men who, and he was also 
uh, unanimously convicted by this jury who was super anti-Semitic. And um, the thing is, because no one ever reads these documents and stuff like that, is that in his, um, uh, amongst his 25 jurors, five of them were Jewish and three of them went to his synagogue. So, I mean, they all, they all felt like he was guilty. So I don't think that's very anti-Semitic. I think it's kind of anti-Semitic um, that, not anti-Semitic, but I think it's kind of just a shame that this is the the precipice of all of this that is essentially guiding the forces behind all of our all of our censorship online right now it originated at that moment and at this time so this is 1913 the same year the federal reserve comes in um at this time the 1911 encyclopedia britannica 11th edition listed a semite as an arab or somebody with semitic bloodlines right it wasn't specifically belonging to one religion so this creation of the adl is kind of like the codification of being able to monopolize that term for their specific purposes which they then use in some cases later in the 20th century back against the semitic people who live there the palestinians right and now the definition the definition of anti-semitism has undergone an evolution i mean it now it, it 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 pertains to people of a semitic language but Leo Frank, I mean, if you held up a picture of him to to me on the street, I'd be like, he's a white guy. I don't know. Like, yeah, I, there, he is. I, yeah. <laughs> there he is. So. And he wasn't hanged, I don't think, because of his religion. I thought he was hanged because he murdered the little he girl. Murdered, he murdered somebody else who was girl. innocent of that murder. And while I was working to fact check all of this, Mary Fagan's great grandniece um, said that the ADL has repeatedly attacked her for um, for putting these facts forth, um, for even, you know, saying that Mary Fagan was murdered by Leo Frank, because since then, the ADL has tried to get him exonerated because in doing so, it validates their existence. I mean, you can't be an organization that was created to protect a murderer and pedophile. You can't be a legitimate organization. And that's that's your that's your groundwork and they exist in every major office in every major city now the adl does they have a corner office at google at a facebook crazy yeah it's it's learning a lot about the world by reading this encyclopedia so we covered comic ping pong we touched on the uh bush family there was oh balfour declaration i skipped over that uh this is an interesting entry because uh, there's two Balfour declarations in history. There's a 1926 one and there's the 1917 one. So we're talking about the 1917 one, which uh, it just had its 100th anniversary a couple years ago. So in 2017, they had a website called Balfour100.com. And on there, you could see the drafts of the, the Balfour Declaration, famous historical document. So I was interested enough. I was nerdy enough to say, let me see the first draft. I want to see the evolution of this message. I was mm-hmm. so shocked because I knew how the story ended. I know that her, his, her his majesty's government gives the, you know, Palestine, which they don't have, it's not theirs. They give it to the Zionists and they address it to Lord Rothschild. And they're like, we're doing right. this thing for you. Right. The first draft is Lord Rothschild saying, here's what I want. 
So here's the bullet points. Yeah. He's like, here's the deal. And then it goes through like Milner and Leo Amory. And then it comes back through Balfour at the end. And it's basically the reverse is like his majesty's government is like, here's some, here's some land we don't have. And thank you for getting America into the war. They don't say that America part. Cause that was implicit in the deal, but there's mm-hmm. a, that's a, it's a receipt. It's a receipt for a transaction, the Balfour Declaration. And I don't think most people, it's not on their radar. They don't get it. It happened during World War I. It, it doesn't have anything to do with us, the United States, really. Right. It was a contract between these other groups. But those other groups have had an ominous effect in American history during the 20th century after the signing of this document, including the special relationship that gets us back together with our former enemy so they can make a new world order. Right. So. Correct. Yes. This is a this is a big deal in history. How did this come on your radar? Did they teach you about this in school? No, no, of course they did teach us about this in school. Are you kidding me? I even went to uh, Germany for a semester uh, that was in the study of the Holocaust, of World War II, and of um, German propaganda, Third Reich propaganda. Do you think they ever mentioned this? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They never mentioned this. The name Rothschild never muttered through the lips of any professor I had. And it is the context for really why we got into the wars that we did, why we lost so many lives. It was essentially part of it. And the wars created this atmosphere in which the United Nations, a global government, could be introduced to the world. And of course, now we have, I even said this to my dad the other day, he's a Navy guy. I'm like, did you know that Israel attacked America back in 1967 during this, the six day war, the USS Liberty? He's like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. They did not do that. And I said, just look it up, you know, look it up. And they were attacked for many hours before any aid came and they were flying a u.s flag and of course he just they had a 50 foot u.s flag they changed flags during the attack to make the flag bigger and bigger um i'll I'll say that for later because that is one of the later ones i had marked in the book so we'll go back to uss liberty but the creation of the adl and the balfour declaration pivotal pivotal pieces of history so it's not only an encyclopedia you learn it's like a it's an encyclopedia of history that we're not supposed to know or make uh, connections into these things. Let's talk about the Fabian Society. When did this yes. hit your radar? Did uh, oh my goodness! Yeah. I mean, it's been I've seen little inklings across the interwebs where people would talk about it in videos, but all of these politicians that are emerging now, the little city on the hill. Um, where everything's so great, it's very much like a Fabian society ideology that has permeated our entire culture. And it's the silent war, like silent weapons for quiet wars kind of thing. They're in the they're in the long game over here. And I was kind of I was kind of surprised how um open politicians are as far as <laughs> claiming allegiance to these societies. I always find that very bold that there it's almost like a bragging point, like in your face, we are a part of this. This is our, this is our document, our standard. Yeah. HG Wells wrote the open conspiracy. I mean, right. I mean, they're so bold as to be like, we are doing it out in the open. <laughs> he wrote a book called the new world order, but this idea of Fabian socialism, um, uh, wars of attrition, 
attacking the supply lines, going after not the people themselves because they're too hard to control, but going after the youngest among us. The whole indoctrination system is a Fabian socialist. And the the thing thing is, uh, speaking of open conspiracy, you're right. They do brag about it. The Fabian socialist logo is stained glass. You can go. I have pictures of it because it exists in London. Uh, It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And then their other logo is them with hammers over the world, pounding it into their image is basically what Mm -hmm. it says. Shaping the world in their image. So they are the wolves in sheep's clothing. They use uh, Fabius Maximus's uh, strategy of, you know, uh, indirect wars of attrition and uh, attacking the roots of people so that their branches just end up falling off instead of fighting the branches or whacking at the trunk. They're they're savvy. These people are smart. And they... They brought about two world wars. They brought about the creation of communism and Soviet Russia and communist China. They brought about the uh, uh, amelioration of America back with the British Empire, and they call themselves a commonwealth, and they gave all their countries different flags with the same people on the money (laughs) to make it like it's not us. And they have 47 votes in the United Nations to R1, but we're not supposed to notice any of that stuff. We're supposed to keep you know, you're keep, conspiracy theorist. If you notice that stuff, you need yeah, to stop noticing. Right. Watch more uh, CNN and MSNBC. Just watch any type of, type of cable news. Dumb yourself back down. Get yourself numbed. Go get in the fantasy football league. You'll be fine. That's the treatment. Yeah. And I saw your oppression education um, connection on there. I love your work with John Taylor Gatto. And um, he he's another one that got me into all this because I went to school to be a teacher. I went to school to be, uh, you know, like a kindergarten teacher or something. And you ended up being a teacher, by the way. You're sure you're a teacher for adults, <laughs> a, though. A different kind of teacher, but you, you hey, know, that's they, actually and, a name of his book. That's a Gatto book, a different kind of teacher. Look at yes. you throwing the synchronicities out. There you go. The dumbing down of society because they've infiltrated our education system. So from from birth until you enter the workforce, you're just totally at the behest of these people who really don't have very good motives at all. They're very much for themselves and bringing out this image of the world that, you know, doesn't exactly match the uh what's best for what's best for all in my opinion yeah i think it's like the first lines of john lennon's working class hero as soon as you're born they make you feel small by giving you no time instead of it all and then he goes through like the indoctrination system and you grow up and uh you get shot in front of your hotel in new york there you go (laughs) by uh, operation 40 assassin that worked for the cia but they're going to tell you it's mark david chapman and he sat down on the on the on the stoop right there and he sat and waited for the police like a good little MK Ultra monarch programmer. Programmy. Programmy. Yes, programmy. All right. And so, now, you know, now do we have to have this monarch programming when it's I mean, we're being programmed every single day through our media, through our education, everything. Oh, 100 um, percent They've they've moved it out to like we're it's 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 they don't have to have MK Ultra and Mockingbird anymore because it's the milieu in which we all exist. Yeah. And no clockwork orange. I mean, it doesn't have to be that targeted anymore. It's just, right. it's very widespread. They've got everybody doing that uh, scene where they hold his eyelids open. That's TikTok for people. Yes. Yeah, that's the same thing. All right. Franklin scandal. This is not on most people's radar. And this is where you lose a lot of the audience because it's too heavy duty, you know, child sacrifice, Satanism, these sort of things. Right. But yes. um, 
I, I just watched uh, my buddy Sean Stone's got a, a documentary called The Best Kept Secret. It was all about this thing for like several hours. And I had already looked into like Ted Gunderson and the finders and all these sort of things over the past 20 years. So I'm kind of not numb to it, but I've known about this stuff going on. And it's just, I wanted to be able to dismiss it. Like Gunderson's not telling the truth. But when you have a hundred of those things over time, you're like, oh, the world's run by pedophiles. And unfortunately, we're not led by the best people among us. And they haven't done enough of that thing that they did to Leo Frank back in the day, apparently, because people who abuse children do not deserve to go about abusing more children. You know, no. so that's that's a that's a terminus from this game. As well, as we go concerned. we go full circle with this Franklin scandal to like, let's bring it to today. We'll talk about Epstein Island. I mean, yeah. did the operation really did it just go underground or did it just rebrand? And now it's Epstein Island. And I wonder what it'll be in five years because I can't quite possibly fathom that it ended with Epstein. It just changed hands more like. Yes. Yes. The Epstein's in a long line of Renfields who have mm -hmm. served up the innocent to people in power. And uh, Larry King of the Franklin cover-up, not the CNN guy, but the guy who was Republican National Committee chairman who sang at the thing, uh, that Larry King, he's definitely one of those Renfields. And when you see who's named, like Warren Buffett's named in the Franklin cover-up. A lot of people don't talk I about that and the whole Omaha connection and these sort of things, but there's deep connection. Hunter Thompson's named in the right. Franklin cover-up. And now, have you ever seen that picture with Seth Rich and Warren Buffett doing the pyramid? No. There's a picture that exists of You're Warren about Seth Buffett. Rich that's dead, Seth, right? Seth Rich uh, connected to WikiLeaks, you know, yeah. the Pizzagate and everything. There are two photos of them together where they're doing pyramid um things with their arms. I what are be, the chances? I would be interested to see the photo and then I would be interested to authenticate the photo, right? Yes. And if you got Warren Buffett making some sort of gang signs with somebody who got mysteriously murdered in the midst of a big espionage fallout campaign, uh, yeah, it's more interesting. How does Warren Buffett's, you know, how has he hold, held his position for the past 50 years? What made that guy special? Who's his quantum fund investor that put him on the map, you know, back with Berkshire Hathaway? Right. And Shaw is big around here back in 2008. Why didn't he go under while well, all the cities around me that are totally powered by Shaw, they just fell under. I mean, they're like shells of what they used to be. And yet he still remains top dog. Yeah. Are you familiar with the uh, researcher author Douglas Valentine? Uh, no, no, I'm okay. not. He, he wrote uh, and did some research in the MK ultra mind control sphere. Um, we had this piece of footage and it was like before the filming started with the questions for the documentary. And he was just kind of sitting in the room and he said, he just said, you know, I'm going to tell you a story. And so he tells his story and he said, uh, when I was a kid, uh, my father asked me to meet him at the diner every you know morning and we'd have breakfast. And one morning he said, I want you to come to the diner tomorrow at 5 AM and meet me in the parking lot. Don't come inside. And so he does this and then his dad walks him over to the diner and it's locked and they walk around back and there's a delivery truck there, like a laundry delivery truck. And his dad swings open the doors and then there is the restaurant owner, the chief of police and the mayor and somebody else. And they're cutting deals and, and divvying up money. And he said, son, this is the real nature of organized crime and law enforcement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, that's such a life lesson right there to just be like. 
this is this is it shouldn't be like this. This is not if ethical. It's not moral. No. It's not logical. It's not reasonable. But this is what people and people in power who don't believe in these things, people who believe in survival of the fittest and that they're here to dominate everyone else, they believe that strong people dish out truth and justice and they can change what that means at any given time because there's no objective reality. They're solipsists, right? So if you have a better understanding of that growing up, you wouldn't give so much blind trust and obedience to these authorities that continuously kind of lead us toward precipices. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's like a major, a major actionable for people, you know, dial back the trust that you have in these organizations and everything. Dial back your obedience as well. Your, your um, inclination to give your consent to a lot of these things. Yeah. The, the consent part, the unwitting part of uh, the servitude is uh, a major aspect because once you say, oh, wait, I've been giving up my ability to think and, and ask questions and gather information, come to my own decisions, choices, judgments, maybe now, maybe my life would be better if I did more of that for myself and and stop listening to uh, St. Fauci on my health care. Yes, right? for sure. For sure. Now you had this entry in here and I think this would escape most people because this is like a, it seems like a minor thing, but this has a major root, which you also had in your encyclopedia here. So I wanted to ask this part, Genie Energy and the Rothschild involvement in the Golan Heights. Uh, where did this come onto your radar? How did this make it into the encyclopedia? When all the Syrian war stuff was happening, the yeah. geopolitical aspect of it, what is the driving force between, you know, the destruction of Damascus and our like proxy war we're having there. Um, I was, I went heavy into that when all the stuff was going down in Syria and they did that whole, do you remember um, the freeze challenge where the white hats in Syria, they essentially posed the, the, this or choreographed this whole video scenario where they're rescuing dead people or bodies or whatever from yes. the destruction and it's um they're freeze framing it you know standing still like they're not it's not post editing they're freeze framing it in the actual clip pretending like they're doing this and um uh, writing it off as this whole internet fad where you know it's like the standstill fad whatever and they ended up getting a i think it was like um it was some kind of major award for their service but the, but it really um revealed that a lot of the to me at least that a lot of this is staged on the world stage um, and funneled through through the lens of the American media and fed to the people. And a lot of it isn't real, um, especially as we go back to the Iraq war, as we go back to um, the war on terror. Why are we at, in a Afghanistan for 20 plus years or however long it's been? Um, but Golan Heights, okay, is a plateau in uh, like between Israel and, uh, and Syria. And it is a mecca of like resources. Um, there's oil, there's water. It's um and Israel doesn't have any of those things, by the way. Um, there it's as far as natural resources, Israel isn't it. So um, this is a very highly cherished piece of property between these two countries. And 
the um, the people who run our country have this vested interest in this area where they go and plunder the oil from the Golan Heights. It was like Dick Cheney, of course, with Halliburton and um, the Rothschilds and uh, former CIA executive uh, CIA uh, runners and former governors. They all made up the board at Cheney Energy, which was this oil company that did their business in the Golan Heights. So if you're wondering why we have continued uh, military presence in these places that we have no business being, look no further than the vested interests of our government leaders. So well, that's that, Cheney Energy. Yeah. So that's interesting because <clears throat> the Golan Heights was the area that was contested during the six days war. Yes. And LBJ yes. said, we're going to stay out of it, but don't touch the Golan Heights. And because LBJ is not in control of anything, they took that area. And then there was a whole bunch of other things that happened. So you have a section in here on the USS Liberty. Oh, yes. And I've had a great interest in this story for a long time. I've interviewed the only surviving uh, Marine, the only Marine to you survive have? the event. Wow. And I did a, a three-hour interview with him, and he has some scathing things to say. And when somebody, maybe like your father, who says, "I, you know, I don't believe that would have happened or it couldn't have happened, you have to, because there's the whole communication thing of, of this, right? So this is like a sensitive topic. Somebody has a strong belief that can't have happened. And then you might say something like, but... If it did actually happen, how would that change how we have to see this situation, right? If it did happen and they covered it up from on high and over 50 years, they've never had an adjudication of this manner, this matter, and that the, the, the remaining sailors that were on that boat that survived the multiple murder attempts that day, they would like to see justice during their lifetime. And they're about the age where they're all going to pass away. And that's what they want. They want all the survivors to be dead so that no one ever has to talk about USS Liberty anymore. And right. I think that's one of the biggest crimes in our country that's gone unresolved since the killing of Kennedy. And it's done by the same group of people that work together. There's a, there's a group of people that do not like America. And they're not all of one race, religion, color, or creed. There are many, but they have conglomerated in the 20th century. And you have uh, a number of books that we talk about every week on this show. There's there's a whole stack of books. There's probably uh, more books than you can fit in your house on this topic. So the fact that it goes unrecognized, it's important to have a deep state encyclopedia to point these things out. Um, your father might also think that we went to war with Japan and drop those nukes on them because they attacked us at Pearl Harbor. But what if the British organized that attack? And what if the British knew about that attack six months before it happened? And they did not tell us because they wanted us to get into the war, just like they needed us to get into world war one. Yes. And it's a way of taking over our country of dirtying our reputation of getting us involved in foreign entanglements of numbers of coups that the CIA's blamed for over the past 60 years. Yes, they are guilty. But MI6 took them and taught them how to do these things. Like, and, and you know, the CIA gets the rap for it, right? Like we get the bad credit, but it wasn't another Anglo-American establishment group that was putting us into all these situations because we didn't have statecraft for a thousand years. We didn't have a worldwide monopoly bent on uh, breaking people with opium. So like Americans who were just out there chopping wood and planting seeds and trying to do yeah. these things came into contact after the Revolutionary War. We fought them off militarily. But then they went back and said, oh, we've been around a long time and the empire never forgets. And slowly but surely, 
through the assassination of Lincoln all the way up to the assassination of Kennedy, they took control. And since Kennedy's assassination, the deep state's been in control of the uh, machinations, the statecraft, the education, all these things, just like they said in their writings. But people wouldn't know that if you don't put these things into an encyclopedia. So I want to thank you for assembling this work. I think it's inspiring for people to know it exists so they can dig deeper. You didn't try to be the exhaustive everything resource on this. Otherwise, you'd have like a 25 volume set, right? Right, right. So uh, I I wanted to keep it short and sweet. I wanted a Reader's Digest version of these events so people wouldn't be inundated with too much information because I know how that feels. You're like, oh, my gosh, I'm watching the the world burn in front of my eyes every time I open this book or every time I uh, watch the TV, whatever. And um, so it's a Reader's Digest version for people who know nothing about conspiracies and people who think they know everything. But it really just brushes the surface um this encyclopedia does but i you know i hope it's a tool that you can use with your own family i'm using it with mine uh where we can discuss these issues at hand put some context in there and if you need an irrefutable source of information that's backed by you know books and links and places you can continue to do your own research it's all in the book Fantastic. And uh, the best place for people to find you, I have your link tree over here, uh, link tree slash really graceful vids. Is there any other sites or uh, places or projects? You can go to reallygraceful.com and all my links are there, or you can find me on YouTube for now. Um, Really graceful on YouTube. Well, Grace, thank you so much for investing an hour of your time to help our audience get a little more acclimated. And even if you in the audience, you know about all the stuff in here, it's a great coffee table book for when your friends and family come over for, they'll just naturally just start picking it up and looking through and they'll find something that resonates. And that's kind of what people need. They need a book that you don't have to read in order. Like you could just read this five minutes at a time and get through this. And most other books aren't formatted uh, for such ease of reference and passing it around to get the, the message out there. So I want to thank you on a, a really well-composed first book. I look forward to the second edition or your next uh, project of this variety. And uh, do you have any major video projects going on right now? What's uh, what's going on in the video world? Because that's what you're known for. That's what I'm known for. And I'm kind of restructuring things. Like I want to, I want to shake it up. Like I don't want to do what I was doing five years ago. I don't want to continue doing that all the time. I want to sit in front of the camera and just speak about um, events and offer commentary in addition to continuing to do these little uh, mini documentaries, I would call them. So I'm switching it up. I This is my fourth podcast ever. It's been an honor. So thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy and I really enjoy your show. Well, thank you. And we enjoy the mini documentaries. We also enjoy how they fit together into bigger things. And uh, we enjoy showcasing that for our audience because I think that there are too few really well thought out and composed ideas of this variety. And uh, you're up there in the world with uh, someone like Jake Tran, who has a big audience because he makes like summarized things, but sometimes he gets his facts wrong and your facts are tighter. So I always go with, you might have the smaller audience between you and Jake Tran, but I'm going with who has the facts and the links and the articles and the evidence. Grace, thank you so much. And uh, we'll, we'll be sure to have you back on the show. Thank you very much, Richard. Thanks for having me. All right. We're going to put her uh, link tree link in the uh, show notes. I 
I have a couple copies of this book. They all came from Amazon. Uh, thank you, Grace, for sending us uh, a copy. It was a pleasure to read it. And uh, yeah, there's a lot more entries in there. I'll show you guys the uh, table of contents because we only hit like five things that were in here. Let me just give you guys. There's a gander of things I was interested from page one of the contents. Here's page two. Fabian Society. Lots of interesting things there. Page three of the contents as you get further in the book. I don't know. Maybe the more interesting things start with letters at the end of the alphabet. But for me, there was a, a lot of things to uh, to check out in this book. And, uh, you know, instead of getting several hundred or a thousand books, maybe just start with the encyclopedia <laughs> and then see where you want to dig in. Because something like this begs the question. I want to see the source material. I want to see some evidence. I want to see some artifacts. And then when you start getting into these evidence and artifacts, you end up like me 20 years down the road of, uh, <laughs> you know, collecting all these books and trying to remember where all the right information is at the right time and marshalling that information in a lively style for the audience. Cause that's what you've come to expect with the quality of grand theft world every week. So uh, I have a couple points to make given the context of this entire episode so far, cause it's about to get hotter. It's about to get hotter. Because we're going to go up to that anomaly DeSantis story in a minute. But if you pay attention, there is a point. So <clears throat> LBJ, he took no action in the Six Days War when the USS Liberty was attacked. Because what? How did he inherit his power? Oh, he was part of the people that killed Kennedy. He was in order to get away with it. You need a willing next guy to step up and not not turn on you. It wasn't too hard to get the drop on old LBJ. And though this was the time before Epstein uh, the, Mac, the the people in power still had the same techniques in operation. There was just no internet or hard drives available for them at that time. LBJ is under control. He can say, don't touch the Golan Heights. And they can say, yeah, whatever, dude, we're touching the Golan Heights. You ain't going to do nothing about it. You're not even going to investigate this thing. That's how kept you are, LBJ. So there's that aspect. So because of uh, you know MI6 and Mossad, LBJ takes no action because it's their, it's their operation. Uh, the King David hotel would be an example. Cause, uh, you know, of some of these events that happened before the, the even Kennedy got into office, King David hotel, those types of things. Right. So, uh, to say that maybe what they did to Leo Frank was anti-Semitism and it's uncalled for and these sort of things, I would say, so is King David hotel where you kill 47 people for your political agenda in the book of the Oxford English dictionary, that's called terrorism. But we're not going to talk about that or how people like Rahm Emanuel, Ezekiel Emanuel, uh, Ari Emanuel, their dad was part of that terrorist group. Yeah. But they're all famous people in America. One of them is a Rhodes Scholar. You can do the research to find that out. USS Liberty. You know why they were hit that day? Sad but true. They blocked invasion into the Golan Heights. So they blocked a real estate development project that today has the people who were the inheritors of that land. Genie Energy at all and their board of directors up there getting some water, getting some electricity, all these sort of things going on now because the USS Liberty was put down that day, because those soldiers were executed, because there was never any justice to that situation. You can have Genie Energy over there colonizing. So if you brought block the colonization effort with your little signals intelligence ship, you might get blown up back in the day. Um, let's see. That clips for later. Yeah. That covers the USS Liberty concept for tonight, because like I said, there will be a pattern. So now 
let's go to uh i don't know if you have it in the uh the show card ld but anomaly did a story on ron DeSantis going to israel i believe for his second time uh making a trip over there he's going to israel to pass hate speech anti-hate speech legislation for the state of florida i'm i wasn't sh- sure is it like the new 51st state or why he has to check in or maybe that's about becoming president and he has to be approved by apac i don't know did the kennedy brothers ever have any run-ins with that group i don't know maybe we'll find out i don't know if an anom- maybe anomaly does maybe he maybe he'll tell us during this uh this uh this next clip okay ld has it up let's go forward and then while we're watching this clip i'm going to start working on the noam chomsky iceberg because that was fun doing it for tucker there We have a great show for you today. So Ron DeSantis flew over to Israel and passed a bill for Florida in Israel. The first time he did this, went to Israel and passed a bill for Florida in Israel, set a new precedent because it was the first ever Florida bill passed on foreign soil because why would you be passing a bill for Florida in a foreign country, especially when that bill benefits the foreign country you're in? This begs the question that nobody asks, is Ron DeSantis working for a foreign country and don't celebrate just yet because it's not just Ron DeSantis it's the status quo not just in the GOP but in the Democratic Party as well this is gonna be a very loving stream no hate no anger just straight facts without further ado the dream rare podcast starts now it's the dream rare podcast welcome to the show the way to get the news at the desk or on the road let's go god is great and success in our control the world is crazy but we get better from obstacles what's going on everybody welcome to today's episode of the dream rare podcast uh it's gonna get less views than most of mine excuse me but i think it's one of the most important ones so hopefully people do stay tuned and share this one now the day everybody's been waiting for because obviously i've been critical of donald trump and a lot of people that like donald trump and don't like ron DeSantis have been like well how come anomaly never says anything about DeSantis?" well today's your lucky day because it's going to be mostly about ron DeSantis. so we're going to be talking about the fact that ron DeSantis flew over to israel to pass a law for florida in Israel, a hate crime law, and he's flown over there to pass what I would consider a hate speech law, and we gotta talk about it. Before that, I wanna give a disclaimer. I don't have to, but I want to. I don't believe in violence, obviously. I mean, this is obvious, but I'm just throwing it out there. I don't even believe in hate. I think hate and anger are lame. You're not a victim. It doesn't matter if you're Christian, Muslim, Jewish, black, white. I don't think you're the victim. I don't, I don't even believe in anger. I think when you're overly angry, uh, you know, it says more about you than other people. And God gave you the ability to be who you want to be and be a great person. So I don't believe in hate and I don't believe in violence, obviously. With that being said, you know, that's what this is going to be misconstrued for <clears throat> because I'm going to expose these bills for what they are, which in my opinion is hate speech bills that make no sense. So let's go for the first time that Ron DeSantis flew over to Israel and passed a bill for Florida. Because the critics are going to say, oh, you're anti-Semitic. Oh, you hate them. Oh, you hate them. It's not true. Don't hate the country. Don't hate people. It doesn't take me watching 21 Jump Street to realize that Jonah Hill's funny or whatever. No, knock it. Yeah, I just thought that was funny. But I don't have hate in my heart and I don't hate any countries in the world. Um, I'm just being honest. All right. So Florida has never had a bill passed for Florida on foreign soil before, right? Before DeSantis, that's never happened because why in the world would you fly over to another country and pass a bill 
for for that country specifically, but just in general. So DeSantis broke that with his first bill. I'm going to read it in a second and tell you what it says. And he passed the first ever Florida bill on foreign soil. And the bill was in Israel. And the bill was for Israel, in my view. So before we get into that bill, I'm just going to be really clear. You could look all this up yourself, but I have it here. Um, a lot of the hate speech laws and the hate speech stuff that DeSantis has passed, even Donald Trump passed an executive order, it all comes from the State Department definition of anti-Semitism, which was defined within the last 10 years by some Holocaust memorial. I think it's IHRA, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And they made a list of what they consider anti-Semitism, right? I don't believe in hate. I don't believe in violence, but I do believe in the truth. And I do believe in the First Amendment. I think it's a good one. And in my opinion, this is not stopping hate and this is not stopping violence. These are some of the craziest speech laws that the State Department has defined as anti-Semitic hate speech that Ron DeSantis has signed into law as anti-Semitic hate speech, or at least the guidelines of what anti-Semitic hate speech is. And Donald Trump actually passed an executive order to stop this type of anti-Semitic hate speech on college campuses. So let me read to you a few of these hate speech laws that has been defined by the State Department. They consider this anti-Semitism. Ready? Here's the first one that I thought was pretty wild. Making mendacious, dehumanizing, demonizing, or stereotypical allegations about Jews or such as the powers of Jews as collective, such as, especially but not exclusively, the myth about a world Jewish conspiracy or of Jews controlling the media, economy, government, or other societal institutions. So if you say Jewish people control media, even though statistically I think there's some validity to that statement if you're going by math statistics, you know, that's now considered anti-Semitic hate. You know, according to DeSantis, people who pass these bills, the State Department and groups like the ADL. So, you know, talking about media control, it's anti-Semitic. That's why they call you anti-Semitic when you talk about Soros or when you talk about Bloomberg. It's not that you're being anti-Semitic. I mean, probably some of the critics are Jewish themselves, but they just have defined these laws as like, you know, Jewish media saying those things in the same sentence. It's just like anti-Semitic. You shouldn't talk about it, even though anybody with a Wikipedia can figure out the truth. Um, here's another one of the laws that is now being passed in Florida accusing jews as a people of being responsible for real or imagined wrongdoing committed by a single jewish person or group or even for acts committed by non-jews so it's anti-semitic to accuse jews for being responsible for real wrongdoing or imagined wrongdoing committed by a single jewish person or group see i wouldn't mind that i mean i don't think this should be passed into hate speech legislation but i wouldn't mind that if every person on television wasn't blaming all white people for something one white person did so it's like if christopher columbus sailed the ocean blue all white people are responsible they constantly blame and a lot of people on television that are doing it are black or jewish or white so why can a jewish media executive blame white people for everything that they didn't do but Ron DeSantis runs over to Israel to pass hate speech legislation that says that you're not allowed to do that for them. Let's equal the playing field. You know, let's make it a hate speech law that you, you can't say that it's my fault that someone sailed on the Nina the Pinta the Santa Maria. You can't say it's my fault when some people can't stop doing evil stuff and somehow it's my fault systemically. No, you don't want to do that. You want to keep writing articles about how all white people are responsible for everything. Well, it doesn't seem really fair to me. I don't think that should be legislated. I'm just saying these laws, they don't include my religion. They don't include my ethnicity. So why would I support an anti-First Amendment uh, concept that doesn't apply? And to be fair, I do believe that ethnic conversations about white, Jewish, Asian, black, 
I do believe they should be had because, I mean, uh, there are going to be hateful people, obviously, but I don't think you can legislate hate. And now it's like, oh, if you say that crime statistics exist, that's racist. Is it racist or is it statistically true? You know, saying that, you know, this neighborhood outlawed, you know, abortion because they're Christian. Is that hate speech? No, Christians don't like abortion. So if Christians move in unison to an area, they are going to outlaw abortions. If Muslims take over a community, they're going to implement Sharia law or some sort of out output of it. So if Jewish people do stuff, would they ever do things in unison? No, never. And it's not a hateful thing. It's just statistically. It's like if America was 99% Christian, abortion would be probably completely outlawed. That's, that's not hate. That's just like what Christians think. That's what Muslims think. What do, there's no similarities. No, nothing exists. It's just individuals. I don't know. I find it a little disingenuous to try to police speech around race. I, I don't believe in hate, but I don't think you could legislate that. That's my opinion. Here's another one of those laws. Accusing the Jews as people or Israel as a state of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust. So that's now a hate speech violation. Notice it's not just inventing, it's in exaggerating. So there's actually media reports, mainstream media reports of couples lying about their story. I believe they were on, I don't want to say Oprah, but mainstream outlets. And this couple had this whole story. They wrote a book about it. They actually got caught lying about it. And then they had to admit that they lied on national television. I'm not saying everybody's lying, but they were. But if you were to say that they were, that could be a hate speech violation because that, you know, they can't possibly exaggerate, even though they literally did and had to admit to doing that, that specific couple. But, you know, why not just legislate hate when or, or speech when you can't uh, you can't say that, but you can say anything, but just not that. OK, interesting. Um, one of the hate speech laws that the State Department has defined and that Ron DeSantis's government is going by is accusing the Jews as a people. Oh, no, that's the one I already did. Accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or to the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide than the interests of its own nation. So now it's considered anti-Semitic hate speech to say that there's any Jewish person. Obviously, not everyone is, but, the, you know, it's, it's impossible that any Jew could be more interested in their priorities than of the nation they live in. Well, if you go to the Anti-Defamation League's website, the ADL, they pretty much specify that they're an international Jewish organization. And one of their main goals, if not their main goal, is to focus on the priorities of Jews worldwide. That's literally defined on their Wikipedia. But you can't say that they're doing that because that's anti-Semitism. They are. They're, of course, doing it. But that's hate speech. And Ron DeSantis may, wants you to know, and not just Ron DeSantis, by the way, most politicians, they want you to know that that's no good. Uh, ben Shapiro agrees with all this stuff, by the way. Facts don't care about your feelings unless facts go against his beliefs and bias. Then all of a sudden, Ben Shapiro's nowhere to be found. Big shocker. Not. Uh, does Prager speak out about this stuff? No, he doesn't. I wonder why. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, anyway, I'm going to read a few more of the laws before we go on to what DeSantis is passing because it's I'm going to, you know, I'm going to walk you through history real quick. Here's another one that you're not allowed to say. Uh, Anti-Semitism, according to the State Department and these laws that DeSantis are passing, would be denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination, example by claiming that the existence of Israel is a racist endeavor. Here's my thing. I don't say that. Personally, that's not a statement that I say. But every day I wake up, you have hundreds of millions of people telling me that America's racist, that America you know, needs to be destroyed, and everything's racist about it, and Europe is racist. So 
All I'm saying is I don't cry hate speech. Do you hear me ever say, I'm a victim. I'm not a victim because I'm white. I'm not a victim because I'm Christian. I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim because I'm American. I'm not a victim for any reason, but I don't, I just want the same equality where it's like, if you, if every day I wake up and you tell me that my entire country and my entire existence, my entire race, my entire religion, it's all racist and it shouldn't exist, or, you know, it needs to be dethroned, then let's all live by the same rules. But of course we can't, you know, they get protections, of course, because they totally don't control Congress. Um, let's read a few more. Applying double standards by requiring a behavior of it not expected or demanded by any other democratic nation. So now they are trying to police how much you criticize Israel and other nations. Here's what I have to say about that. I talk about, I would say I talk about Ukraine more than I talk about Bolivia or like Belgium. Why do I talk about Ukraine more than I talk about Belgium and Bolivia? Do I hate Ukraine? Do I hate Ukrainians? Do I love Belgium? No, the reason I talk about Ukraine more than Bolivia and Belgium is because Ukraine has a war and they're taking hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer money and it's just a bigger influence on America. Bolivia, I have no idea what they're doing. Belgium, I would assume there's some good chocolate and waffles there and some great people. Outside of that, I don't really have much reason to talk about it. Is that because I hate Ukraine? No, I, I always say this, and I truly mean this, by the way. I'm not just saying this to virtue signal. You can't brainwash me into hating a race or a country. A lot of people do. A lot of leftists do. A lot of right-wingers, they say they don't, but they hate Iran, or they hate this country, or they hate China. I don't hate any country. I don't hate China. I don't hate the Chinese. I don't hate Israel. I don't hate Palestine. I don't hate Saudi Arabia. I know that there's good people everywhere. Every China man or China woman is not responsible for the Chinese government. Every Ukrainian is not responsible for Zelensky and every Jew is not responsible for Israel. So you can't make me into that person. They'll try to be like, oh, you hate this country or that. I actually legitimately don't hate any country because I understand that God made everybody and I understand that there's pros and cons to everything. Why, why would I hate a country? I don't, I don't get it. I don't do it. Um, with that being said, I don't want to be policed on which country I'm allowed to criticize on what. If I were to criticize Israel more than Bolivia, it's not because I hate Israel. It's because Israeli politics is intertwined with American politics. And I would say they've completely lobbied both parties of government to the point where you're better off in America hating America than you would be to hate Israel. I don't think you should hate America or Israel, but if you're in American politics and you were to, to des despise one country and obsess over one country, you're better off obsessing over Israel because that's more important to your existence in Congress than liking America. It's just true. They have our entire political system in a stranglehold. Whether and, and we'll talk about it later, but I don't know any other way to say it. It's it's not a hateful thing. It's just reality. Um, you know, does Chile is Chile controlling American politics? No. Is DeSantis flying over to Chile to pass a Chilean loyalty speech law? No, why? Because Chile has no money or power. Saudi Arabia has money and power. Israel has money and power. America has money and power. Russia has money and power. This is just how it works. Nobody, no offense to Chileans, but it's like if you guys had oil money or if you guys had you know, control of something, then maybe people would talk about you more, but it's just the way the world is. Like Venezuela, we really care about, they have oil. If they didn't have oil, you'd never hear about the socialism there, in my opinion. Uh, let's, let's read a few more of the laws before we move on. So 
one of the anti-Semitic hate speech laws for those just joining on the State Department website being passed into le legislation directly and indirectly by Ron DeSantis. Uh, one of the hate speech laws says it is anti-Semitic to use symbols and images associated with classic anti-Semitism. Example, that Jews kill Jesus or blood libel to characterize Israel or Israelis. So, you know, talking about that classic anti-Semitic statement that Jews killed Jesus, that's, you know, that's no good. Um, I would say that's biblical and that's a biblical interpretation, but it's not surprising to me that the GOP is passing laws to essentially make the Bible hate speech because that's who the GOP is. It's like they print six trillion dollars and they pretend they're about socialism. They fund vaccine socialism and pretend they're fighting big pharma. They sell the product and then cry about it. They basically make their Bible illegal and then they act like they're standing up for Christians. The GOP is such controlled opposition. It's like laughable at this point. And I'm sorry if anybody thinks that they're like really fighting for Christians in America. Uh, I wish they were. They're definitely better than Democrats, but it's not saying much because look at Joe Biden. It's like, what? we're better than Joe Biden. So is uh, this, you know, whatever. It's like a paper towel is better than Joe Biden. Cool. Congrats. Um, two more and then we're going to move on. According to the State Department and Ron DeSantis' speech laws, drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis is anti-Semitic. Here's an example I like to use because I, it just sticks in my head. One person I follow on Twitter that I really enjoy his takes is Mark Lobener. Mark Lobener is a successful business owner, a great American patriot, and uh, just an interesting guy. He's a bodybuilder as well. Mark Lobener happens to be Jewish, right? And there's only, I'm not saying that because I care. I just know he was calling Israel Nazis often, even though he's a Jew, because he didn't like what they were doing in Israel when it came to the forced vaccination stuff. But according to these hate speech laws, even though Mark Lobener happens to be Jewish, he would not be able to essentially call them Nazis for their insane uh, forced vaccination policies that they had because that's just classic anti-Semitism to compare their contemporary policy to that of the Nazis, even though, you know, contemporary policy that they've done in the past couple of years has been lockdowns and vaccine mandates. So isn't that just interesting? Um, and I'm just going to move on. The last one's really not important, but I just want to show you on the State Department website, they're bragging that anti-Semitic acts are criminal and criminal acts are anti-Semitic. Obviously, it's not a crime to say what I'm saying right now or they throw me in jail, but they're working on it, trust me. They're, they're bragging that it's like, we don't have the full power to stop all speech yet, but we're trying. So now let's fast forward. What, why am I saying this about Ron DeSantis? Because this is the first bill that Ron DeSantis passed in Israel. And once again, I just wanna, explain and rehash this there has never in florida's entire state history been a florida bill passed in a foreign country because it doesn't make sense to pass florida bills in anywhere but florida really um but ronda santis flew to israel to pass a bill in israel for florida for israel um here's the first bill he passed because this is the one that really infringes on speech in my opinion it's called hb 741 anti-semitism it passed senate 40 to 0 and the in the house 114 to 0. it didn't have one single person in florida disagree with it i'm going to read it this bill prohibits discrimination on the basis of religion in the k-20 through public school system additionally the bill requires public k-20 through 
educational institutions to treat discrimination by students or employees or resulting from institutional policies motivated by anti-Semitic intent in an identical manner to discrimination motivated by race. The bill provides that for the purpose of anti-Semitism provision, anti-Semitism includes a certain perception of the Jewish people, which may be expressed as hatred towards the Jewish people, rhetoric, rhetorical and physical manifestation of anti-Semitism directed towards a person. Uh, the bill also provides many examples of anti-Semitism. Here's two of them. Accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide than the interests of our own nations. Do you notice it's the same exact thing I just read? Because they're copy and pasting what's on the State Department website and considering everything I just read before, anti-Semitism. The bill also provides that example of anti-Semitism related to Israel to include applying a double standard to Israel by requiring behavior of Israel that is not expected or demanded by any other democratic nation or focusing on peace and human rights investigations on Israel, or only on Israel, delegitimizing Israel by denying them existence. So let me just explain to you why I'm reading this. So Ron DeSantis said, I'm passing a religious discrimination bill that religion's gonna go under race and you can't discriminate against religion. Is this a religious bill for all religions? Well, it's not. Does it include Christian hate speech laws? It doesn't. Does it include Muslim hate speech laws? No. Does it include Hindu hate speech laws? No. It includes ethnic protection for non-religious Jews and basically Israeli loyalty speech laws that have nothing to do with just the religion, but it has to do with a foreign country. So Ron DeSantis essentially flew to Florida, I'm sorry, flew to Israel and passed a Israeli loyalty hate speech Florida bill in Israel for Israel uh, that made it hate speech to criticize Israel in a way that Israel and the donors who fund DeSantis and Trump don't want you to criticize them. So this is my beef with this bill. Multiple things. One, if you're going to say that ethnically Jewish people are protected from hate speech and you can't say this and that about ethnically Jewish, because most Jewish people aren't even really that religious. So it's an ethnic religious fusion bill that's really just a foreign country bill. If you're going to do that, which I don't agree with from a constitutional standpoint, where are the protections for every other? You said you didn't say it was a Jewish bill. You said it's a religious bill. It's for all it's for religions. But it only mentions one religion in the bill. And in that religion bill for the one religion, it gives protection to non-religious people in a country, regardless of what their ethnicity or religion is. So what are you really doing here? In my opinion, Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, most of the GOP, except for Thomas Massey and a few others, and most of the Democratic Party outside of the squad and a few other Looney Tunes, most people understand how U.S. politics work. Everything matters unless Big Pharma comes to town, then all of a sudden you're selling vaccines harder than Bill Gates. Everything matters because wh why, why do you think Donald Trump and everybody, even DeSantis and all these people, like why were they so gung-ho to sell these pharmacy products? Like, did they really believe in them? Maybe, it's a possibility. I don't know what's going on in their head. Maybe Big Pharma controls the television. Maybe Big Pharma controls both sides of politics. Maybe Big Pharma is a big donor like Anheuser-Busch, except bigger. So when it comes to these speech laws, do I think that Ron DeSantis is passing these because he thinks it's going to help Jewish people? I don't think so. Do I think he's passing it for Christians? They think so. I don't. Uh, I think he's passing it because the donors who fund Trump and DeSantis want these laws passed, and I don't think they'll give them the money if they don't listen. 
the mega donor on the right before he passed, now it'll probably be his wife if she wants to continue, uh, was Sheldon Adelson. Sheldon Adelson has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on the GOP, including tens of millions of dollars on Donald Trump. And he said on stage that he served in the American military and if, you know, his kids will serve Israel and, you know, he regrets essentially serving, serving America. He's basically on stage being like, yeah, I like Israel better, but, but you can't say that though. And they're passing speech laws, so schools can't say it, but schools can basically say other things. It's a religious bill, just not for your religion. It's pretty obvious what's going on, but whatever. Um, the one that he passed today in Israel, once again, I believe this is the second bill in Florida history ever passed on Florida soil. This is how blatant it is. They fly to a foreign country, they pass a bill in a foreign country for a foreign country right in front of your face and nobody cares. And the funny part is people are actually going to listen to me now about this because Trump programmed people to hate DeSantis like three months ago. I said this in 2019. This is the irony of all of it. Before I read the bill, I don't just hate Trump or hate DeSantis or hate this or hate, I don't hate like that. I'm not a hater. I just like the truth. I like my country. I don't, I don't have loyalty to another country. I just don't. I wish I did. Sometimes it's like, I wish I had somewhere to go. I don't. I'm born and raised in America. I'm Italian. I'm Polish. I don't know much about it. I don't speak the language. I can't go there really. So I'm American. With that being said, when I said this in 2019, no one wanted to hear it. But the funny part is all these people that just love DeSantis, they just overnight when Trump told them DeSantis was corrupt, they're like, DeSantis is corrupt. It's like, I was willing to call him out three years ago when you were on his nuts. No, sorry, I could have used a nicer thing, on his nuts. And nobody wanted to listen to me. And now all of a sudden Trump programmed you to hate DeSantis and now you're like the biggest DeSantis hater, but you don't even know what you're hating. You're just listening to Trump. So I'm glad people are willing to listen to my critique of DeSantis now because I've been making it for four years and it's fallen on deaf ears until Trump told people to dislike DeSantis. So thank you one way or another for considering what I'm saying now. I don't care how people get it. The truth is the truth. Um, the new one he passed is HB 269. So this one, the first one was more of a hate speech situation, you know, defining what hate speech is, saying that it can't be said in schools. Um, Trump actually passed an executive order almost identical, except it was making it harder to boycott, divest, or sanction Israel or protest Israel on a college campus or speak out against them. So just like DeSantis passed this in Florida, Donald Trump passed an executive order for the whole country to essentially shut down conversation on college campuses. And Charlie Kirk, uh, what's his name? Prager, Ben Shapiro. This is when I started getting blacklisted by a lot of conservative media. I started going on my friend's podcast. Guys, I'm not trying to say anything. I don't need anything from anyone. But there's a reason that people don't offer me jobs and people don't want to work with me. They know I'm a bigger star than everybody on their network. They know I'd get better numbers. They know I'm running circles around 95% of the talent they sign. But they've all essentially blacklisted me because they just want people to shut up about this topic. That's the truth. This is who controls the GOP and the Republican media. So when I started noticing that Shapiro and Prager were saying no safe spaces and they're selling a no safe spaces documentary with Adam Carolla, and I noticed that Trump passed an executive order to essentially create a safe space on a college campus for Israel and criticism of anything that they do irrationally in a way that was, it would be like passing a George Floyd hate speech law. You can't talk about crime statistics. You can't do this. You can't do that. I don't believe in hate speech laws. So I started speaking on, about this on podcasts back when I used to get invited more. And people were telling me, we have to cut the segment. 
we're sponsored by this person. We can't air that. We can't have you say that. They're calling you far right. They're doing this. They essentially tried to, without saying it publicly, blacklist me behind the scenes because I believe in the First Amendment and I'm a principled person that believes you shouldn't shut down Ben Shapiro on a college campus and you shouldn't shut down Abby Martin on a college campus. I don't even like Abby Martin, the left-wing progressive. I think she's kind of dumb, but she's, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, she's now getting shut down because of Trump's executive order. So, you know, the right wing is fake. This is why four years of Trump ends in vaccine sales and lockdowns. It's because the right wing is fake. They're not really fighting for your speech. They're not really fighting socialism. They're not really fighting Fauci. They're not really fighting Bill Gates. And they're not really fighting Gavin Newsom. They're friends with 90% of the people you think they're fighting. And they smile with a crooked, weaselly smile in your face as they print more money than Karl Marx on steroids. And people can't figure this stuff out. But for those listening, it's obvious. Um, back to this bill. HB 269. It, it's now a hate crime bill. So, you know, this one, in my opinion, it's not as bad, but it's basically trying to hype up these. If you break the law, like putting flyers on people's cars or have you ever gone to like an event and they put flyers on your cars or flyers by your door, it's essentially making that illegal. So if you're talking about Israel or Jews in any sort of way with flyers, it's hyping up those crimes, making it a way bigger crime and, uh, you know, trying to find you to the maximum amount or throw you in jail for doing so. This is what I'll say. I don't personally, and maybe this is an unpopular opinion. I think a crime is a crime. I understand that they classify it different, but if you do something violent to somebody, doesn't matter if that person's black, white, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Asian, gay, straight, like a crime is a crime. In my opinion, a violent crime is a violent crime. They're all evil. Black on black, evil. Black on white, evil. White on black, evil. Jew on Christian, evil. Christian on Jew, evil. A crime is a crime. I hate, uh, I don't understand this hate crime. It's like you'll go to jail for burning an LGBT flag quicker than you'll go to jail for burning an American flag. So that's what I think of hate crimes. I think they're all kind of trying to make a certain narrative seem worse than another when the truth is good is good and evil is evil. I don't personally believe in overhyping everything as a hate crime. If it's a crime, it's a crime. You know what I'm saying? But with that being said, my angle to this is, you know, during the lockdown, they made it illegal to digitally protest the lockdown. They locked us in our houses and they told us if we protested and made groups on Facebook, they were shutting it down. Then in New Jersey and other states, people tried to physically protest. They've taken away your digital right to protest. You want to physically protest. And now they're trying to make physical protests illegal, right? They did that during the lockdown. So it's like, you can't say this on Facebook. You can't say this on YouTube and you can't say this on Twitter. And you and then people are like, well, I guess I'll say it in person. It's like, well, you can't say this in person either. I see this about flyers. If you want to say certain things about statistics of Jewish ownership of media and other stuff, you can't say it on Facebook. You can't say it on YouTube. You can't say it almost anywhere online. So then people are making flyers and they're put, passing them out in person. And now Ron DeSantis is basically making that illegal. So I understand a crime is a crime. You can't litter. You can't you know, like some of it's like projecting things on buildings you don't own. I get that. If you don't own a building, you can't commit a crime. Crimes are crimes. I don't agree with crimes. I don't care who you are or if I agree with you or disagree. Don't be a criminal. With that being said, to me, this is just another Israeli loyalty. It's Ron DeSantis, you know, hop skipping for his donors, shaking his head like Carlton Banks and, you know, just showing him what a loyal good boy he is. And, you know, 
in my opinion, this is done for the donors. Uh, I don't think this is done organically. I don't think this is done equally. And, you know, if someone does the same thing about your race and your religion and passes out flyers, chances are they'll probably, no one will care. You know, it won't be considered a hate crime. They could probably get away with it. So I'm all about real equality. I know it's not like a perfect world where everything's going to be equal, but when it comes to the first amendment, I think it's for everybody. I don't think it's for a certain race. I don't think certain races should have special protections, but I understand also that's just not the way the world works. So you could, I read the whole bill. Um, a lot of it I think is somewhat fair game as far as like, yeah, a crime is a crime, but they're, they're basically just trying to hype up any sort of like passing out of flyers or physical activism you know, talking about Israel or Jewish statistics, which you're not allowed to talk about online. Um, overall, someone said this. So I think there's a lot of food for thought and consideration in there. And uh, I've, I've seen anomalies reporting over the past couple of years, and he's always got some interesting references. Uh, the, the one of um, uh, who was the GOP funder, uh, Sheldon Adelson. Yeah, like I've some, seen yep. we've played his speech where he said all that stuff. Yep. Which if it was in the reverse, DeSantis would be putting them in the clink. And yeah. I certainly hope that Jimmy Carter doesn't go to Florida on vacation because under this, you know, he, you know, this is exhibit number one right there. Well, it's, the, it's, you know, the dirty little secret, the elephant in the room. No one wants to comment on. It's one of these situations, even going back to 1967. I was wondering about the situation where they rose the flag and made it bigger and bigger and bigger and made it more conspicuous when that attack was going on, right? The fact that as that was going on, while that was happening, they still disregarded that sign. At the same time, there's already damage control going on. Like when you go and you know, read up into what actually happened, there's already damage control going on on the side of American politicians you know, in regards to the state of Israel planning like how they would sell this, what happened, what narrative they're going to create. Like this, that was 1967. So when you fast forward to what's going on today and, you know, you get into. Just look at how Orthodox the, Jews were treated in Israel during the lockdowns. Yeah. It's different uniforms, same actions. I've seen it before, only it's not black and white footage. That's right. but you're not allowed to say anything like that in Florida, according to whatever the State Department told DeSantis to pass. So right. we're going to get to the so State Department. You can Department see how much control APAC, yeah. of course, ADL, but APAC especially, like has had over American politicians. And DeSantis is one of many in the GOP and uh, on the Democratic side that have essentially full control over this like one bipartisan issue. Well, I mean, Mearsheimer and Walsh. For Back Israel. in the day, wrote the the Israel lobby book. That was New York Times bestseller, all about APAC and its sure. influence and these sort of things. And there's okay. lots of countries that have lobbies. I don't see anyone, British you know, too. anyone getting up the on the British lobby. Anyone seems... checked on that lately? Because it's not just one group of people that are doing all these things. That just happened to be the topic of the story with DeSantis. He wasn't going to Britain to pass some anti talk about King Charles Chucky the Third law. That's all. There's a difference. That's true. There's a difference. I'd also like to get to this later because this is a new, uh, you know, the world's coming apart world, issue. Yeah. We should probably look at that. But the the next clip is going to tie in with everything you've heard so far in the episode. So uh, <clears throat> strap yourself in because uh, he's not just the author of the Belarus secret with a double cross. 
connection of who funded the Nazis working behind the scenes, the Western financiers. Uh, he's a Nazi hunter. He will, he also wrote the unholy Trinity and he wrote a book called the secret war against the Jews. He's a Nazi investigator for the United States department of justice. He's a contributor to uh, the Holocaust Museum and worked with fundraisers and on the board of directors and these sort of things. He's a good friend to Israel. So I want you to listen to what he has to say, because he also just happens to be Irish and he happened to have a cosmic NATO security clearance that is above anything Q ever claimed to have access to. So I'm going to give you 15 minutes of what is five hours of footage from uh, all the interview questions came from his books and he's got many of them. So uh, we're going to spend a few minutes with John Loftus, and the purpose is, in this story, you will not only hear about Hugh Wilford's, the, the cult was it, the Mighty Wurlitzer, the Cold War, America's Great Game, this book, this book where it says the CIA started working with, with uh, the Arabs, you're going to hear the, the actual story. Yeah, you're going to hear the actual it. story. And then you're going to get to the part about that how that group took over the United States State Department and the Central Intelligence Agency. And then you're going to connect a lot of dots between all the stories tonight because you've been paying attention. You deserve that reward. So let's start serving that up. This is a clip uh, from my uh, private collection. So LD has it in the control room. And let's let that roll, as they say. My name is John Loftus. I uh, was an Army officer, a federal prosecutor at the headquarters of the Justice Department in Washington. Then I worked for the Office of Special Investigations, which was the Nazi War Crimes Unit that was set up during the Carter and Reagan administrations. And uh, unfortunately, I discovered that many of the Nazis I'd been assigned to prosecute were already on the government payroll. So uh, ended up being a whistleblower. And uh, in 1982, I appeared on an Emmy Award-winning segment of 60 Minutes. Uh, Mike Wallace got the Emmy Award. My family got the death threats. It was a great trade-off. And uh, after that, I went to private practice in law in Boston and set up my own law firm for a while. But over the years, I've become a uh, private lawyer for whistleblowers. And I charge my clients a dollar apiece. I'm the worst-paid lawyer in America, but among the better informed. As in order to be a client, you have to have a security clearance above top secret. I had a Q clearance for nuclear weapons secrets, an SI clearance, which is the uh, wiretapping NSA clearance, and a cosmic clearance for everything in NATO that was top secret and above. So I could read the British intelligence files and the Dutch intelligence files, as well as the American files. And uh, so I was the first person in a half a century that was able to go through the classified vaults where all these old intelligence files are stored. And they're stored out in Suitland, Maryland, an interesting place. There were 20 security vaults underground, like bank vaults. And each vault is one acre in size. It's a little bit of, remember the, the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, that's where the underground vaults are like, only not as organized. But uh, I was looking for something unique, not just for files about Nazi war criminals, but evidence that might suggest that the hunt for Nazi war criminals had been obstructed. Evidence that the trials had been fixed. My first boss was a prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials, the banker's trial. 
And he was the one who told me that he thought the trials had been fixed, that resources were taken away from him and the other people who were investigating the banks and uh, forcing them to close down some of their investigations. So he and I had both been army officers who had intelligence training. And so I had two jobs. One was to investigate Nazis from the nation of Belarus that might have immigrated to America, and also to look for evidence of this, who fixed the Nuremberg trials. Yeah. And the two sort of clashed together. This is why I ended up in 60 Minutes. What did you discover, and why have you de dedicated the last 40 years of your life to exposing these secrets? Hmm. I discovered that a small corrupt group of American officials worked with the British Secret Service to relocate Nazi war criminals to the United States. Now, to be fair, they didn't really realize they were Nazi war criminals on the American side. The British knew they were. But the British said, look, we have all these great spy rings in Eastern Europe and in the Arab states. And they may have fought with the Germans in the last war, but these people are not really Nazis. They only fought with the Germans because they hated the Russian communists more. They're really anti-communist freedom fighters. And uh, some of the dimwits in our State Department, they, they, they bought that. And so we took over the British networks after World War II, not realizing that the British weren't sending us freedom fighters. They were sending us the dregs of the Nazi war criminals from the Arab states and from Eastern Europe. They were recruiting ex-Nazi terrorists to fight World War III. And it was one of the most stupid and corrupt things that had ever done. But as I dug deeper and deeper in the files, I realized it really had nothing much to do with ideology. This is all about money. You know, it, Dulles wasn't just the nitwit that could conned by Kim Philby into letting Nazi war criminals relocate to America. Alan Dulles was a Wall Street corrupt corporate lawyer. And they had their own agenda. It wasn't about national security at all. It was about bankers' security. It was all about the money. It was about setting up new cartels, monopolies, and trusts. Um, you know, they, in the British dominated, for example, the oil fields on the Arabian Peninsula. So uh, we used guys like Alan Dulles, who then was in our State Department, and we arranged to send guns and ammunition to uh, this rebel group of tribesmen led by Ibn Saud, and that became the House of Saud. And we, we literally gave them the guns to put themselves in power in the 1930s. And they took over Mecca and Medina. Um, unfortunately, their religious mindset was somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun. They had a philosophy called Wahhabism or Salafism, which has been declared a heresy against Islam you know, more than 60 times before 1900. But once they had oil, you know, all of a sudden the Saudis could buy legitimacy. The Dulles brothers have now borrowed under the government Truman's been re-elected, they have to hide the Nazi connection. They have to hide the Saudi connection. They have to hide the Bolshevik connection. And 
it's business as usual. But it's not about an ideological conspiracy. I mean, they were funding the communists at the same time as they were funding the Nazis for this handful of really greedy people in Wall Street. It was just about making money. So an intelligence agency practices, uh, best practices of the world over history, uh, it offers plausible deniability when they externalize and use these other factions to kind of do their dirty work. Yes? Yeah, over, it's useful in a long period of time to have a proxy army, if you will. For example, um, there was an Arab Nazi movement and it was called the, the Muslim Brotherhood run by a guy named Hassan al-Banna, and he was founded it in 1928. And he was a real admirer of Adolf Hitler, wrote him letters all the time to the young Hitler saying, I like your philosophy, I read your book, we gotta work together. And they did. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood became the arm of the Abwehr, the German intelligence network, in the Middle East. The Muslim Brotherhood were Nazi spies all over the Middle East, and they went from a half a million members to three quarters of a million members. And Philby sold them to the Dulles Brothers. And uh, the, when Nasser and the secularists came to power in Egypt in the 1950s, they had this huge army of Nazis running around their country, and they threw them out. And Dulles went to the Saudis, who were his business clients, and asked them to take them in. And this gets really funny here. The Saudis agreed because the, at least the Egyptian Nazis and the Muslim Brotherhood Nazis were literate. So the Saudis gave them job as school teachers at the madrasas. And so young men like Osama bin Laden were literally educated by first generation Nazis. And the brother of the chief Nazi propagandist, Qutub, was the guy who was the tutor for Osama bin Laden. So you had a perfect storm of Nazi racism and Saudi religious bigotry coming together with the relocation of the Muslim Brotherhood to Saudi Arabia. And this is the same Muslim Brotherhood that you know they were still fighting recently in Egypt. They never went away. Um, this is the second generation Nazis are there. When you think about it, the Muslim Brotherhood and its offshoots, Al-Qaeda and Hamas, they are the same philosophy. They're, they're against democracy, against Western civilization, they hate the English and the Americans, and above all, the Jews. So nothing has changed. Uh, we're still fighting in the Middle East because Philby conned us, conned Dulles, into taking over the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, that was going to be his proxy army of terrorists to fight the communist terrorists in the Middle East. And boy, did we get suckered in. Well, let's talk about the Dulles Brothers for a second. You state that Alan Dulles was one of the worst traders in American history. Uh, can you talk about the Dulles brothers in the context of the 20s, 30s, and 40s? In the 20s, 30s, and 40s, the Dulles brothers were helping the Wall Street robber barons take their money out of the United States and relocate it to friendly foreign fascists, you know, whether it was Saudi or, or even the Bolsheviks in Russia or the German fascists, because they could reestablish the monopolies that these guys loved. But also, they knew that, you know, as Hitler came to power, he was turning on them. 
And the very first law that Hitler passed when he came to power was to ban foreign ownership of German companies. So the Dulles brothers went to work on cloaking. And they set up Swiss companies in a Swiss bank that would own the stock of German banks. And it was the German banks that would own the stock of the German corporations. So that's how they got around the Hitler's block. Hitler's finance minister, by the way, Halmar Schacht, was born in Brooklyn. And, you know, it's another business associate of the Dulles brothers. The, uh, you know, it was all about the money in those days. Seventy percent of the money that went to rebuild the Third Reich came from Wall Street and from the city of London. Wall Street and the city of London. That's not what we're taught in school. Wonder why we're not taught such things in school. I'm looking for the article we're going to cover here out of the CFR's foreign affairs from this quarter. Oh, look, they do have an article. Uh, this, oh, hmm. yeah, I do. I, I found the article. Here we go. It's called Israel's One State Reality. And boy, Palestine looks to be popular in the graphic. I don't know who did the art. Well, illustration by Guillaume Casasas. Casus right here it says page 121 so this is the council on foreign relations foreign affairs for may june 2023 the non-aligned world hopefully this is not referring to a shift the west the rest and the new global disorder 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 there you go the new world global disorder interesting and the subtitle there it's time to give up the two-state solution okay Oh, I see. It's time to give up the two-state solution. Oh, I see. Yep. And uh, these people here are the editors of One State Reality. What is Israel-Palestine? Interesting. So I'm not going to, uh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give away their fine quality journalism, but there are a couple pages in here that I thought were uh, <clears throat> interesting. So we'll go to this passage. Uh, let's see if I can get this to align get everything we can go to this paragraph right here some implications of this one state reality are clear the world will not stop caring about palestinian rights no matter how fervently many supporters of israel and arab rulers wish they would violence dispossession the human rights abuses have escalated over the last year and the risk of large-scale violent confrontation grows every day that Palestinians are locked in this ever-expanding system of legalized oppression, legalized oppression and Israeli encroachment. That could be a hate crime in Florida, if you read that out loud. Apparently, from what we just heard from the State Department. Legalized oppression. That sounds a bit oxymoronic to me. Legalized oppression. Forced to choose between Israel's Jewish identity and liberal democracy, Israel has chosen the former. It it, It has locked... It has locked in a system of Jewish supremacy. No, it has locked in a system of Jewish oh, supremacy. I, I almost thought that wasn't what it said, but that's what it says. <laughs> no, it's what, yeah. Wherein non-Jews are structurally discriminated against or excluded in a tiered scheme. Some non-Jews have most of all, but not all of the rights that Jews have, while most non-Jews live under severe segregation, separation, and domination. Hmm. Is this the Council on Foreign Relations? I'm just checking to make sure. A foreign affair. Okay. It's not. I want to make sure it wasn't something I was going to get banned from YouTube for reading or something like that. What you reading for? Uh, let's see. Camp David. 
which Back used in, to be an assassin into, training camp. Into That's the next, here's the next quote. Gets into a little bit of the history there. Uh, page 124, that. its members boast of their mission to create a new Israel in their image, less liberal, more religious, and more willing to own discrimination against non-Jews. Netanyahu has written a quote, Israel is not a state of all of its citizens, but rather of a, of the Jewish people and only it. The man he appointed as Minister of National Security, Itmar Ben-Gavir, has declared that Gaza should be ours and that the Palestinians can go. Saudi Arabia or other places like Iraq or Iran. This extremist vision has long been shared by at least a minority of Israelis and has a strong grounding in Zionist thought and practice. It began gaining adherence soon after Israel occupied the Palestinian territories in the 1967 war. It's almost like they have a time machine. They knew we we're going to talk about USS Liberty and the deep state encyclopedia. And they're like, how can we contribute to Grand Theft World? Until recently, the one-state reality was rarely acknowledged by important actors, and those who spoke the truth out loud were ignored or punished for doing so. Over here, page 125. But even within its pre-1967 borders, Israel's democracy has limits, which become apparent when viewed through the lens of citizenship. Israel's Jewish identity and its one-state reality have produced an intricate series of legal categories that distribute differentiated rights, <laughs> responsibilities, and protections. Are you following along, Tony? Hmm. Right? Did you, you just I'm hear starting, anomaly? I'm starting to see, report, a, right? yeah, and I'm now, to see a pattern CFR. and that juxtaposition between anomaly. Is CFR above or below the CFR. State Department? Oh, wait. Hillary Clinton, when she was <laughs> Secretary of State, she said the CFR now has a Washington, D.C. office, and we don't have to go to New York to get our marching orders anymore. Maybe hmm. we could find that clip because that's a real thing in reality. Let's see how so you're telling me a lot of the policy guidance is taken from these supranational organizations that were designed by a British, British hegemon. Back yes. in the late 19th century. And I'm saying, according to the State Department and DeSantis, system. reading the Foreign Affairs Journal, <laughs> right. getting dicey. Good. It's 2018 nation-state law defines Israel as, quote, the nation-state of the Jewish people, end quote, and holds that, quote, the exercise of the right to national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people, end quote. It makes no, no mention of democracy or equality for non-Jewish citizens. It's like uh, oh. they have that legislation to theocratic, Christians over there. It's a theo so it's a theocratic apartheid, basically. Pseudo-theocratic. Yeah, that, <clears throat> that's the uh, episode title for next week, LD. Theocratic <laughs> apartheid. Theocratic apartheid. Let's jump in with both feet. Let's, here's page 126. As long as hope <clears throat> existed for a two-state solution, I think that's what Jimmy Carter was talking about, Palestine, peace, not apartheid. Hmm. He's saying what you've got right now is apartheid. He'd Maybe rather have always, peace, right? Yeah. That's this book. Let me make sure. Peace, not apartheid. Jimmy Carter. He's thinking real hard about the wall. hard liberal. Walls are okay over there, but it's not over here, Tony. Yeah, right. They can have walls. You know, they can experiment on their citizenry. And they can have medical IDs and they can Sponsored have by vaccine Pfizer. passports and, you know. As long as hope existed for a two-state solution that would see the Palestinians' rights re recognized, it was possible to view the situation within Israel's 1967 boundaries 
as one as uh, of de jure equality combined with de facto discrimination against some citizens, an unfortunate but common reality in much of the world. But when one acknowledges the one state reality, something more pernicious is revealed. In that one state, there are some whose movement travels civil status, economic activities, property rights, and access to public services are severely restricted. Huh, that goes on here in America too. Mm. Interesting. Boy, they are saying the quiet part out loud. Right. What's going on here? Continue. Uh, a, this is, this is crazy. a substantial right, share of lifelong residents with deep and continuous roots in the territory of that state are rendered stateless. And all these categories and gradations of marginalization are enforced by legal, political, and security measures imposed by state actors who are accountable to only a portion of the population. It has been defined under international law and by the International Criminal Court as a legalized scheme of racial segregation and discrimination and deemed a crime against humanity. Major human rights organizations, including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, have applied the term to Israel. I didn't say that. I'm reading the Council on Foreign Relations, Foreign Affairs from this quarter. So it continues on quite interestingly. Let's see. So... Uh, let's see. So uh, let's see. I have to go back one more sentence. Major human rights organizations. So have many academics. According to a March 22, uh, 2022 poll of the Middle East focused scholars who are members of three large academic associations, 60% of respondents describe the situation in Israel and the Palestinian territories as a one state reality with inequality akin to apartheid. End quote. Wow. Now the term, the term may not be a perfect fit. Israel's system of structural discrimination is more severe than those of most illiberal states, but it is based not on race. As apartheid was defined in South Africa and is defined under international law, but on ethnicity, nationality, and religion. So they're saying there's a little, you got to come up with a new phrase, don't you? That's what they're saying. Perhaps this distinction matters to those who wish to take legal action against Israel. Funny that, uh, was it Kime Weitzman and uh there's a couple other people at the time that greatly admired the apartheid developing in South Africa and wrote letters to Cecil Rhodes and these sort of things. And the British developed those concentration camps in South Africa that Hitler later persecuted the Jews under. So it's really ironic learning the history. But we're just following Hertzl, along. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Apartheid is not a magic word that alters reality when invoked. But its entry into the political mainstream reveals a broad recognition that Israeli rule is designed to maintain maintain Jewish supremacy throughout all the territory the state controls. So let's see. Is there any? Or is that the gist of the article? But there's one more part. From page 132, jumping a couple pages ahead. This long article, I'm not trying to plagiarize or uh, like disclose their whole thing so you don't have to read it for yourself but i just wanted to give you some reasons why you might want to read foreign affairs even though you might think it's published by people who support the destruction of america i would say that that's the exact reason you should have an interest in what these people are planning for your future the one state reality has especially roiled the politics of jewish americans from the earliest years of zionism most jewish american supporters of israel held as sacrosanct the aspiration for Israel to be simultaneously Jewish and liberal. Netanyahu's greatest government might be the breaking point for this group. 
It is difficult to square a commitment to liberalism with support for a single state that offers the benefits of democracy to Jews and now seems to tread on some of those, but explicitly withholds them from the majority of its non-Jewish inhabitants. DeSantis just flew there, by the way. I don't know if you heard that. When From 134, when Israel violates international laws and liberal norms, the United States should denounce Israel for those violations as it would any other state. Washington needs to stop shielding Israel from international organizations when it faces valid allegations of transgressions against international law. That whole thing with the USS Liberty, I think I'm pretty sure that was against international law. Maybe, maybe someone should investigate that. Bueller. But the one state reality demands more. Looked at through a prism, Israel resembles an apartheid state. I'm not rereading the prior pages. This is 135. Instead of exempting Israel from the strong norm against apartheid, yeah, it's pretty much shunned everywhere else, right, Tony? That's right. Apartheid's not like a favorable yeah. thing. It's, not a, it's not considered a to be a, a moral evil. Enshrined in international law, Washington must reckon with the reality it helped create and begin viewing that reality, talking about it, and interacting with it honestly. The United States should stand up for international Israeli and Palestinian non-governmental organizations, human rights organizations, and individual activists who have been demonized for courageously calling out the structural injustice. Yeah, let me know when that happens, right? Because the United States does bear responsibility for all of this, but we're not alone. We're not alone. So reasons you should you read really think they're foreign affairs those groups. I mean, give me a break. For this quarter, I have... Showing you a little bit about it. I mean, you can see about Europe's post-imperial empire, the America's sort of, Middle East delusions. I it's mean, euphemizing is- like this like idea of a one-state Israel by stating that you know there should be some NGOs, international balance that should be like recognized by United States and other countries. That's just it's an absurd circumstance considering the pressure that's been put on the Palestinians and the complete human rights abuses that have been done to them. And one of my favorite things when reading foreign affairs is to to look on like the, the credits page. Let's sure. see who's running stuff right now. This Daniel Kurtz Fallon, Fallon, he's a Fallon. He's the editor. He's the Peter C. Peter G. Peterson chair. Is that the guy from Blackstone Group? That is the Peter G. Peterson. It might have been mentioned in Project Constellation. So anyway, this guy's the chair because Pete's got you know he's old. He doesn't go to work anymore. Uh, anyone else we need to see in here? There's a Fleming dresser. I wonder if she's related to the Fleming. Uh, was it uh, uh, Jardine Fleming Jardine would be Fleming, the yeah. merger of the opium with the Ian Fleming banking family and no, no other usual suspects. So they've changed a lot of people out. Used to see good people on here. Let's see who's the board of advisors. Anyone good. Now they used to have some big names, but now they try to keep it on a down low. Used to see like Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and, you know, all the movers and shakers of, the New World Order's use of America as it's prophylactic as it fucks the world. You used to see their names all the time on that credits yeah. page, but they're they're getting boring. Boring with that. All right. So now we're setting up. We're getting close to the intermission of tonight's show. And uh a few words before we go forward. Yeah, I agree with Anomaly on I don't have hate in my heart for any of these groups. I think yeah, that, I uh, that. we can't make decisions in history if we've been fed bunk history and we have to get to know it. 
And it's not about uh, blaming people yesterday about what's going on today. But if we don't take an honest account of what happened yesterday, there was a, you know, a four- we can't properly defend ourselves or prepare ourselves for what, you know, might be coming ahead. Yeah. So if we've important. never adjudicated the assassination of a sitting president right. to the proper extent it should have been done, then you're not going to have an honest investigation of anything that follows that, are you? And those people would end up still being, oh, they'd be in control. The people who funded the Nazis that killed Kennedy, they're still in control. It's almost like the Nazis won, but they changed uniforms. Changed uniforms, rebranded a little bit. Rebranded. Under yeah, like little, different little nationalist, like fascist movement. movements. Yeah, right. Re-brand. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. That's like one of the big points is about the psychological sort of conditioning that was understood by these intelligence communities in order to be able to sell it to the public either hide or sell, depending on the scenario, whether or not they have these terrorist quote unquote cells around the, you know, around the world or, you know, that they're doing it, all these different coups in the name of justice and democracy and human rights and all the same sort of nonsense. They've tried to sell it to the American public for 70 plus years. Here, I'm going to see if I can write it down. I think I have a good little summary of this. Let's see. Zoom in. Mm -hmm. They have, terrorist cells yep. because terrorism cells. There you go. It's pretty much uh, MI6 plan on a card. Took a long time for chat GPT to distill all that down, but that's what we got with it right there. I'm just kidding. No more chat GPT tonight, at least not right now. Oh, um, what a pun. But yeah, I'm I'm saying we we need to look at their ideologies and the reasons that they're doing these things. And it's not so much about uh, like when I say uh, Great Britain or the UK, I mean, the government, the people that took control of those people as well. So I find commonality with people from all over the planet and I don't hold hate in my heart for any of these groups, religious groups, national groups, any of these things. I do, however, appreciate America and I see what's going on. And if they want to make saying things about what's going on illegal, that really tells you that uh, the people that you can't criticize, well, they might be in, in control, right? If you want to know who yeah. controls you, see who you can't criticize is the famous saying on that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's important to understand that we're criticizing a philosophy, a philosophy of power that has manifested at, at, at various times. And yeah, human I'm not history. even criticizing Zionism. And, I'm a critic. I'm criticizing apartheid. But it's the pursuit I'm for criticizing power. human it's experimentation. Exactly. Yeah. Right. The yeah, human rights abuses. Yeah. Things that are fundamentally immoral and, and fundamentally evil. That's what we're criticizing. It can be any government. It can be any situation, be any powerful group. But there's this unfortunate continuity of a philosophy that they seem to adopt. And as far as historical continuity, it really, for our concerns today and how it works, it starts with essentially the 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 tail end of the conspicuous idea of the British Empire. And yeah, where does before the foreign more than hid behind you know the American sort of like an imperial model, which is like it's its own child. Where's the British Foreign Office end and the United States State Department begin? It's like trying to study religion without studying psychedelic plants. Yeah, that's good. These point. things are connected in a very that's a good analogy way. for it. Yeah, so I yeah. think it's important to understand that. And like when when you also to the hate speech thing, when you start to outlaw hate speech, that's a slippery slope. It's like hate speech. Then because you get into that gray area, is like you then can't criticize. How else are you going to know? Does any sort of legitimate criticism? Legit, sorry, what? 
How else are you going to know who's ignorant and racist if you if you tell them they can't say things? We need to know these things. America has First Amendment speech, which means if you're wrong, if you're racist, any of these things, it still went because America is different than these other countries that had the right from the top down to control people's thoughts and actions and words. And guess what that is? It's a self-correction mechanism. But the self-correction mechanism works paradoxically because people then get to debate on topics that are fundamentally wrong or evil, racism, bigotry, um, terrorism, whatever. And like you can, so you can debate these issues. So you can actually have open discourse that actually makes everyone more intelligent, makes everyone more responsible because people can make decisions based on who they consider to, you know, be able to present their case better. And Europe, like you a can't logical question, society. For instance, in Europe, you can't question the Holocaust. It's you crime. Can't question the Holocaust. What if in America, bills get passed where you can't question? USS Liberty, because they're close to that. The JFK assassination. What if COVID nineteen narrative? Nine eleven. Nine eleven. Yeah. The things that actually have gone on and uh, major body counts have stacked up in the wake of such events. School shootings. Any, any the right to of- know your environment and the right to know yourself. If those two things are denied, that's uh game over. That's checkmate. They don't even need robots and AI and all the scary stuff. What's been the number one thing they've done in all those types of situations? Just notice a pattern. They they seem to shut down debate. Any sort of legitimate debate, any sort of individual has done their due diligence, their research, and is well-spoken enough to be able to um, compose themselves and present themselves in front of these individuals almost uh, universally are silenced. So I think from that standpoint, it should be recognized. Just look what happened with COVID, 9-11. Look what happened with the various, um, the Boston bombing. Look what happened with, uh, you know, uh, Oklahoma City. We can go back before 9-11. 7-7 bombing. Oh, my goodness. Oklahoma City, 7-7. Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, the 7-7 bomb. Yeah, there's just so many situations. And that's one of the key themes is that they shut down any sort of formal debate around the subject. And usually the narrative, the conclusion has already been reached so they have to now you know get this they have to yeah. lay down the sort of false argument to get people to sort of like back into that without having to think just like a road scholar <clears throat> wrote the whole very clever Oswald jfk assassination summary very, memo yeah, on sunday very, very clever way to make people feel like they're coming to their own conclusions when in fact like the whole conclusion's been perfectly scripted for them well you need people like uh walter cronkite to be the authoritative slow talker and you know and when he's not sitting at the right hand of Satan voice. and hanging out with Hillary Clinton, <laughs> uh, he's telling you your news every night. Now, LD did do a, uh, us a favor. He went and found the clip where Hillary's talking about where the State Department gets its marching orders from, just in case you at home have not had the pleasure of seeing this historic piece of American video. LD, go ahead and <laughs> let it roll. I know it's not too long, but it's just about as good as Biden saying and God damn it, he got fired by the end of the day. Also on the Council on Foreign Relations stage with a Rhodes Scholar named Richard Haas, chairman of the Council of Foreign Relations. Let's go to this Hillary Clinton uh, 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 salting the rim, as it were, of the CFR through her speech. very much, um, Richard, and I am delighted to be here in these new headquarters. Um, I have been often to, uh, I guess, the mothership in New York City. 
but it's good to have an outpost of the council right here down the street from the state department we get a lot of advice from the council so this will mean i won't have this far to go to be told what we should be doing and how we should think about the future it was nice of her to take the toss like you know she acknowledged me at the beginning there i don't want to attract too much attention no she's also talking to richard haas chairman of the council on foreign relations Rhodes scholar uh, and I just mentioned that a Rhodes Scholar wrote the summary of the Oswald Kennedy assassination on Sunday night. It's called the Katzenbach Memo. Mm -hmm. It's a famous one. I can show it to you in History Blueprint. We go over here. We type in Katzenbach or something like that. K-A-T-Z. Oh, the Katzenbach Memo. Oh, you know who he wrote it to, Tony? Do you remember? Do you remember this part? Mm. He wrote it to Bill Moyers. It was no, LBJ's chief of staff before okay. he was interviewing Joseph Campbell on PBS, <laughs> right? The nice old man that talks to the Bill, Bill Joseph Campbell about the hero's journey. He used to be the hatchet man for LBJ after the assassination. So just telling you, I don't know if he's on Epstein's they client their, list. Yeah, you got to get your start somewhere. The Katzenbach memo. <clears throat> Uh, Katzenbach wrote this memo by hand on the evening of Sunday, the 24th of November, a few hours after Lee Harvey Oswald had been shot by, dead by Jack Ruby. The typed version was prepared the following morning and sent to Bill Moyers, assistant to President Johnson. So a Rhodes Scholar wrote up the summary to send so that LBJ could be brought up to date on what happened in the Kennedy assassination. So, that doesn't recognize it. That doesn't signal any significant amount of power. Not at all. Not no. at all. I bet he also I'm got a memo very... saying, hey, uh, you're not going to fight back against the USS Liberty getting tanked today, buddy. They like their memo their memos and dossiers. You know, that's what like to operate. They do. In between, you know, with middlemen. Yeah. Yeah. Dossiers and dangles is what they like. Dossiers and dangles. All right. So uh, we're coming up to intermission for tonight. And uh Let's call, I'm going to call audible because I don't know that it was totally defined. So we're going to do a uh, first half hour of hour four of the ultimate history lesson with John Taylor Gatto. And then whoosh, behind curtain number two, we have two Jake Tran documentaries from this past week. One on the shrinking money supply. Very good. Highly recommend understanding that dynamic, but that's not what we're going with. We're going with his one down uh, lower on the list. LD it's a, uh, the evolution and history of schooling, which is interesting, oh, interesting because we've been playing the ultimate history lesson and he gets a couple of these little facts wrong, but overall, it's okay. he's got the arch of Robert Barron's created a school system. So we don't have education to challenge their status quo. Like he gets yeah, that all in there. And I think it's it, indoctrination. Uh, right? Yeah. And then my other honorable mention was there was like a decrypting Mr. Robot series video. It was oh, about really? 28. Oh, it was about 28 minutes long. Uh, the YouTube producer was called Moon, I believe. And it's in the playlist there if you want to check, check that out. out. But uh, I found it to be interesting. I only watched uh, Mr. Robot like the first season or so. I and, watched the uh, whole series. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't catch the whole. To see what, what so this kind of distills it down to. and explains who Mr. Robot was and all that sort of stuff. So it's heavily I, symbolic, obviously. Yeah. Save me some time. But. Uh, I uh, appreciate the uh, the creative nature of what was trying to be dealt with in that movie as far as the opening scene. Yeah. That, was a, that was a really good scene. I was like, I want to see more. 
what's this what's this guy a very to? interesting series that's, yeah uh, but i think that's too long for the intermission at this yeah. point so we're going to go with uh gatto and then something that complements that and in the yeah. story that gatto is talking about everything else we've talked about tonight in this episode is kind of like encapsulated within this meta view of we were all through the education system which taught us to believe the media which lied to us about all these big events that you've been hearing about all night otherwise you'd be up to speed and know more than me on the uss liberty incident for example right so knowing about these things and helping other people find the evidence so they can other otherwise uh, uh elsewise like find the things that are real on the map that have been hidden to us those are the things that are valuable to find. They would not hide these things from us. Yeah, unacquired. If it wasn't a valuable epiphany on the other side, exactly. You can't know about all these people getting decorated to these say convenient Shh. neglected aspects they hide. From right, history. that's convenient coincidental. They like to tell not a, lot a of, pattern here of organization or orchestration whatsoever, because now it's a, it's a crime to think. Remove the pieces. It makes it look like it's just some sort of noise that there isn't any sort of well, if you move, Tony, Tony, come on, man. If you remove That's the right pieces, it looks like it's Arab terrorists, bro. Come <laughs> on. If you just remove these couple pieces, well, Arab terrorism all day conclusions for 20 sure. years I know. in Afghanistan I know. and Iraq, because they remove a couple pieces and you're like, Hey, they're over there. The evil people are over there in the caves. Go get them. Yep. Use the Moab on well, them, the mother of all bombs. Well, use those. They didn't create, but they, they the helped the cult of pressure bombs, sure. right? Go use all your new war toys on those people over there because they got a different way of life. While they cultivated a lot of those terrorist cells because they're the ones who inhabited or inherited them from the British. Like that's what John Loftus is pointing out. And then like obviously were cultivated or, you know, established greatly during the World War II. But those fascist cells continue to remain. I mean, part of them are in Eastern Europe. We call it the Azov Battalion. But, you know, when it comes to Al-Qaeda, the database, when it comes to Operation Cyclone and like essentially... To taking the you know these very extremist forms of Islam and using that as like the preaching card for denouncing like Western values as a way to like build up this like it looks small so man of a terror TV. cell. It oh, looks yeah. scary it, when it's Peter brilliant Bergen. For, it's brilliant when Peter Bergen, tactics. the only journalist in the world who can find Osama bin Laden, <laughs> Peter Bergen in his British accent says, "Tell all, the world all these scary things," and then they show the pictures of these guys working out in the jungle gyms and stuff, and it's like they're really scary, and they just keep the they keep they keep the clips short, like uh, Spielberg so had to do in Jaws, anomalies, like yeah. he would show you twenty seven frames of the shark because if you saw thirty two frames, you'd know it's all bullshit, and but by hiding those five frames, neglected aspect, dude, they, exactly. I don't know, seeing exactly. repeating patterns. But it's not uh, ap- apophenia or paranoia or what was it? Para- Apophaticism? No, come on. Apo. I'm going to get learnified here. A priori? I got it. No, 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 no. Let's get learnified. Unless you're at home screaming the name. Apophenia. And then no, the other apophenia. one is paradoilia. Uh, paradoidal, yeah. these are seeing patterns and things that out don't actually have patterns these is under uh this is under pattern recognition right so they do have there are some disorders like if you start seeing like alphabets in the clouds and stuff like that and take it seriously then you got some problems the pattern recognition being done tonight in episode 130 uh does not fall fall under either of those two categories and uh yeah i mean you guys gotta do better than that because somebody in the future is going to be like, oh, it's this. Well, no, it's this. 
Like, no, we address that and that. Thank problem you with that much. is then they have to assume that everyone that's experiencing this. We can hear you complaining the in the future. Condition, so at what point? Oh, that's what the DSM is for. So it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, like everyone that's seeing the same patterns must have these conditions. So therefore, it's OK to read the DSM, Tony, as long as you don't read the old DSM. Because <laughs> what was true 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, oh, actually for a long time, it's no longer true. If the DSM says it's no longer true. They don't need science. God, they vote it's, on it's, it. It's, 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 it's a like, consensus. It's actually Tony Fauci science. Like God's word. It's like but socialism, uh, communism. It's like a Soviet science. That's what a council is. A Soviet council uh, on foreign relations. A Soviet on foreign relations. They're just Sovietizing they stuff. Around, don't worry about table. it. Don't you be know, such a species. At the table. Species. All right. We are lined up to uh, refuel here during the intermission. We will cover possibly a couple other stories when we come back because there is more meat on the table here to be covered. Uh, we're going to go to the Ultimate History Lesson, Hour 4, first 30 minutes. John Taylor Gatto in my former living room. And uh, let's see what we can learn because now this is like the, the last three hours of this session, and we're in the second of the last three hours, is the part where it all comes together. So those of you who listened to hour one and two, and you got the context and you got the names and the places, now you get to understand what's actually going on at a much higher level than they would want you to know uh, comfortably. And uh, they're losing their peace of mind because you're watching this. So thank you and uh, enjoy this intermission. It's all good for right now. Okay. Some won't be up there. I just wanted to make sure. That was loud and clear. All right. Uh, First, I would like to present you with a book. Not that you don't have enough books, but this particular book was written by a friend of Thomas Beckett, and he wrote it for Thomas Beckett. For Thomas Beckett, didn't have, in this author's opinion, enough intellectual self-defense to do what he was doing, and he was trying to help him out. And his name is John of Salisbury, and it was written in the 12th century. And I thought, if there was such a thing as reincarnation, this guy reminds me of you and that you would greatly enjoy this uh, I will read it with pleasure. 12th century thank, defense thank you, Rich. of logic and reason in a time of irrationality. And I took the liberty of, uh, just in the prologue, I marked a couple pages there that has some, there's a couple quotes in there where he basically lays out why he's doing it. I thought, you know, I got a chuckle out of it. Out of it and I thought you could always use a good laugh now and then. This will be... The very next thing I read. All right, now I have one last bit of housekeeping. Let me see. If you could read that to the camera while at the same time holding this mug and it'll be the intro for the episode. Or you could change it however you like. Give, give me the high sign. Hi, I'm John Taylor Gatto, and this is what you've been missing. Awesome. Yesterday, the name of R. Gordon Lawson came up, and you raised your eyebrows. What does that name mean to you? Well, it means to me Soma, the magic mushroom, and that Lawson wasn't some fringe nut, but some Wall Street heavy hitter. So... I read it with great pleasure, not once, but until it fell apart. 
before you leave today, I have a DVD for you. I just have to burn it. I have the folder made and everything. And in there, I put Wasson's uh, Russia Mushrooms and History book, which is very hard to find on PDF. And so I just thought you'd get a kick out of it. I will get a big kick out of it. What does the name Anthony Sutton mean to you? Actually, I corresponded briefly with, with Sutton. He, he made the contact after he read Underground History. Uh, and his books about the rise of Wall Street and the rise of the Soviet Union and Wall Street and the rise of Nazism were important parts in, uh, in a slow process of overcoming my own skepticism. I mean, I had all the pieces. I had many of the pieces, rather, but they seemed to add up to a reality that I could find no hint of recognition of. And in the copious reading I had done and, and kept current, why weren't there any references to this at all? Or occasionally when someone like uh, Ramsey Clark would seem to breach the wall of security. Ramsey was toast. He was marginalized. No one ever mentioned Ramsey again. He wasn't a guest on any show. Well, the same thing happened to Sutton because he worked for the, the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, which is very prestigious. And then once they started reading his work, they're like, you, you can't write this. And, and he said, that's the ticket out of here. I must go find out what's going on. And I think he wrote like nine, nine or more books on these various so subjects. And when you see how Wall Street funded the Bolsheviks and Wall Street was funding the Nazis and the Bushes and the Harrimans and all those families that were also eugenicists and the, the ones that want to do compulsory schooling and tell you what to do with your kids and all these other things. Like there's a very small knit group. And once you try to understand the philosophy of what makes them the utopian that are trying to shape everyone else's lives and, and violate their volition. I thought it was like, that's, it's overwhelming to discover that, but then you discover someone like Lysander Spooner or Bastiat, Frederick Bastiat, and read the book, The Law, and it's so simple. And yet, if you don't understand the simplicity, it's easy for these other groups to take it away from us. Yes, v very easy to marginalize as uh, who has time for this nonsense. I, I mentioned in our session yesterday that as I was poking around in for other reasons in the history of American adoption I kept running into the people who were the architects of American schooling and I said what possible correspondence the chapter in underground history Daughters of the Barons of Runnymede is actually a kind of lens into my brain trying to prove to myself there was some sense in following this road. If, if the heirs of the people who fought at Runnymede had maintained an 850-year continuity, and then I found other organizations that had. I said it's possible that someone with an agenda other than this. So. Who was Ignatius Loyola? Well, Loyola was the founder of the Army of Jesus. 
the Jesuits who penetrated the Reformation and eventually produced the phenomenon in history records as the Counter-Reformation. They slowed the momentum down because the Reformation really is founded, although Calvin is the eminence grease, Luther's every man his own priest is this wild declaration of radicalism to get rid of the religious priesthood is to get rid of all middlemen, yes. There were many countries that outlawed the Jesuits in, this, in the late 1700s, and one of those was the, the province or electorate of Bavaria. And then there was a, a Jesuit professor of canon law named Adam Weishaupt right. who created a group. And, and what, what influence specifically has that group had on the education system? Well, it, to pursue that line would require so many illusions. Uh, I, I prefer not to, to enter an area where I can't field the hardest questions with substantive facts, but certainly the sense of powers behind the scenes, very, very strong. Let me give you a, a few specifics. It's been clear since the beginning of standardized testing that the tests do not predict and the best American, the most prestigious American universities have either dismissed it or kept it in pro forma place. But actually, as Harvard and uh, Princeton told me, it's not a significant determinant. They just don't want to rock the boat that hold, the glue that holds this pyramid together. They don't predict, and why is 10% of the school year and school budget devoted to exerting stress on so many millions of people and through the children, their families, and why do so many innocently ignorant school teachers say this will determine your future when it only does if you convince yourself that it determines your future. It has no predictive power at all other than to signal this is someone who will memorize whatever you ask him to memorize. This is a useful skill, an anti-skill. In the book, The uh, Leipzig Connection, Basics and Education, toward the end of the book, after talking about Pestalozzi, it talks about Pestalozzi's mentor, who was Johann Caspar Lavater, who was uh, working and experimenting on Swiss lower privileged children in a universal schooling system. He was also a grand master of the Illuminati. So since Pestalozzi and Lavater and all these other key figures that were in the Prussian education system yeah. were also members of the Prussian Illuminati, it just seemed natural to see the, the takeover and undermining of, of nationhood of our society, the taking away of our identity through the school system is also making we as a nation incoherent. And it just seems like there is a very militaristic strategy that's been in place a long time. And notice what the specific 
mechanism is. It's an artificial extension of childhood, theoretically to the grave, but, but certainly beyond the point where learning anything is easy. As long as you indulge childish fears and childish appetites long enough, you've effectively rendered somebody harmless. Uh, you know, you can see it in its crudest form in the military, in the training of recruits, or in fraternities in the hazing of freshmen. But actually, yesterday we, I hope we talked about uh, uh, Richard Branson and the turning point of his life at age four when his mother drops him miles from home. Throughout most of human history, anywhere on the planet, childhood is over by the age of seven. And even in the, the most permissive cultures, it's over by the age of 11 or 12. People are, even in our own country, at the beginning of the 20th century, a substantial number of young women at the age of 13 were married or becoming married. I'm thinking in particular of, uh, uh, I'm thinking of a 18 volume history of the world that used to be for 20 years, the premium of book of the month club, uh, written by a husband and wife team. And still, a rather respectable history in and inside historians say it's not bad history. It's very, very. They also do a, a history philosophy set. Yes. Uh, I have it. Gino Denning just sent it to me last week. I just scanned yes. it in. Uh, it's on my desk if you want to go get it. There's, there's like. All we need is, is the last name, and, I'll, and it'll trigger. And in, in any case, the fellow who had been trained, I think, at UChicago as a historian, marries his wife, who becomes his co-writer and... Durant, Will Durant. Will Durant and Ariel. Ariel was either 13 or 15. There's a, a dispute on the internet about how she wasn't older than 15, and I suspect she was 13 when they married. Was Will some form of sexual oppressor? No. Instead of going to junior high school, Ariel studied professional historiography and its protocols. And she was a full partner in the writing, and Will died, predeceased her 10 years, and she continued to lecture, having begun her productive life when people began their productive lives. To extend this to the late teens or beyond the late teens is to fly in the face of, of the first admiral in... Uh, American history being in charge of a warship. Farragut. Farragut at the age of 12. Or, or uh, George Washington being the, the surveyor of Culpeper County, Virginia in his mid-teens. Very entrepreneurial attitudes. That they or got. Jefferson running a plantation. His parents both dead. 250 
employees. He's 12 or 13. But these examples go on and on and on. Why have, why have we marginalized the young who whatever they lack in experience more than make up for in resilience, in acuity, they bring new eyes to old situations, which is the secret of scientific invention. So it's done because they're the most dangerous. They're the least overlaid with these conditioning. Uh, and, and of course, that must have been understood way, way back in history. Alexander the Great, after all. You're noticing, you're observing that values have changed since the time of our founding fathers who were literate, autonomous, entrepreneurial. They also grew hemp. They knew the value of hemp. Come oh, on, George wrote he did it for medicinal purposes, so I assume it wasn't. And Jefferson traveled the planet collecting different strains, and they had, they had contests, and they had wrote letters about their, you know, hey, I've grown this strain, and it does, it does this, and they're, like, competing, and so... The, the fact that you're not taught about this in school and the, the, the role that hemp played in making the sales and the, the clothing and everything was hemp dependent. Oh, it's a miraculous fiber. There are some rather sober accounts of the lengths to which the Hearst family went because they were the largest forest owners in the country. They supplied the wood pulp for newspapers, but hemp newspapers are infinitely superior to wood pulp. So that they moved heaven and earth to create the narrative of reefer madness. So if we're using wood pulp paper to make books these days, we're not only killing trees which eat CO2 and produce oxygen uh, to make paper towels and toilet paper and all these other things beyond books, but I noticed that a lot of the books that are printed recently, the pages are disintegrating. And when you get old books from the 1800s, 1700s yeah. that are printed on hemp paper, yeah. they're still pretty you know, existent. We have a, a Johnson's Dictionary from 1848. And it's, it's not printed on the same wood pulp acid, you know, paper that we have today. So can you comment on, uh, they undermine education, but they're also undermining just our ability to get our hands on the books to educate ourselves, closing libraries and using types of paper that, you know, basically turn to, to dust. Oh, yes. And there's, uh, there's been, since I've been in college in the 50s, there's been a prevailing wise guy uh, ethic that you don't actually need to read these old books because there are plenty of abstracts, digests of these old books in existence, and that will give you the guts of the old book. Well, let's take Marcus Aurelius's meditations. What the digests don't give you is the wealthiest, most powerful man in the world. I mean, I don't know if that confluence has ever existed after Aurelius, saying that nothing you can buy is worth having, and nobody you can order around with your power is worth associating with. That's a rather acid... <laughs> so how old were you when you first met Marcus Aurelius? I was initially in translation in sixth grade in a coal mining town in western Pennsylvania where it was offered in translation. And of course, it's eminently readable. 
And then in ninth grade, there was an option of reading it in Latin or, or, or doing something else. So my mother insisted that I read it, Julius Caesar in Latin, Gallius Dominus Suis and Partes Trace at 75, Quorum Unum and Colon Belgium. We had to memorize the early part of it. But Caesar's Gallic Wars isn't some, some old piece of fustian that, you know, if you're an elitist, you read to plug into the ancient world. It establishes the principle that a weaker force can whip a larger force by dividing. And being better prepared. Yeah. You can set the larger force against one another. And you see that in schooling, the ordinary classes are set against one another by constant meaningless testing and small inconsequential prizes being given to the people who test best and wiggle their hands in the air so that the ordinary classes are divided for a period of 12 years through meaningless competition. I noticed when I was in basic training in the army and was told that I was going to learn in three hours how to take a rifle with 57 parts of blindfold and put it back together. I knew that I could not do that. I knew I could not do that. And yet in a room with 500 other scared young people, we all did it. Uh, and, and, and they didn't say, and he finished first, you know, the important thing is, what do we learn that's enhanced by competition? I mean, what real do we learn? It gets in the way because now your rank becomes a factor rather than the quality of what you've you've learned. I made these ideas clear to 13-year-olds at all times and found that after about 90 days, they became as addicted to ideas and the whys of things as I was. Whenever a new idea would emerge in the classroom, this is quite literally true, I would grab a piece of chalk and write it on the wall. I'd climb a ladder and write it on the ceiling. Inside of that first 90 days, there were hundreds of digests of ideas everywhere, on the floors when there was no room left. Front, back, sides of the room, I had world maps and national maps, and I could leap up and point to the origin of the idea as we know it, or simultaneously they came. As I say, it was roughly 90 days when classes that were considered the stupidest, people who'd never eaten off a tablecloth in their life, were actually, they were hot to talk about ideas. We couldn't have that. How could we maintain the social order and the economic order if we had people 
who became fully alive when they were young and could get up when they're knocked down, you know. I think a lot of the problem, it's very easy to assign this completely to sinister motives. And there are certainly sinister motives at work. But I think part of it is the problem of how we would manage a society that didn't require managing. And I don't think anyone's been able to solve that problem. The, the, the early America probably did it better than anyone we have easy access to. Because well, I think it's not about anarchy. Anarchy is just a void or a vacuum of government. It's about being autonomous. And if you take away the government, it doesn't automatically give people critical thinking or the self-reliance that, that they need and the compassionate communication that they need to work together with other people to achieve goals. Right. So in your explanation of how you learned the most powerful lesson of doing the impossible, you knew you couldn't do that. And after an hour or so, you had just done something that you knew you couldn't do. I knew I couldn't do it. You took that experience and you taught younger people that they can do that because now they have more years. You had to be at least 18 to be in the army. Now you're teaching 13 year olds that the things that you know you can't do, you don't really know that. Right. And you need to get that up, up here first. Right. So the, the question that I would follow up with is, in your third interview on Gnostic Media with Jan Irvin, I, I heard you mention these words, trivium and quadrivium, and I, I thought it maybe is so, something that was off your radar, but you spoke eloquently about it. And so where do you have familiarity with the trivium and quadrivium and what does it mean to you? I went to Jesuit boarding school in third grade. So I'm between the ages of seven and a half and eight and a half years old and the curriculum reflecting back on it which I first began to do 15 20 years ago the the intellectual diet was not modified in any way for our tender years and the devices of uh, discipline and motivation that would be used in an authoritarian world where they were not chary of using, but I do believe that their hearts were in the right place. I remember being humiliated. I told you privately about this yesterday by a Jesuit brother from St. Vincent's College, which is across the street from Xavier Academy, where I went and was beaten on a daily basis by the Ursuline nuns, sometimes for mispronouncing French <laughs> there. But the brother was talking to us in the middle of the Second World War about the causes of the First World War. And he had written a list of causes on the board. I had a magnificent memory before drink intervened. And he said, could somebody face the back of the room now and tell us all the causes? And I, with my memory, I did, word for word. And he burst into... Uh, harsh kind of laughter and he said you fool you believe me he erased the board and said these are the causes of the war now could you do it and now 
chastened. I did a lot less confidently. And this time, the room exploded with his scorn. He did it again. He erased the board. He said, you will never know the causes until you embed yourself into the primary documents and see how complicated a thing this is. That changed my life. I only wish I might have had a second year there, but... Before you can form your logical understanding, he said, you need to get in, in check with the, the knowledge, the actual grammar. What are the artifacts? Yeah, Where do these things but, documented? What's primary sources? And, and it probably has occurred to other groups, but, but the intellectual part of the universal Christian religion, the Catholic Church, had a a respect for scholarship and what what happens as you collect data is that it forms itself into patterns and if you record the patterns and test them to see that they hold true eventually that suggests behaviors uh, so that they they created a two formulae, a basic formula to, which Dorothy Sayers, and I'd urge all your, your listeners to read her essay, The Lost Tools of Learning. She's a marvelous detective story writer, and the detective stories really aren't genre stories. They're a, a comedy of manners about the British uh, upper classes, but the trivium was coming, becoming comfortable with a pattern of thinking in which you could dispel confusion. And then the quadrivium was pushing it farther into specialized areas. One of the huge mistakes that schooling makes, even homeschooling, is to organize is to organize the agenda and the goals in terms of subject learnings, English, math, social studies, science, because those categories, while better than chaos, are so crude, they tend to mask what you're actually after. Take the universal study of the English language. What you're after is a mastery of the written language, the spoken language, and your own writing. So you've got these three divisions, and now if you're after those things, your measurement's not through memory, it's through performance, which is so much more accurate. As we spoke about a little earlier in this session, the standardized tests aren't predictive, and every first-class university knows that. You don't select people because they scored here on the SATs or whatever other tests are administered because they end up disappointing you and you waste people who, who actually... In real life, we don't use standardized tests to make decisions, whereas you actually do use the trivium to observe, to process that information, and to make informed decisions. 
So you're John D. Rockefeller in the late 1800s, and you have a big problem. It's the Industrial Revolution and you have this giant oil empire, but you simply can't find enough wage slaves to keep the wheels turning. Unlike today where you can just make a job post online and a bunch of educated laborers will come flocking your way, back then most of America was rural. Most of America lived simple lives on farms. They were homeschooled, they went to schools ran by churches. They didn't know how to work a factory job or at an oil refinery. They weren't conditioned to clock in and out. So you needed a way to educate the population on a massive scale so they could come work for you. However, we don't want to educate them too much now, do we? Remember, knowledge is dangerous. There's a reason why slaves weren't allowed to learn how to read or write. So if you're going to educate the masses, you have to tread very carefully. Teach them too much and they'll become too ambitious, too independent. They'll think for themselves. They'll become your competitors. Instead, you want to teach them just enough so they can keep your empire running with a happy, obedient smile on their face. So what did you do? You helped pioneer the American public school system. All of a sudden, every parent could just send their kids off to a free public school funded by good old Rockefeller. To the rest of the world, you looked like a saint. You were giving free education to all those uncivilized, ignorant Americans. But you and I know the truth. By dangling the prospect of free education in front of millions of American parents, you were able to trick them into relinquishing their children to the states. That way, for 8 to 12 years of a child's most formative years, you get to condition them to be exactly who you want them to be. You get to decide what they learn and don't learn. You get to decide how they see the world. You get to condition them to be scared, to be fearful, to be obedient, to not chase after their dreams, to accept mediocrity. You get to teach them that if they don't follow orders exactly to the T, they are a failure. I can't believe it. B, B is for bitch! Because these are the traits that make for a good laborer. And it worked. By giving every American access to free, standardized public education, you were able to solve the labor problem in America. Now, every generation that came after it would go into school filled with innocence, creativity, and joy, and they would come out of school as an obedient worker that doesn't want to rock the boats. Workers who are perfectly happy making their employers rich. Education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability. And there's a reason. The whole system was invented around the world. There were no public systems of education really before the 19th century. They all came into being to meet the needs of industrialism. Ah yes, our entire education system today was created because John D. Rockefeller needed more workers. But it wasn't just Rockefeller. No, loads of other rich American tycoons poured billions of dollars into creating the modern-day education system we have today. These are the same wealthy dynasties behind big oil, big food, big pharma, and they all wanted to provide you with free conditioning, I mean education, while they send their kids to private schools. As Rockefeller once said, I don't want a nation of thinkers, I want a nation of workers. These are the dark origins of our education system, and why you want to stay dangerous. For generations, experts tended to blame failing schools on failing neighborhoods. But reformers have begun to believe the opposite, that the problems of failing neighborhoods might be blamed on failing schools. I'd like for this country to have a real education president for a change. I'd like to be the education president. I don't ever expect to sign my name to any law that is more important than the Education Act in 1965. The day of reckoning is here. If you watch this channel, you're sponsoring this video. The origins of the American education system can be traced back to something called the Prussian Empire. 
The Prussian Empire is the empire that made up modern-day Germany, and these Prussians were geniuses at controlling the masses. See, in the late 1700s, Prussia invaded Poland, and they won. Prussia now occupied Poland. But the Prussians now face a new problem. Sure, they controlled Poland, but how were they going to get the Polish people to accept their new German rulers? They were the colonizers, the enemy, and yet somehow they needed to get the entire population to throw away their Polish identity and to accept Imperial German nationalism. But the Prussians weren't stupid. They knew they had no chance in changing the minds of the adults. The adults were proud Polish people. They were set in their ways. There's no hope in converting them. But the children? Ah, the Polish children were much more moldable. And if they could attack the children, they could decimate Polish culture in just one generation. So, Prussia created a new 8-year education system, where for 8 years, kids would go to school and learn things like reading and writing, but they would also learn how to listen to orders. They would learn how to do as they're told, to respect the authority of their Prussian leaders. And this new Prussian education system worked. One Prussian philosopher brilliantly described their education model by writing, Education should be aimed at destroying free will, so that after pupils are thus schooled, they will be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. When the technique has been perfected, every government that has been in charge of education for more than one generation will be able to control its subjects securely without the need of armies or policemen. It was as poetic as it was true. Basically, if you want a submissive population that you can rule over, you have to destroy their free will. You have to condition them not to think. Thinking is the enemy, and you have to start this conditioning when they're as young as possible. So, every Polish and Prussian child was required to attend school for 8 years. 8 years were day in and day out. These kids were force-fed so much Prussian patriotism that by the time they left school, obedience to the Prussian monarchy was the only reality they knew. The Prussian system was so effective that it caught the eye of one person, an influential American politician by the name of Horace Mann. And Horace Mann planned on exporting this Prussian model to the good old US of A. Horace Mann was passionate about reforming American education. It was his life's duty. So in 1843, he traveled across Europe visiting schools to get ideas. But no education system impressed him more than the Prussian model. To him, the Prussian model was a work of art. Here was the roadmap to molding children into anything the elite wanted. If the Prussian model could remove every single trace of Polish culture, what could it do for America? With the Prussian model, it wouldn't matter if kids were Protestant, Catholic, Black, an immigrant, Native American, or even atheists, because we would be able to permanently instill patriotism, duty, and hard work into all of them. And with Horace Mann's political influence, tax-funded public schools following the Prussian model slowly started popping up all over America. And slowly but surely, parents, teachers, those in charge, and society as a whole started to accept the Prussian model as the only sensible way to educate the youth. Instead of one big class, schools were divided into separate classes for kids of different ages. Horace also wanted mainly women to be the teachers, which is why women dominate the teaching field today. Teachers were even sent to Prussia to learn firsthand how their system worked. Authorities bought into the Prussian model so much that by 1864, Congress made it illegal for Native American kids to be taught in their native languages. Instead, they were sent to faraway boarding schools so teachers could kill the Indian to save the man. By the end of the 1800s, the Prussian model had taken over America. And by 1900, almost every American state made public school mandatory. 
meaning that you had to give up your kid to the states or get the kid taken away from you and thrown in prison. Horace Mann changed the face of American public education forever, but the public school system wasn't in its final form yet. Because as much as the Prussian model did wonders for the government, it still didn't do much for businessmen like you. And as John D. Rockefeller, you also saw the power of the Prussian model on the masses, and you planned on systematically infiltrating it. By the late 1800s, school was mandatory. They were using the Prussian model, but there was still a giant problem. There wasn't any standard curriculum to follow. So most kids ended up learning nothing that would make them useful in an oil refinery mine or factory. It doesn't matter how submissive or obedient they are. If they don't have the baseline education needed for your labor, you needed submissive, obedient workers that were also educated to your standards, educated on how work will set them free. So what did you do? You went to your closest confidant, a man named Friedrich T. Gates, and together the two of you created the General Education Board. On the outside, the General Education Board sounded like this very official government board that looked over the education system in America. And that's exactly the vibe you were going for, when in reality, you just created this thing out of thin air and named it the General Education Board. That is the power of a great name. And a year later, thanks to your connections in Washington, the General Education Board went official. It was incorporated by an act of Congress in 1903 with the purpose of the promotion of education in the United States of America without distinction to race, sex, or creed. A very noble-sounding cause. While at the same time, this thing, this entity would be your Trojan horse to inject more than $3.5 billion in today's money into the public school system. Today, a few billion dollars wouldn't make a dent in the monstrosity that is our public school system. But back then, it was still in its infancy. So $3.5 billion was way more than enough to mold it into whatever you wanted. So with the money and the government charter in hand, the board went on to fund a vast number of public high schools. 912 high schools in the southern states alone by 1914. You also funded universities, medical schools, Ivy League schools, so that when kids finished their conditioning in high school, they would continue their conditioning in higher education. These are the origins of America's love affair with college degrees, by the way. College graduation has never been more valuable than it is today. And soon, other business tycoons started jumping in on the action. By 1905, Andrew Carnegie, the steel magnate, founded the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. Not because he wanted people to learn about the world and become innovators, but because he needed mine managers, operators, engineers, repairmen, smelters, and railroad conductors. And the public started to catch on on all this big money moving into education. In 1914, the National Education Association said that We view with alarm the activity of the Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations, agencies not in any way responsible to the people, and their efforts to control the policies of our state educational institutions, to fashion after their conception and to standardize our courses of study, and to surround the institutions with conditions which menace true academic freedom. But your infiltration of education had picked up too much steam, too much momentum. There was no way it was going to slow down now. By 1918, every single state started requiring kids to complete elementary school, and it just picked up from there. From standardized tests to the Carnegie-funded textbooks, to the Department of Education, to labeling and medicating kids that don't do well in this Rockefeller model of education. And your boy Friedrich T. Gates, who you created the General Education Board with, put it perfectly when he explained what he envisioned for America's education system. 
In our dream, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. The present educational conventions fade from our minds, and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill onto a grateful and responsive rural folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or of science. We are not to raise up among them authors, orators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor will we cherish even the humble ambition to raise up among them lawyers, doctors, preachers, statesmen, of whom we now have ample supply. That is the education system Rockefeller wanted. One that didn't search for the intrinsic gifts endowed in each of us. One that didn't pump out philosophers, authors, artists, or musicians. No, our modern day education system was designed for one thing and one thing only. To pump out mindless, thoughtless, standardized, dare I say it, slaves. John D. Rockefeller put it even more succinctly. He said, I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. And if you look around today with all this fear, all this debt, all these years of education, and yet you come out not even knowing the basic fundamentals of how to survive in this world, like how to find a lifelong partner, save, make money, invest, and file taxes, when you look around and see all of this, I'd say that Rockefeller got exactly what he wanted. So now that you know that society is systematically designed to get you to slave away forever, how do you escape this? You escape it by finding a way to make a lot of money without having to work super hard like all the other docile workers. And the most practical way to do this is not what you think. The most practical way to do that is with a high paying work from home job. There are work from home jobs out there that allow you to make $80,000, $90,000, $100,000 and up while working just a few hours a day from wherever you want. But the reason why you never hear anyone promoting work from home jobs is because pitching you on starting an agency or whatever sounds a lot sexier. But the reality is, although all those business models work, you gotta grind it out for 12 hours a day, 7 days a week, with a very low chance of success. That's why most entrepreneurs end up slaving away more than someone with a 9 to 5. But a work from home job, you get the best of both worlds. The reward without the risk, the flexibility without the grind. And in some cases, you can even make more money than with the business by stacking work from home jobs on top of each other without increasing your workload, also known as overemployment. But the best part about work from home jobs is that truly anyone can land one. Problem is, how do you land one without a degree or experience? Very Luckily, positive. I figured it out. Subscribe to Jake Tran on his YouTube page. I'm sure there's an affiliate link below that video because he was about to cut into his second product placement for that uh, that that session. And I support that. And both his links were uh, showing through the video. The one for pro probably the wallet LD skipped over, but you could see his coupon code for that. If you if you need a wallet, he's got an ad for one. And there was another ad there for at the end. Uh, for a course. So follow Jake Tran over on the YouTube. He's a budding entrepreneur. He has a team of people helping make him make those videos on a regular, consistent basis. And I sure do appreciate getting to see these glimpses, uh, short, condensed form of things that I'm familiar with in more long form, because that short form content uh, that helps to uh, get it out to larger audiences. And his YouTube following reflects that. All right. Yeah, well, uh, go ahead, Tony. Larger audiences, the younger generation. It also he makes it quite compelling. So he really really brings some life to the stories he's attempting to uh you know educate his audience with. So I think that's you know it's a sign of a, a budding town in that regard. So shout out to I would like okay. to put out uh, uh point out uh his data on the MIG is inaccurate. No, I'm just kidding. But uh the part where he's talking about Prussia and Poland. 
Yes. Yeah, like also and Napoleon yeah, in his amateur that. army in the Battle of Jena puts Prussia on its heels and they have to start coming up with things. And it starts with uh, Fichte's addresses to the German nation. German nation right. And then they come up with some more advanced indoctrination tact- tactics. So Go ahead. The key is to understand it begins militarily first. So it has to do with a defeat by essentially these Prussian trained uh, professional soldiers against Napoleon's amateur army battle Jena, I believe. And then from there you have to develop an educational system that makes the soldiers more uh, moldable, compliant, willing to take risks, you know, follow orders, that sort of thing. And that then becomes the model then for the industrial movement later on that is implemented by Frederick T. Gates, John D. Rockefeller, Carnegie, so forth and so on. So there's an overlay or juxtaposition between like military usage and industrial usage. So that's an interesting element to sort of contrast. And that's one yeah. thing that Jake Tran sort of skipped the whole time. I'm sorry. I keep well, he doesn't. I'm sure he hasn't. Like he's he's young. He doesn't know these nuances. No, I'm not. Right? I'm not blaming him there. But for that's... our audience who just sure. saw that and now wants the additional nuance, yeah, uh, I would say to what you were saying and to what Jake's saying, yes. And there's this aspect. See, Hesse Castle is famous for its trained soldiers called the Hessians that the British hired to bring to America. So they could use German-speaking mercenaries against their own colonists. Now, this made William of Hesse and later Frederick II, or Frederick II, later William. Uh, we'll get the name straight William, now. Yeah. The Hesse landgrave uh, and the principal royalty there, they made a lot of money from renting out soldiers. And their professional soldiers just got whooped by Napoleon. And the, the person in charge, William I is the son. So let's go to the crown prince. Uh, by the time that Napoleon's coming through, they got all this money from renting out these soldiers a couple years or earlier to the British to fight America. So they're sitting on a bunch of money. And this is like 1805, 1806. And uh, William I, the crown prince, he was later the elector of Hesse. He became the landgrave. He was called William the Ninth. He changes his name of Hesse Castle. So this guy, he has a guy that works for him named Meyer Amschel Rothschild. And he's like, hey, Meyer, I heard you're good with money. You're the you're the person who's like the coin exchanger between, you know, they had a lot of different coins going in Europe and each kingdom had to have someone who changes the coins and weighs them out or whatever, right? So he says, hey, can you help me out hiding the money? He's like, sure. My son, Nathan, just set up over in, in London and we can have your gold stored over there and it'll be safe from Napoleon. And he says, wonderful. Later... There are two paintings. You can check them out. There's two paintings of the event where the Rothschilds gave uh, William the First or William the Ninth, Landgrave of Hesse Castle, his money back. There is no document of when that happened and all these sort of things. So it's missing from the record, but there's two paintings of it. So you can check those out. So in the midst of this, Nathan Rothschild over in London, he's got access to not only this gold, but the East India Company gold, which may be one and the same. We don't know. Maybe he put it into the East India Company to to buy some, or maybe they already owned part of that. I don't know. But when it comes time for Wellington to fight Napoleon, he's losing in the Pyrenees. And Nathan Rothschild somehow comes up with all this gold and is able to smuggle it successfully through the French and Napoleon under their nose, 
over to Wellington, and eventually he can come about and he can defeat Napoleon at Waterloo. Now, this is all very good standardized history. If you would ever just look it up, it's all over the place, including RothschildArchive.org on their official timeline. You can just learn this stuff. You can read it. So very interesting pieces uh, about that that short piece by Jake Tran. And he, he's talking about the Rockefellers, but there are people that the Rockefellers then used into the society. They're like a, a conduit, if you will. Yeah. That's right. So there's a longer story, but he's only, it's only 15 minute videos. You can't get to everything. So that was really well composed and well done. And uh, yeah. Now the other point I would like to make without this system of Prussian schooling, there would be no military industrial complex as you know it today. That's the point I was trying to write. If someone had not corrupted American education, there is no goddamn way we would be having extra hemispherical interactions militarily. It was 1898 when the British, Roger Kipling, said it's the white man's burden. You got to come over here to the Philippines and help us out, bro. Uncle Sam's got to get, get together with John Bull. We got to do this. A lot of propaganda around that. You should see, see the, the racist political cartoons they drew to get America to go fight overseas. And once they did that, they're like, bro, you can come into World War One with us now. You know, we just, we got this whole thing cranking and then they started doing all this covert. Let's subvert nations and overthrow and do 50 coups. Like I got five books over here by William Bloom documenting all, all these, but again, what's missing from all these, the MI6 angle. Why is anyone like putting those you know, two and two together? There's two pieces of bread on the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. There's not just the CIA. You got to have a top layer of bread too. So, um, bringing that history of the military industrial complex and it being a result of having our education system crushed and having an indoctrination system put in place by the benefactors of the military industrial complex, like those robber barons, they put their money into defense contractors and things like this. So that stuff wasn't like came out of nowhere. It started with uh, people with government contracts and lots of money kept flowing and they wanted to keep America in a wartime economy. And that started back in the 1920s. So by the time you get to the USS Liberty, it's a little pin for you. We're going to look at a couple artifacts here. Right? USS Liberty. Remember the Liberty? If Americans knew.org. That's a pin. That's, that's a little piece. This here, next piece, uh, this is called a, a challenge coin. And that's a 50th anniversary of the USS Liberty. And uh, let me take it out and flip it over for you. All right. But these guys, they're not good enough to have a, an investigation out in the open. All right. These guys, they just need to have their names commemorated on a coin and it all becomes better. Right. No need to recognize it in American history or foreign policy or in the news media. Let's just say that questions about such things, you know, th those questions, they don't need to be asked. Let me zoom out for this one. That's the gent you saw in the interview. That's Bryce Lockwood. He doesn't deserve answers. His family, who went through a lot as he's pursued justice for this event over the years, right? Like when you're not at rest, you're not at rest. And that has disturbances other places sometimes. People like him, they don't deserve justice. <clears throat> the 34 killed, 
they don't deserve justice? Or what about the fact that, you know, we had a base. Base knew what was going on. Why can't, why can't uh, U.S. resources talk about U.S. resources? Why, why did we stand down that day? What did you do to the whistleblowers? Who are the people that uh, heard the distress calls and heard the radio chatter and all these sort of things? I right. didn't see them in the New York Times. Right. You know, I didn't. I didn't remember reading about them in the Washington Post. Maybe they wouldn't Over print it. Was already going on long yeah. before even the attack had stopped. Yeah. And then I have another artifact, but we'll save this for another time. This is a a relative's purple heart. Didn't die in U.S. territory. Wonder what made him leave good old Pennsylvania back in the day to end up in, I think it was Guam. Is that a U.S. territory, Tony? I believe so. <clears throat> Guam. Yeah. Where do we get it? Do we get it from, who's the people that used to run the East India Company? The British? Yeah. Yeah, we probably got it in the bases for destroyers. I think it was the British Crown. Trade back then. And chartered that corporation. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's a whole different world. We're talking about USS Liberty. So, uh, yeah, you've seen some artifacts. Uh, I got the challenge coin from uh, Mr. Lockwood after doing what he considered to be a challenge coin worthy interview. <laughs> and uh, when you take that account, yeah, maybe maybe there's something there you say. But if you watch like the interview with Bill Binney, director of technology at the NSA, NSA technical director, the person who's the the chief nerd over there, and he tells you a similar story about uh, you know, and then you check into 9-11, it's you know, was it country C had special uh especially aggressive espionage activities going on against us. And I don't know, at some point the 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 history matters. Yeah. <clears throat> at least if we're gonna have a future based on peace and justice and all these great ideas, I think we have to start recognizing, hey. The people that are in power, they're perfect. They're protecting us from knowing who's on Jeffrey Epstein's client list, for example, because they're on it. They're yeah, exactly. on it. They're protecting themselves. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I also want to throw in, you know, like Whitney Webb as well. Like the individuals that have deep captured America, obviously based on this sort of Anglo-American model, but that also implicates another faction that we talked about tonight in regards to Israel and Zionist aspirations that obviously have an inch, uh, they're inextricably linked as far as their relationship is concerned historically. So there's uh, no doubt an ominous sort of continuity of the same sort of organizations, if you will, pushing for similar agendas. And so we see that because that's mentioned more than many times in regards to espionage activity associated with Mossad and the United States in regards to politicians, blackmail, also just uh, the, the classic espionage in regards to Wasn't there a case secrets. where one of the last reported people Telephone to see bugs. Seth Rich? Wasn't it Seth Rich or was it Vince Foster? I guess it was Vince, Vince Foster. Foster. There's so Foster. many of them. Vince Foster. You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that Mossad agent, obviously, with that one. Yeah, exactly. So it's just the continuity of like the same sort of organizations political organizations that have, you know historically have ties together that you know seem to pop up not only in the news today 
but have historical ties to one another that we try to bring context to. And that's another organization as well as with, I mean, obviously set up from MI6 because MI6 acts as the font, the progenitor for all of these varying different intelligence organizations. I don't care if it's the Pakistani ISI or it's the American CIA or it's the Israeli Mossad. But when we look at the aspirations between MI6 and- What are three the- agencies created by MI6? What? Sorry. <laughs> and many more. I mean- Let's, let's and many ourselves. more yeah there's tons of them so uh there's a repeating pattern the original model that's the basic point so yeah well you know history is going to repeat until people learn from it i don't know if there's something to that i do recall uh, such things being said in history hmm. uh let's see soros versus israel i had a note here i don't have access to the drive that has the photos but if you take a look israel as a state and george soros they don't really get along too good. So even though talking about Soros is called anti-Semitic, the fact that he th- has a plan to destroy Israel, basically, and Haaretz and the is you know all these v- uh-huh. various times uh, uh, over there, uh, newspapers have commented. George Soros has like enemy type plans. In fact, documents have leaked. I don't know if it was in the Panama Papers. That. It was it was a leak yeah, like ten that. years ago. Oh, where it's like, like yeah he's undermining their stuff too oh, he's yeah, bribing sure. people over there too so he's uh, truly a visionary for globalism in its purest and most demoniacal form secular humanism yeah see Sec- george truly he's truly a secular human he considers himself Absolutely a messiah a secular according humanist. to the la times 2003 article I'm just <laughs> laying out the facts because how many of these individuals see themselves as the messiahs <clears throat> just saying no right. a pattern here remember last week when we talked about sean stone's film uh the best kept secret sure six part series we watched the trailer sean's going to come on i think next week okay. and uh i think he's going to be on live are you serious oh. which is quite a feat because he's on eastern time right now so uh i think he's gonna be our, our guest live next week uh-huh. and um so i i watched this documentary we played the clips last week we had all the content last I'll week's show I get done with the show, flipping through the channels, seeing what's going on. I see this movie's uh, The Dictator, 2012, Sasha Baron Cohen, good friend of not George Soros. And in there, they had this scene. They had one scene that we can show you because we found the clip. And maybe LD has found the second scene. I possibly, ask, possibly. Like, I seen this film, so like I was going okay, through. A I had never seen it either. Seeing, and trying I was, to find like what scene are you? Tr- I should right, ask so, you for the description, but that's what the one scene is the uh, what I call the nine eleven scene where he's in the flag outfit and they're on a helicopter flying around New York and they say some stuff and it's funny because it scares the the tourists from the Midwest type thing, right? Yeah. Okay, that's shtick. Okay, mm-hmm. the context from Sean Stone's episode maybe five. There's a part in there where he goes into the Menendez murders, which were famous in the 1990s that these two rich kids killed their parents. But come to find out that those parents were mighty abusive. And I'm not saying what they did was right, but I'm saying when you look at the bigger story, there's more fucked up shit going yeah, on than what they con. were telling people right. because the people that were killed, they were friends with a whole bunch of other people, probably on the Epstein list of its day, if you will. Right. Sure. So as part of this, the Menendez family had sponsored the all boy band act known as Menudo 
to come and perform for them. And the accusations were that they sexually abused Menudo as well. Okay. So now I understand the content. Okay. Now, now. So that's like some obscure thing that I saw in Sean's movie. Okay. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to look into that because I knew this part, but I didn't know these parts. So now I need to see what are the sources and blah, 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 right? Thinking. Mm -hmm. But then I'm watching this thing to not watch it because I'm trying to go to sleep. And it's like, okay, I'll watch this thing. I'll think it's stupid. I'll go to sleep. So I saw the scene with the flag (laughs) thing and I was like, all ready to go to sleep. And then before I know it, I catch this just as like, you know, and he says that as he, the dictator, in reference to sexually abusing Menudo. And I was like, whoa, how does Sasha Baron Cohen know about that? And that not only does he know about it, but he can speak about it in an authoritative way as a prime character in a Hollywood movie out in the open, yeah. like an open secret. That's insane. Type yeah, of thing. Sure. Yeah. And that he's in on it and he could talk about it. Revelation he can make fun of, of the method. He can make fun sure. of young boys being raped Jeez. in that situation because it goes over the head of the dumb American audience who's been schooled instead of educated. Because right. he holds himself up. He's like a Yuval Noah Harari of uh, the non-comedy world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, no, he's a really smart dude. But he uses his smarts for not the best purpose, in my opinion. Because right. it comes across as, you know, a little racist there, Sasha. And I know you're friends with the ADL and all this stuff. And I know nothing about how they came about. So you're in good company covering up for the Epstein crew. Have at it. So we let's play those clips, LD. Let's start with the flag one first, because they're just making fun of 9-11. And who cares about 3,000 dead Americans? Because that's just like another Pearl Harbor for us. Okay. Well, just to let you know the second clip, yeah. like, because I thought you were talking about Menudo. Like the yeah, I super- was, but I, I yeah, I want yeah, you would queue up second, but I'm gonna go back to the first one because that's a little softer so- entry into this topic. I, the I one where looking, he's, I, yeah, I was looking through the, the closed captioning, and it, he doesn't mention Menudo, but he's he's working in a vegan shop. So I thought it was right. another Bin Laden reference that you were going after. Maybe. No, no, it's it's the Menudo one, and I'm pretty sure he's dressed as the dictator when he says it because he plays like two characters in the movie. I think I didn't catch that much of it, and I did right. successfully fall asleep shortly after I caught that. So let's go to uh, what is known on YouTube as the best scene. This is where they're flying around in the helicopter. This is not the prime scene where he was talking about Menudo, but maybe we'll be able to find that. Maybe somebody will crowdsource it from the chat, magically finding it. I looked on Odyssey in a couple places, so I did my due diligence. But it's a live show. I can only do so much. Let's see this first scene. It is the plan. We're going to take this helicopter tour and fly over the Lancaster to spot its weaknesses. Remember, we're just two ordinary American tourists looking at these sites. Don't worry, nobody's gonna suspect anything. It's a great plan, pointy. Don't do anything to arouse any suspicions. Don't worry, I am Wadi is number one actor. No. You don't win four Wadi and Golden Globes for nothing. Yes, you do, because you gave them to yourself. My performance in Aladdin Jones and the Temple of Doom was outstanding. I give it thumbs down. Have you seen You've Got Mail Bomb? Yes, I've seen them all. They're all terrible movies. Listen to me, okay? You are a terrible actor. I urge you, right now, keep your performance small and real. All right, can you get me a cloak? Why? 
because I think my guy would be wearing a cloak. No, your guy wears an American flag sweatsuit and a sheriff's badge. I need the sheriff's badge. For what? You're the sheriff of American douche town. That's rude. Listen, we're going to walk over there, act very inconspicuous. Okay, no this problem. No, don't worry, just relax. Are you okay? My guy has a limp. I fell off me or said the old bull and bush pub because I am a cook. Listen to me, listen to me, okay? You need to focus up right now and be prepared to deliver a small, subtle performance. Okay, great. Okay, good. Okay, so when we go to fly... Don't, 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 don't do that with your eyes. You can't be a Chinese person on this thing. Okay? I'm not Chinese, I'm Chinese-American. No, but you cannot hold your eyes. Nobody's going to think you're a Chinese-American because you hold your eyes like that. It's racist, what you're doing. Do you know, it's a fact that they cannot pronounce the R's, they pronounce them as L's. So instead, you know what rabbit is in Chinese? I don't know how to speak Chinese. It's Labbit. It's not Labbit. Yes, who shot Lodger Labbit was a huge hit in Nobody. China. Nobody, it's too, I, I don't care, this is stupid, okay? Okay, I'll do Bilabino. I like to work, I like to talk, I like the shit, I do the kids. Your, your Bilabino is the same as your Chinese. Now who's being a racist? You are being racist I'm now. not being racist. Right now we have to get on this helicopter and we have to act like true Americans. I guess you don't want me to play black then. Of course I don't want you to play black. Okay. Just throwing it out there. Okay. Don't. Okay, don't do that. Don't. I see that's, what you're doing. That's how they walk. I see what you're doing. It's not cool. That's how they walk. Americans. America is number one. Oh, I am from USA. My father also from USA. My great-grandfather fought in the American Civil Jihad. I am very proud to be an American. I am America's number one douche. I said that I am a canoe at a call. Like a hua bahliba washkin bed hanaina. Arsh alta adigmana. Stein ashana mat hochev. Ooh, bin Laden. As I were Osama. Shani ulah ambatir bin Laden shawat. Shani samim al mashar al shatayah. Mil shamar bin Laden. Tayoda ane mamash mit gagaya ala mahoniochili. Winter borsha. Aywa. A 9-11. Oh, 9-11, it's the best. Oh! 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 Mishal, Empire State Building, Ah, Empire State Building, Yankee Stadium, Ah, there was what is usually found to be uh, offensive, racist, stereotypes, and it was framing Arab terrorists for doing something that country C was admittedly all up in and had Intel on and had agents on the ground and was acting not as an ally that day. So it's another USS Liberty type of situation. Only a hundred times more Americans died 
And also it, it did get an investigation on 9-11, but not a real investigation. So it also stands right there with the Kennedy assassination and the USS Liberty. Now we got a pattern of these things kind of stacking up over time that I think are, are cluttering uh, the way between freedom and tyranny for people to get uh, yeah, lost. commissions assigned to each one of these uh, curious and unfortunate events that seem to always paint a picture. It's opposite of where the evidence tends to lead. So. Whether yeah, but he the Warren uh, Commission or the 9/11 Commission or Look at how many uh n- official narrative stereotypes were reinforced during the comedy the attempted comedy skit. Is there attempted comedy is not a crime otherwise. This show would be guilty. Okay, so real quick. True. I mean, it's true. I did want to mention sorry, since very, sorry good. Since I had just uh briefly shown the the purple heart box i I also had uh, my grandfather's grandfather he also fought in the american civil jihad so uh i have something in common with the the character there but other than that i don't think we have a whole lot in common because when he got to that menudo quote i gotta say they're saying a quiet part out loud quite comfortably as if they think they're untouchable because they're hiding epstein's client list as if no one else has epstein's client list I, i don't you know i'm pretty sure there are many people out there who has all the blackmail where did all that material go? It didn't go to the FBI. It's missing like Nikola Tesla's trunk. Yeah, like his right? trunks. Yeah, it's it's the exact same scenario. Yeah, correct. Probably saying people will sit on both. Somehow it was confiscated and then it went missing. So, yes, uh, LD does have the Menudo clip. Yeah, because I think we found maybe. it. Yeah. Well, I, I see people talking about it, and so we I think I pinpointed like it, it, but but in the actual video. I'm not seeing it. Hmm. Um, but we can try okay, that. so yeah, that is the quote though. Need I remind you of the Menudo incident? And then uh, they went into a little diatribe. So let's let's can we try one and see what happens? Yeah, here one two. Ricky Martin was in Menudo. Oh, gentlemen, how you doing? Are you guys friends of the deceased? Uh, how do I put this? He was my nigger. No, that's not the way to put it. Whoa, whoa. No? He was my nigger. Nigger. Nigger? What is that? Nigger. Nigger. Nagur? Please. Nagur. Please. I told you before we came in, one word do not say is the exact word you're using now. I said nigger. One dozen times. Please. Hello, gentlemen. How you doing? Are you guys friends of the deceased? Do you want me to say this in front of his widow? I was his lover. No, that is not true. I saw him perform with the globe trotters. I thought he was outstanding. I have a friend from that. So what are these alternate cuts to that? His message... Uh, yeah, apparently was it again after the credits. So powerful. Bobby McFerrin, oh, I, no. I told you this outside. And whatever the scandal that you went through... And the next one's just a gift, right? Well, yeah. So it's right, let's somewhere in, in this scene. But uh, let's try this. I mean, this is what it... <laughs> this is the gift. And then I you think know, I remind you of the menudo. Okay. I do have the um, longer clip from which that's taken with the one I posted. It sort of begins at the like the, the very beginning of that. I don't know how long it goes on for. Maybe like five minutes. Yeah. Well, we don't need a Joe Rogan situation where someone takes that clip out of context because that's not the part we were going for there. Yeah, uh, that's the problem. In between that is. But it's okay for. For Sasha Baron Cohen, for Ali G to say that and cultural appropriate all over the place, never in a positive way for the people he culturally appropriates from, by the way. Shout out Uzbekistan. What's up? Here, here's the audio. 
The ocular weakness of yours. Need I remind you of the Menudo incident? Oh, that's it. <laughs> In it has a larger context in that yeah. conversation. It, it definitely did. It wasn't just that. I wouldn't have jumped to the conclusion thinking that child that that ties into child sex trafficking just from that. So, well, if there people are saying that this this stuff was censored, it's censored in many languages. So, I wonder why. Well, let me check here real quick. I mean, why should it be censored? It's a 2012 officially sanctioned movie. Put out by Borat himself. D did something happen where people started to realize? Oh, I found what? it. I oh. found the exact clip here. Thank you, sir. Let me just get a proper. How far back do you want to go with it or to bring context? This is like all it. It was within it, a couple seconds of that. It was just, you know, it, they're having a conversation. Okay. Uh, I, I, here we go. Here we go. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. It's like right around. Yeah, and yet it's strange. Like so I decided yeah, not to do it. No. When the thought of someone's decapitated head upsets you, that is love. I swear, I don't even like her at you all. You don't like her? She has the body shape of a 14-year-old boy. Well, that is a particular weakness of yours. Need I remind you of the Menudo incident? Those boys had their eyes open. They knew exactly what they were we doing. We made them have their eyes open. You made me hold one of their eyes open so they would see what you were doing to them. They seemed to be having a pretty good time. They were not. Those boys were crying. Three of them killed themselves. Nothing to do with me. Everything to do with you. A lot of them wrote notes in their suicide notes. They named you by name. It's all a rumor, and you're being silly. Hello, gentlemen. How you doing? Are you guys I pause it. Yeah, I was Jeff. I was definitely misremembering how that clip unfolded, and it definitely didn't reference uh, underage boys, decapitation, torturing people, and then gaslighting them. So glad I was wrong on that one. Thank yes. you for finding the clip. That's, that's why this is a live show that rocks because you can't plan that stuff out. You got to figure this stuff out as we go, figure it out Real in time flight. Production. Real time production. Tucker, no, Tucker, take take notice of that. See how it's done. I don't see you covering this stuff, dude. All right. Uh, is it worth five, uh, two minutes to see what Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, position is with the ADL? Because I remember him coming out like during COVID or something. Started talking a bunch of smack against freedom and how we should all get in line and bend over like Menudo. It was something like that that he was saying, and I didn't get the reference at the time. <laughs> But now I saw Sean Stone's best kept secrets, and now it's a little bit easier to see what he's pointing out. Do we have something, or I can bring it up on browser over here? I don't have anything about Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah, clips is not in the history speaking, blueprint. Um, at the ADL, like there's a, a three minute clip here from three years ago, Guardian News. Yeah, let's check it out. Yeah. Uh, oh, he's a keynote address, 2019. Well, there's that. Yeah. That's that's where I saw a clip. So there's a viral clip. Yeah, I think anti the viral Facebook stuff was rant. him ripping Facebook. Yeah. So he Someone. hated speech. He hated free speech before the pandemic. This is before it was okay to say lockdown and take away everyone's everything. Like he was early on the scene doing a keynote speech about how he doesn't like our freedom, but he likes our money for 
paying for his movies. I don't know if I'm going to be sending you any more money in those movies, dude. That sounds pretty much consistent with the cultural reformation that's taken place over the past like five, 10 years. Yeah. So is there a short clip LD that you can, that's findable? Yeah. Let's get a flavor for someone who, who knows enough to make a menudo joke like that and be comfortable enough to put it in a fucking film forever out there in front of the public. Because we don't know how to use the interwebs. They've been more conspicuous with that. Predictive programming and also the revelation of the craft sort of idea. It has been more and more of that in Hollywood, most certainly. But anyways, let's go to the clip. Democracy, which depends on shared truths, is in retreat. And autocracy, which depends on shared lies, is on the march. Hate crimes are surging, as are murderous attacks on religious and ethnic minorities. Now, what do all these dangerous trends have in common? I'm just a comedian and an actor. I'm not a scholar. But one thing is pretty clear to me. All this hate and violence is being facilitated by a handful of internet companies that amount to the greatest propaganda machine in history. The algorithms these platforms depend on deliberately amplify the type of content that keeps users engaged. Stories that appeal to our baser instincts and that trigger outrage and fear. It's why YouTube recommended videos by the conspiracist Alex Jones billions of times. It's why fake news outperforms real news because studies show that lies spread faster than truth. And it's no surprise that the greatest propaganda machine in history has spread the oldest conspiracy theory in history, the lie that Jews are somehow dangerous. As one headline put it, just think what Goebbels could have done with Facebook. Zuckerberg tried to portray this whole issue as choices around free expression. That is ludicrous. This is not about limiting anyone's free speech. This is about giving people, including some of the most reprehensible people on earth, the biggest platform in history to reach a third of the planet. Freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. Sadly, there will always be racists, misogynists, anti-Semites, and child abusers. But I think we can all agree that we should not be giving bigots and pedophiles a free platform to amplify their views and target their victims. Zuckerberg speaks of welcoming a diversity of ideas. And last year, he gave us an example. He said that he found posts denying the Holocaust deeply offensive, but he didn't think Facebook should take them down because I think there are things that different people get wrong. We have, unfortunately, millions of pieces of evidence for the Holocaust. It is an historical fact. And denying it is not some random opinion. Those who deny the Holocaust aim to encourage another one. If you pay them, Facebook will run any political ad you want, even if it's a lie. And they'll even help you micro-target those lies to their users for maximum effect. Under this twisted logic, if Facebook were around in the 1930s, it would have allowed Hitler to post 30-second ads on his solution to the Jewish problem. 
Okay, go ahead. So pause here's that, a please. good standard. So there's more. There's more to that because he he did a whole keynote, and that's just a little garden guardian thing. And I was going to say, tell us you're referring to Hitler without saying you're referring to Hitler. But he said straight up, he's he's comparing Facebook and uh, this thing to uh, to Hitler. So uh, okay, now uh, LD, can you rewind just a couple minutes? He he was saying something about they shouldn't give platforms to child abusers and pedophiles like he just proved to be in the 2012 movie called the dictator but also i think he's he's right that they shouldn't and that this guy right here mark thompson chairman of the new york times who covered up jimmy savile's pedophilia with the bbc and the bbc knew about it for 40 years yeah. well before thompson got on board right. but thompson was aware of it and i've read the court transcripts so don't try to gaslight me with some fucking puff piece straw man yeah, bullshit he had a whole thing okay that as well new york times at this time when when they brought this guy on who covered up for jimmy savile sex crimes uh new york times was covering a, a little known thing called pizzagate that you might have heard about earlier tonight and talking about uh this with really graceful so i agree and i think that it's not the biggest media propaganda machine in history that he was speaking as a mouthpiece for the biggest media propaganda machine in history and trying to again point toward it's like he's pointing at the arabs he's like hey they're doing it over there look right when if you look at what he's saying yes the biggest liberal progressive platform newspaper in the united states of america during the time of pizzagate in the wikileaks and the podesta questions Oh, uh, Mark Thompson says there's nothing to see there, just like he did across the pond before he had to step down as director general of the BBC. Yeah. So don't play this. You can't talk about the truth on the Internet because it's out there and it's going to continue to be and get out there louder and louder. The more they try to censor and shift the playing field so that you can't even have freedom of speech. Just a point. Yep. Very well said. Speaking of freedom of speech. I mean, that's our house. I do want to catch a couple minutes of a video that I, I promised at the top of the show. There's evidence out there, and it's Dr. John Campbell who's bringing us a report that CBD basically makes it impossible for you to get the, the thing that was going around, SARS-CoV-2, whatever they were calling that thing. He's going to show you some research that a certain level of CBD in the system, it can't attach to the ACE2 receptor and a whole bunch of other things that could have, would have, should have, should have saved your grandmother, your mom, your dad, your grandfather, all those people in your family that might've been afflicted or have recently been afflicted because the gene therapy is not sitting so well. None of that would have happened had they not blocked hemp in the first place and not created a bioweapon in the first place and not concocted a way to get mrna into everybody's bio organism right so there's a whole line of abuses here that you know they could you know, we maybe we should have another nuremberg type trial maybe uh yeah something like that needs to happen because there's a lot of adjudicating that has yet to be done yeah that's and, understandable uh, it's not no longer this reality it has the capacity for the kafka like trial i think with intellectual self-defense being reinstilled within the individuals there's a whole lot less tolerant for the bullshit because now you can stand your ground now you don't have to uh you know wander around in confusion you can dispel confusion get yourself a little autonomy and uh i don't know re-realize your birthright 
because that's why they, I mean, that's, they obscure things. They occult things. They hide things from you because it's your fucking birthright. And if you had your birthright, you'd be too much of a challenge to their status quo system. Right. You'd be too educated. You'd be able to sit at that public meeting and hold your own because they don't know shit what they're talking about. They just repeat what they've been told from above. And it comes from the State Department. State Department gets it from the Royal Institute of International Affairs because that's who feeds the CFR. Rockefeller funded too. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Make another Jake Tran video about that. I mean, these things, it's a finite planet. There's only so many people doing this over time. Let's learn their names and history and get together on what to do about it. LD, do you have that Very camel well clip? Said. Yeah. It's long. It's kind of, uh, he's not the most exciting presenter, but he's very, very insightful, accurate, thoughtful, all these good things. So it's good to take in the information. Do we have a way of playing it on like 1.25? Sure. Let's Jimmy Dore style it. We don't usually do that, but I don't think you're going to lose much of the data. Not much is going to be lost in translation. There's not much entropy at 1.25. It's going to help us uh, include no, it in the time sense. capsule in a timely manner. All right. Well, a warm welcome to this talk. It's Sunday, the 30th of April. Now, today's study is really quite impressively uh, interesting. It's about cannabis. Now, most of you are probably knowing cannabis. There's two main ingredients there's the thc the tetrahydrocannabinol that's the bit that gets you high if you use this substance and there's the other one the cbd the cannabidiol which is very much none uh, psychotropic it doesn't affect the brain at all now i'm going to give evidence today that the cbd the cannabidiol seems to have and there's pretty good evidence from this study and other studies antiviral properties now we'll be looking at evidence that it uh, reduces the infection from sars coronavirus 2 and helps with the illness and we'll be looking at evidence that it helps with another rna virus hepatitis c now let me tell you what evidence i'm going to be considering and you can decide if you want to watch this video this is oral by the way it's not injections and in all cases it's been completely uh, non-toxic at the doses that have been described now the first line of evidence that this works against sars coronavirus 2 and probably other viruses but the research is on sars coronavirus 2 is in human lung cell cultures where it prevented infection uh, when the cells were infected, if they'd been exposed to the, to the uh, cannabidiol two hours before, it pre essentially prevented all of the infection. But it didn't work with THC. So this means that if people are smoking cannabis or using cannabis products that are mixed with CBD and THC, the ones that will get you high, it won't work. This is strictly the non-psychotropic version. Tetrahydrocannabinol inhibited the effect of the cannabidiol in terms of antiviral properties. So that's the first one, um, human cell cultures. The second evidence is from mice, so it actually works in animals. Infected mice, they were given CBD, cannabidiol twice a day for four days, and they had 40 times less viral particles in their lungs. Really quite impressive. And the third line of evidence is human. Now, in the United States, they managed to recruit 1,221 people that are on cannabidiol to prevent epilepsy. And they found that they were 50% less likely to get infected with SARS coronavirus 2. And they had no follow up on whether they got sicker or not, but it would be likely that these people didn't get uh, sick as their counterparts may have done, especially with the early versions of SARS coronavirus 2. So three impressive lines of evidence we're going to look at. Probably works against hepatitis C, some evidence for that, terrible disease hepatitis C. Could well work against colds, flu, Ebola, mumps and measles. The reason I'm saying that is purely because there are other RNA viruses. We don't know, but it could potentially work against that. So I would certainly call for uh, um, immediate research to be done on this. But of course, hemp plants, which is where this essentially comes from, can be grown up by the hectare and uh, hemp oil, the, the cannabidiol, can be produced for essentially nothing. 
and it can be produced by anyone. It's not a it's not a specific preparation. So again, because any producer who who meets basic food manufacturing requirements could set up and produce this, it's unlikely that big pharma are going to do the clinical trials. So this could be another one of those uh, potentially brilliant treatments that's going to be completely lost to humanity because there's no money in it. And I'm going to stop there, otherwise I'll get cross. Let's let's go back and look at the evidence now. That's what this video is about. So this is the original paper here. Cannabidiol inhibits SARS-CoV-2 replication and promotes host innate immune response. Now, this was a preprint. So I did come across this, I think, last year, but I decided not to take it up. But now it's uh, it's fully peer reviewed. So we now have the evidence uh, in hand. And well, um, it's taken me a while to read through this paper. It really is quite an impressive piece of work. Very biochemical. I had to look up a few of the words, I must confess. Um, but so this is my understanding of the paper. But I think I think I got the, the main points uh, fairly accurately. Uh, Cannabidiol, potential regulator of the host stress. So this is the, the way that the body re responds or the cells respond to viral infection. And it also looks like it, it, um, it, uh, it helps antiviral inflammatory responses. Now, there was two things here. First of all, it helped the beneficial inflammatory response, which is, is what you need as part of the immune response. But also it inhibited the release of the cytokines, which causes the cytokine storm. So it looks like we're getting the benefits of the immunity, but inhibiting the cytokine storm. So it really is a win-win. Uh, preparation according to the evidence cited in this study. Um, cannabidiol class of natural products, so it's a natural product. Uh, natural products of course are great, there's all sorts of natural products. Um, let's think of some for example, opium is a natural product from uh, opium poppies. Antibiotics uh, are a natural product from molds. The very, the, the, a lot of the best therapeutics come from natural uh, products, um, others we could mention. Um, it's an oral solution, so that's good. Now, hemp, hemp plants contain less than 0.3% uh, THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. So, um, but we'll show that this preparation was actually a fairly pure um, CBD. Oral solution is already FDA approved. So given that this is FDA approved and it exists, um, it, there's no reason why, in theory, doctors shouldn't be allowed to uh, prescribe it. Um, it would be off license for this product because it's only licensed for epilepsy at the moment or various types of fitting. And as I say, the large scale clinical trials probably won't be done, but they, they should be done. Um, uh, high purity. Go ahead, go ahead, pause um, it. CBD inhibits. So pre-treated pre lung cells, all this sort of stuff. You can watch the whole report. Uh, Campbell does a great job consistently of breaking down new reports, research and presenting it and being open to answer questions and these, these things about it. And uh, that's pretty insightful. And if you don't think they knew stuff about uh, what might have been an effective therapeutic and kept it out of people's hands for the for the good part, because when you're in lockdown, you're not going to uh, get hooked up. They don't want you having that sort of stuff in your system to fight off their their uh, their creations. But wait, I just saw this claim. This is from Cynthia McKinney, former Congress yeah, from, from, from Georgia. Jen Psaki. From Israeli spy outfit to the White House uh, to your living room, thanks to MSNBC. I think I it was, was like, RK. Okay. I think it was uh, RK Junior that actually mentioned. That she worked as for an Israeli spy firm. Let's see what yeah, the electronic like intifada. It, it was pretty sure. Anyways, yeah, she worked at yeah. Now again, this is a two-year-old story. So. Yeah, I mean, it's I didn't know this back. at the time. It's from a while back. Yeah. Yeah. That's before well, she got her position as the. Uh... Well, 
I forget what There's, it's called, but you know. Yeah, there was press uh, secretary, press secretary. Oh, no, look, not even that anymore. Ryan Dawson's weighing in. <laughs> well, Twitter, you know, there. Let's celebrate free speech tonight. You know, not only are you seeing a little free speech over there on the Twitter, but uh, we got the free speech going on all night at the Rockfin. We got free speech over on the Rumble. We got free speech over on the Odyssey. But I'd like to say something candid just between me and you, Tony. Hmm. If this show was sponsored by the Daily Wire, we'd be out of a job, bro. <laughs> if this show was sponsored by Prager, we'd be out of a job. If this show was sponsored by Blaze TV, we'd be out of a job. If this show was sponsored by insert uh media that's why we're not sponsored by those people we're sponsored by our members and the people who actually appreciate the research that we're putting together not because uh you know we're hateful but because we love life we love and appreciate each other as human beings and we appreciate this planet i appreciate the opportunity to be here i don't appreciate being born into a game where so much uh has been left unsaid because of so many people believing things that were not true and then having to go and uh, take that long and winding road to circuitously, but comprehensively and cogently be able to understand and communicate the bigger picture, the metapolitics, the supranational types of activities that go on in this game of globalism or internationalism, which is not a slang for anything religious or Zionist or anything like that. It's a group of people of many nationalities, denominations, faiths, colors, and creeds that got together and said, you know what? We think Spectre is a good idea when we watch James Bond, and we should do that. And MI6 said, sorry, dude, we're already doing that. We got a monopoly on that. Yeah, it's a recapitulation then, of yeah, all the philosophies of been the reigning philosophies of those in positions of power for thousands of years. Max Blumenthal on Twitter says, Jeffrey Epstein planned to fly with Noam Chomsky and his wife to have dinner with them and movie director Woody Allen and his wife. Woody Allen, what was, he, what was he known for? It was something like Roman Polanski, but it was different. Oh, right. He banged the adopted daughter who's now married to. That's not weird at all. Anyway, the manufacturing of consent suddenly takes a new and much darker meaning. Well played, sir. Well played. All right. Well, we can't cruise Twitter all night, but I just wanted to show you a couple of things that were going on while we were having a show over here. There's people out there in the Twitterverse making comments. <laughs> oh geez oh my goodness dude oh my goodness okay first off first off <laughs> this is radowski's fault for retweeting that okay that's for that's what you get for retweeting that shit dude. all right i gotta retweet that too i i've never seen <laughs> I, I wasn't, I, I, uh, yep. All right. At first I thought, why is Roger Waters on Twitter tonight? But that's not him. That's not him. Sorry, Roger. Roger. Right. Yes. <laughs> Roger's a friend of the show. I don't want to embarrass him with that. Uh, Illuminati bot. Uh, yep. Sorry. Well, actually maybe, uh, does Kissinger's wife have kids? Do they have kids? I don't know. Sorry. Got distracted. Distracted. 
Cove. What's so hard for you guys? to play that skit they did for. Oh, this is what this I was looking for this a couple weeks ago. Lyndon LaRouche on Saturday. Oh, that's hilarious. Are you depressed? Do you suffer from anxiety and migraines? You may need a lobotomy. I saw that, yeah. This is a it's quick funny. one. It's like funny every time I see it because I, I, st- I still have my frontal lobe. Chronic pain, violent outbursts, PTSD, ADD, Alzheimer's, unmanageable, unmanageable loved ones. Before, after. Only takes 10 minutes. Look at that. Only takes 10 minutes. See they have a newer version of this. Specialist, Walter Freeman. He's a medical doctor. They have a new one of these. It's a, it's a... It's a Pfizer statement. It says it's a similar thing, and it says, "Are you depressed? You may need a one-state solution." That's what it, what it said. But I'll have to get a picture of that for next time, and uh, I'll bring it to class. Look, remember when they were singing, dancing, when they could have been just giving people CBD? I'm just saying. Hmm. It's clown world. CBD, vitamin D, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. They're going from a clown world to Chucky world soon, so it'll be changing. NAC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, any other clips? I've gotten most of the clips that we had in the milieu mix tonight. Uh, thank you for finding that uh, dictator clip because I think that me trying to say it isn't the same as you seeing the clip and we understand now what we both saw. Yeah. In context. In context, in context and if you important. want, you know, I'll pull the clip from part five and we'll play it next week when Sean's here and you can hear them or he'll tell you about the Menudo stuff. He made, he sure. did the research for it. Or maybe we play yeah. in the beginning just to refresh what we covered. Menudo Menendez. We'll That's what out. we have to remember. Yeah. The 1313 M&M. So obviously there's always plenty we can't cover in one evening, but I think we covered the main highlights. Obviously the new big news this week on sort of the the main round was Tucker Carlson, but we covered that in depth for Tuesday night at the town hall. So if you're interested in any sort of coverage about that, I'd uh, sort of uh, exhort those that are interested to go check out grantfworld.com, the top right-hand corner, hit join community and choose your donation tier. You get access to the town halls. The book, the final book club was phenomenal. We had a huge turnout, very successful. We're definitely going to pick that up again with a different book in a couple of months. And yeah, so, like, uh, we didn't cover that tonight, but I don't know if we really need to. I think, you know, more than many people have been covering that whole saga in regards to Tucker. I think your meme at the beginning of the night pretty much sums up the entirety of what needs to be covered in regards to that. Yes, drama. and what Gatto said about what he learned in Jesuit school when he was, like, uh, seven years old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, here's all the things. Here's all the reasons the war started. And Gatto repeats them back. He's like, no, idiot. Those aren't it. And he erases them all. And then he writes new ones. He's like, this is why it happened. And Gatto repeats it. He goes, no, you idiot. This is why it happened. Right? So we're probably never going to know unless we're hanging out with Tucker. And then we'll get his side of it. But I'm not meeting sure. with the executives at Fox. I'm not meeting with Lachlan Murdoch and these other people who probably hang out with Hunter Biden a little too much. I might be on the Epstein client list. <laughs> I'm not hanging out with them. So point. at best, we'll get you know some chuckles out of the memes. And if you understand what all these stories mean, good for you. You're you're an informed human being, but most people are floating around on the top of that iceberg. And uh yeah, they don't they don't get what's going on. So yeah, exactly. I'm not, you know. So beyond if I, that, if I take their opinions, I have to take their outcomes, and I'm not ready to do that. I'm good for thinking for myself. Thank you very much. Yeah, beyond that, I think we covered uh the majority of what you know need to be covered. Gregory said a good bit about actually 
sort of uh, some hope in regards to the idea that fear is a mind killer taken from Dune. Yeah, from Frank Herbert's novel. Frank Herbert. And a movie made four times. Very good uh, video to check out. A word of hope and to steal one's disposition, gain fortitude and perspective. That was a good video. Otherwise, yeah, there's, I mean, if you, if, for those that are interested, there's plenty on the show card. Um, yeah, become, by becoming a GTW subscriber, you get access to the show card as well. Then you can get to check out some of the ideas that we had listed tonight in case you're interested. Oh, there was one by Greg Reese as well. RK Jr. in the CIA might be worth preserving. Uh, a lot of that. Yeah, we should probably play it. Tonight. Yeah, we should cover that. That's Greg Reese as well. That that's one that should be on the time capsule. And then uh let's discuss play us out. Uh we'll need like a, a what's her face. Uh, yeah, sure. JP uh JP they wrote a hit, hit well. piece uh on him and oh, he really? did a response to it. It's hilarious, but oh, it might be a little bit long. Hmm. So we'll figure that out. Uh I would like to go to uh the fine people who have sponsored this show. I'd like to thank the members because not everyone's a super chatter. Like there's plenty of members that aren't in the chat. They're just listening. I want to thank you guys first and foremost, because you help us pay the bills every month and keep everything running. And uh, we appreciate that. And if you want to support grand theft world, the show, you get membership. There's a whole bunch of value. There's a whole treasure trove of content on the other side of membership. So uh, plenty of value exchange that's utility based that you can use it in your life. That's great. So that's how you can support the show. If you want to support yourself, you get yourself over to getautonomy.info forward slash ignite, learn some skills to help you evolve beyond the fray, the herd, the people going on the top of that iceberg and saying, I think I know what's going on. Now we dig a little bit deeper. We work a little bit longer. We work a little bit smarter. And eventually we live a lifestyle of liberty that others can emulate by method and not belief. Methodology, not ideology is what we're teaching. So mind my mind that we're helping out, making the world a better place, making families, communities, the things from which we draw our real value, the things you can't buy with money are easily attained when you have the skills, the communication, the thinking, all in concert to bring service to each other. So uh, have at it. There's plenty there for you. And now let's see who we have to thank tonight for uh, the various uh, super chat mechanisms. I'm going to have LD rack it up. Yay, sound effects. Thanks to the Grand Theft World community. As always, and a big thanks to tonight's Rockfin tippers. Nick the Sound Guy started off $5. I heard my name before. You're right, Rich. I was listening. As a GTW subscriber, I can't help but feel a sort of closeness to the Tucker situation. Maybe the needle is moving in our direction. Thanks, Nick. And LD, just raise your gain a little bit. (sighs) Okay. Unless... Unless that's not going to work. I can do that. Yeah, I just. uh... All right. Is that a little better? Yeah, it's a little bit clearer. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, Jim Garrison, $5. Just give me some truth. All I want is some truth. John Lennon. Thanks, Jim. Uh, T Can, $5. Thanks, GTW. Thank you, Mr. Can. Ross Guy tip $5. Thank you, Ross. Gardner Goldsmith, $5. Thanks for a great show, for having great principles, and for offering excellent information. 
all the best. Thank Thanks, Gardner. You, Gardner. Uh, Much appreciated. Yeah, thank, thank you, Gardner, Ross, TCAN, Jim. Thank you, guys, everyone. Oh, yeah, like, uh, Jim was topping me with, uh, you know, repeating the lines from John Lennon songs. <laughs> Hang on. We've got new additions coming in right now. Um, so B1, $10. <clears throat> GTW fam keeping the train running. Six hours of truth racked up. Tonight we're getting fact up. Enough to fill the banks with our history think tanks. Only rule for thee is stay free. No bugs for me, thanks. <laughs> Much love, GTW and fam. We are living through the most exciting times together. Indeed. Thank you, B1. Thank you, B1. Ah, very impressive. Yeah, very cool. Former nice packaging of skills and thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. He makes great music too, and and visual art. Nice. If you haven't checked it out, uh, I think it's B One's World. Uh, is it still low? No. No, you said yeah. No, you sound good. <clears throat> Former B1's Vice World President Biden, five dollars. Play my clip if you can. Funny disclaimer: Rich threw in after reading Foreign Affairs article. Let's see. Real. I didn't say that. I'm reading the Council on Foreign Relations, Foreign Affairs from this quarter. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Clip that for me. Uh. Um, <laughs> small computer system interface, SCSI, $5. Sound effects. Oh, yeah. Tony, your science is so big. There's a random one. Thank you, SCSI. ARIM. ARIM tipped us $50, says another great show. Thank you so much, Mr. Rem. Much appreciated. Thanks, everybody, for sticking with us. Got to have a sense of humor in these things. And, uh, yeah, keep sending soundboard clips. That's working out well. <laughs> All right. And without yeah. further ado, we don't have uh, time, but honorable mention to Majid Nawaz, who was on Patrick Bet if you listen to the first 10 minutes you hear some interesting things he has an interesting background might have been like going against them might have started to go work for them i don't know yeah, i don't want to spoil it sure. yeah. but uh listen carefully and don't just you know assume your way forward he might be an agent out there spreading information or not i don't know might be a nice guy never met him uh education turned into schooling turned into military industrial complex and then everything else that we heard tonight is uh, what follows that. So learning how to outgrow your status quo is a serious thing. This These topics aren't changing. They're not going away. They have a great reset plan. I don't know if you heard about it. And this is the thing that they referred to like 100 years ago when they're like, hey, we're going to have to change the attitudes, values, behaviors, and beliefs of people to be in line with this big plan. Now they get the technology to do it and kind of enforce it. And uh, yeah, so I think we should make educated decisions going forward and not just assume our way forward. And without further ado, I'll thank you all for tuning in and not dropping out. And who do we have to play us out, LD? Who do we, who do we pick up for that job? I'm not sure. All right, let's spin the wheel. Sure. Uh, let's go with the what's her face. What's her face? Okay. Because like you know, uh, she's Canadian. She's under uh, King Charles III. Maybe she's got a different perspective. Maybe I've been wrong about some of this uh, British Empire type stuff tonight. We'll see. Thank you all. Peace. Yep. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Peace.
Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox News, parents are getting arrested for piercing their children's ears, and Mattel just released a Down Syndrome Barbie. In this week's roundup, the battle between good and evil ramps up. The powers that be want us to know that there's only one rule in Clown World, that the rules don't make any sense, and they don't have to follow them. All right, so I guess there's two rules, sorry. This reality was perfectly illustrated in our top story when a father was arrested for piercing his son's ear. What are y'all doing? For what? Body arch without locks. What is really going on here? You As officers marched the irate father down the suburban street, his wife and son followed, both in total disbelief at the situation. In Arkansas, it is illegal for artists to perform body art on a person under 16 years of age, regardless of parental consent. Violation of that law is a Class D felony. Pop quiz, everybody! If mutilating the E puts you in a Class D, then what class does mutilating the D put you in? That's right, the protected class. A trans teen died from vaginoplasty complications during landmark Dutch study used to justify child sex changes. A 2016 medical article documenting the tragic death of one of the participants in the linchpin Dutch study upon which the entire child sex change experiment is based indicates that puberty suppression was to blame for the young person's death. The case is that of an 18-year-old trans-identified male whose puberty was blocked by the Dutch researchers at a very early stage, meaning there wasn't enough penile tissue for surgeons to use to create a neo-vagina. Therefore, a more risky procedure using a section of the patient's bowel was necessary, which resulted in fatal necrotizing fasciitis. Now, of course, these two news stories circulating simultaneously send us plebs a very clear message. Your children belong to us. You think I'm being dramatic? That's nice. The president of your country doesn't. There's no such thing as someone else's child. No such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all our children. Very interesting notion, Biden. In that case, I would like my son, Hunter, brought to trial. I know I've said this time and time again, but this sort of thing doesn't just happen overnight. When you replace natural law with moral relativism, you must also replace objective truth with subjective experience. And right now in our collective subjective experience, tyrants own our children, murderous healthcare, and Christians can be porn stars apparently. I'm a proud Christian porn star. God put me on earth to enjoy sexual pleasure. This sinful stunner is making an unholy confession. A Christian OnlyFans star says she feels more connected to her faith since she kickstarted her kinky career seven years ago. Courtney Tillia, 35, made the declaration during an interview with the Daily Star on Sunday saying, God's message has been abundantly clear. I'm here to be a porn star. This is my way of serving. Yeah, okay, Tilia. You know, when the church offered you a missionary position, that's not what they meant. Honestly, once upon a time, this would have made a humorous SNL skit. Back when SNL was funny and logical inconsistency was something we joked about. Now you can look someone dead in the face and claim to be a female Christian porn star who's dying from cancer. When doesn't have appendicitis, he has testicular cancer. She. Mattel introduces its first Barbie doll, 
representing a person with Down syndrome. Mattel on Tuesday introduced its first ever version of the Barbie doll representing a person with Down syndrome. The new doll is part of Mattel Barbie Fashionistas line, which aims to offer kids more diverse representations of beauty and fight the stigma around physical disabilities. Previous Barbie Fashionistas have included dolls with a prosthetic leg, one with hearing aids, another that comes with a wheelchair, and a doll with the skin condition vitiligo, which causes patches of skin to lose their pigment. This means so much for our community who for the first time can play with a Barbie doll that looks like them. This Barbie serves as a reminder that we should never underestimate the power of representation. It is a huge step forward for inclusion and a moment that we are celebrating. Hey, you know what would be an even bigger step in inclusion for Down Syndrome people? If you stopped excluding them by murdering them in utero. This story really sums up the empty virtue signaling bullshit our society loves to partake in, doesn't it? It's standard practice in pregnancy to screen for Down syndrome so that you could kill the baby before it has a chance to inconvenience your life. But don't worry, if one of them manages to squeak by detection, inclusivity Barbie will be waiting for the little for the low price of $16.99. Speaking of prioritizing things over your own offspring, a Toronto woman claims to feed her daughter crickets as a source of protein. It saves hundreds on my grocery bill. This tip may bug some parents. In a new essay for Insider, food writer Tiffany Lee revealed that she feeds her 18-month-old daughter crickets as a source of protein, claiming it saves her hundreds of dollars on grocery bills. The Toronto mom started to supplement her daughter's more costly protein diet of beef, chicken, and pork with whole roasted crickets, cricket protein powder, and Cheeto-like cricket puff snacks. She said she's been able to cut down her grocery bill of $250 to $300 a week to between $150 and $200 per week. And what does she do with all that money she saves? She buys herself designer handbags. Obviously. Now some of you might be asking yourself, how does a woman like this sleep at night? I don't know. But if I had to guess, I'd say she sleeps on 800 thread count Egyptian cotton sheets that she purchased with all the money she saved from picking up her baby's crib from a cockroach infested crack den. Wow, I got that in one take. And that's exactly how Tucker Carlson will sleep at night after getting fired for upsetting a cockroach in the crack den we call Fox News. That's right, the most watched news anchor on television got the boot earlier this week after Fox producer Abby Grossberg revealed that the anti-Semitism, bullying, gaslighting, and misogyny of Tucker Carlson tonight led her to calling a crisis hotline. Of course, this is no surprise. The ADL has been calling for Tucker's ousting for years. Most recently in 2021 for his comments on the Great Replacement Theory. A theory that suggests nefarious characters are working to replace legacy white European Americans with immigrants. Here's Biden explaining the entire point of mass immigration back in 2015 when he was vice president. An unrelenting stream of immigration non-stop, non-stop. Folks like me who were Caucasian of European descent for the first time in 2017 will be in an absolute minority in the United States of America. Absolute minority. Fewer than 50% of the people in America from then and on will be white European stock. That's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a source of our strength. An unrelenting stream of immigration, but why? Well, 
Joe Biden just said it, to change the racial mix of the country. That's the reason, to reduce the political power of people whose ancestors lived here and dramatically increase the proportion of Americans newly arrived from the third world. And then Biden went further. He said that non-white DNA is the, quote, source of our strength. Imagine saying that. This is the language of eugenics. It's horrifying. But there's a reason Biden said it. In political terms, this policy is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. They brag about it all the time. But if you dare to say it's happening, they will scream at you with maximum hysteria. And here you have Joe Biden confirming his motive on tape with a smile on his face. No one who talks like this should ever be the president of the United States. You know, it's fascinating that Tucker Carlson would be fired for accusations of anti-Semitism in the same week that another right-wing hero was off in Israel signing what is now being called the strongest anti-Semitism bill in the United States. Governor DeSantis has signed into law a bill aimed at curbing anti-Semitic incidents which have been on the rise across the state. Palm Beach County State Representative Mike Caruso introduced the public nuisance bill earlier this year after someone projected swastikas onto buildings in West Palm Beach and Jacksonville. That is now a crime. It'll be a misdemeanor that becomes a felony if the image projected contains a credible threat. So what constitutes anti-Semitic hate speech? Well, according to the ADL, it can be anything from anti-Antifa images to the okay hand symbol, to declaring that it's okay to be white. If any of you are wondering why this is happening now, I implore you to look up the Russian Revolution. Then I want you to go ahead and look up what sort of laws were being passed before the Bolsheviks slaughtered millions of people. I forgot to film my sign off, so if you like this video, please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe, and check out some other videos from my channel. Also, next weekend is my daughter's birthday, and I'm gonna be like one of those moms who goes really over the top and plans her like a big, special, beautiful party, so I wanna dedicate um, all of my time to that, so there won't be a weekly roundup uh, next weekend. But I will be thinking of you the whole time. I actually won't be doing that, but... Um, I watched in a video once that is good marketing to, to tell you guys that I'm thinking about you at all times. I'm not gonna be thinking about you. It's my daughter's birthday. Um, she's more important to me than you. I'm very, very sorry. I'm sure you will get over it immediately after uh, you click off this video. Okay, I will see you guys in two weeks and I love you so much and have a good week. Okay, bye. Conspiracy is a story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.
Big props to Maria Broadcasted, that's where I'd hear And get hooked on the name of Richard Grove What he's saying is hypnotic Synchronicity came out like chronic All in full stride Compadres around all sides Seeking sources to provide solution The heavy-handed knowledge is Willie saying The peace revolution Never knowing I was missing the blessing The heaviest session recorded and revealed The ultimate history lesson In this quest and I'm a Midwestern Who's rocking it dope Subscribe to media produced by tragedy and hope and if you didn't know the gift and here's what you've been missing and listening is where conviction is revealed in descriptions in a brain model don't come all hollow but full throttle and dive in the deep end so history doesn't repeat and make it complete catch grant that world every week with richard and tony chop it up with the homies and i ain't talking about that public school baloney in a sec you should know me quoting gato in the flow that i'm growing and ld's bearded is showing the time capsule stack of stats is open so spread it around, the show is ready to pounce Audience that abounds, seeking out what's profound I know it is challenging fallacies in the balance When a forensic story in it, boring men while exhorting in Examination, contemplation, meditation, revelation, celebration Destinations planned, targets arrived Autonomy crew of souls that survive Broke free from the 9 to 5 and we doing it live Hey, with hope in our flow, where consciousness grows As opposed to, you don't have to think about it dude Cause it's a comedy show That be bombing truth woe Trying to make uncommon truths be more commonly known That it's a grand theft world that I'm living in Ain't no reptilian skin Just some normal humans who love to sin From their banking powers they aim to win Deceive and betray all men Make it, make it, everyone slaves to them It's a grand theft world that I'm hearing at Disguised like a pyramid But those tuning in they be feeling that Revealing that Things ain't what they seem so I'm fighting back And digging jack Obtaining knowledge, wisdom and art Artifacts, 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 yeah, neglected aspect, that's what they lack, yo, trivium course, it'll deal with that, huh, be a rebel, bring the logic back, cause it's a grand theft world that they rolling out, got the gold model out, tracing Rockefeller dollars, straight to clouds, SEC connections are hard to doubt, but most go the common route, walking with their head in the shroud, yo, it's a grand theft world that I'm peering at, disguised like a pyramid, but those tuning in, they be feeling that, revealing that, things ain't what they seem, so I'm fighting back, and digging jack, obtaining knowledge, wisdom, and artifacts, artifacts, you should know, it's not a video game, this isn't Grand Theft Auto, folks, this isn't a video game, this is Grand Theft World, alright LD, it's a Grand Theft World that I'm peering at, and this guy like a pyramid, for those tuning in, they be feeling it, revealing that things ain't what they seem, so I'm fighting back, and digging jack, obtaining knowledge, wisdom, and artifacts.
If you need a single location to get cutting-edge information and keep up with the rapidly changing world around us, tune into Grand Theft World, where a forensic historian and a logic professor break down the week's news in-depth and in-context. There's a ton more there, so go check it out. And don't forget to get your Freedom Vault on the homepage.